This is Audible. Listening Library presents The Heroes of Olympus, Book Four, The House of Hades, by Rick Riordan, read for you by Nick Chamian. Chapter One, Hazel. During the third attack, Hazel almost ate a boulder. She was peering into the fog, wondering how it could be so difficult to fly across one stupid mountain range. When the ship's alarm bells sounded, hard support! Nico yelled from the foremast of the flying ship. Back at the helm, Leo yanked the wheel. The Argo Two veered left, its aerial oars slashing through the clouds like rows of knives. Hazel made the mistake of looking over the rail. A dark spherical shape hurtled toward her. She thought, "Why is the moon coming at us?" Then she yelped and hit the deck. The huge rock passed so close overhead it blew her hair out of her face. Crack! The foremast collapsed. Sails, spars, and Nico all crashing to the deck. The boulder, roughly the size of a pickup truck, tumbled off into the fog like it had important business elsewhere. Nico, Hazel scrambled over to him as Leo brought the ship level. I'm fine, Nico muttered, kicking folds of canvas off his legs. She helped him up, and they stumbled to the bow. Hazel peeked over more carefully this time. The clouds parted just long enough to reveal the top of the mountain below them, a spearhead of black rock jutting from mossy green slopes. Standing at the summit was a mountain god, one of the Numina Montanum, Jason had called them, or Ori in Greek. Whatever you called them, they were nasty. Like the others they had faced, this one wore a simple white tunic. Over skin as rough and dark as basalt, he was about twenty feet tall and extremely muscular, with a flowing white beard, scraggly hair, and a wild look in his eyes, like a crazy hermit. He bellowed something Hazel didn't understand, but it obviously wasn't welcoming. With his bare hands, he pried another chunk of rock from his mountain and began shaping it into a ball. The scene disappeared in the fog, but when the mountain god bellowed again, other numina answered in the distance, their voices echoing through the valleys. Stupid rock gods! Leo yelled from the helm. That's the third time I've had to replace that mast. You think they grow on trees? Nico frowned. Masts are from trees. That's not the point. Leo snatched up one of his controls, rigged from a Nintendo Wii stick, and spun it in a circle. A few feet away, a trap door opened in the deck. A celestial bronze cannon rose. Hazel just had time to cover her ears before it discharged into the sky, spraying a dozen metal spheres that trailed green fire. The spheres grew spikes in midair, like helicopter blades, and spun away into the fog. A moment later, a series of explosions crackled across the mountains, followed by the outraged roar of mountain gods. Ha! Leo yelled. Unfortunately, Hazel guessed 
Judging from their last two encounters, Leo's newest weapon had only annoyed the Numina. Another boulder whistled through the air off to their starboard side. Nico yelled, Get us out of here! Leo muttered some unflattering comments about Numina, but he turned the wheel. The engines hummed. Magical rigging lashed itself tight, and the ship tacked to port. The Argo, too, picked up speed, retreating northwest, as they'd been doing for the past two days. Hazel didn't relax until they were out of the mountains. The fog cleared. Below them, morning sunlight illuminated the Italian countryside. Rolling green hills and golden fields, not too different from those in Northern California. Hazel could almost imagine she was sailing home to Camp Jupiter. The thought weighed on her chest. Camp Jupiter had only been her home for nine months since Nico had brought her back from the underworld. But she missed it more than her birthplace of New Orleans, and definitely more than Alaska, where she died back in 1942. She missed her bunk in the fifth cohort barracks. She missed dinners in the mess hall, with wind spirits whisking platters through the air and legionnaires joking about the war games. She wanted to wander the streets of New Rome, holding hands with Frank Jong. She wanted to experience just being a regular girl for once, with an actual sweet, caring boyfriend. Most of all, she wanted to feel safe. She was tired of being scared and worried all the time. She stood on the quarterdeck as Nico picked mass splinters out of his arms and Leo punched buttons on the ship's console. Well, that was sucktastic, Leo said. Should I wake the others? Hazel was tempted to say yes, but the other crew members had taken the night shift and had earned their rest. They were exhausted from defending the ship. Every few hours, it seemed... Some Roman monster had decided the Argo too looked like a tasty treat. A few weeks ago, Hazel wouldn't have believed that anyone could sleep through a Numina attack. But now she imagined her friends were still snoring away below decks. Whenever she got a chance to crash, she slept like a coma patient. They need rest, she said. We'll have to figure out another way on our own. Huh. Leo scowled at his monitor. In his tattered work shirt and grease-splattered jeans, he looked like he'd just lost a wrestling match with a locomotive. Ever since their friends Percy and Annabeth had fallen into Tartarus, Leo had been working almost non-stop. He'd been acting angrier and even more driven than usual. Hazel worried about him, but part of her was relieved by the change. Whenever Leo smiled and joked, he looked too much like Sammy, his great-grandfather, Hazel's first boyfriend, back in 1942. Ugh, why did her life have to be so complicated? Another way, Leo muttered. Do you see one? On his monitor glowed a map of Italy. The Apennine Mountains ran down the middle of the boot-shaped country. A green dot for the Argo II blinked on the western side of the range, a few hundred miles north of Rome. Their path should have been simple. 
They needed to get to a place called Epirus in Greece and find an old temple called the House of Hades, or Pluto as the Romans called him, or as Hazel liked to think of him, the world's worst absent father. To reach Epirus, all they had to do was go straight east, over the Apennines and across the Adriatic Sea, but it hadn't worked out that way. Each time they tried to cross the spine of Italy, the mountain gods attacked. For the past two days, they'd skirted north, hoping to find a safe pass, with no luck. The Numina Montanum were sons of Gia, Hazel's least favorite goddess. That made them very determined enemies. The Argo, too, couldn't fly high enough to avoid their attacks. And even with all its defenses, the ship couldn't make it across the range without being smashed to pieces. It's our fault, Hazel said. Nico's in mine. The Numina can sense us. She glanced at her half-brother. Since they'd rescued him from the giants, he'd started to regain his strength, but he was still painfully thin. His black shirt and jeans hung off his skeletal frame. Long, dark hair framed his sunken eyes. His olive complexion had turned a sickly greenish-white, like the color of tree sap. In human years, he was barely fourteen, just a year older than Hazel. But that didn't tell the whole story. Like Hazel, Nico D'Angelo was a demigod from another era. He radiated a kind of old energy. A melancholy that came from knowing he didn't belong in the modern world. Hazel hadn't known him very long, but she understood, even shared his sadness. The children of Hades, Pluto, whichever, rarely had happy lives. And judging from what Nico had told her the night before, their biggest challenge was yet to come when they reached the house of Hades. A challenge he'd implored her to keep secret from the others. Nico gripped the hilt of his Stygian iron sword. Earth spirits don't like children of the underworld. That's true. We get under their skin. Literally. But I think the Numina could sense this ship anyway. We're carrying the Athena Parthenos. That thing is like a magical beacon. Hazel shivered, thinking of the massive statue that took up most of the hold. They'd sacrificed so much saving it from the cavern under Rome, but they had no idea what to do with it. So far, the only thing it seemed to be good for was alerting more monsters to their presence. Leo traced his finger down the map of Italy. So, crossing the mountains is out. Thing is, they go a long way in either direction. We could go by sea, Hazel suggested. Sail around the southern tip of Italy. That's a long way, Nico said. Plus, we don't have... His voice cracked. You know, our sea expert, Percy. The name hung in the air like an impending storm. Percy Jackson, son of Poseidon. Probably the demigod Hazel admired most. He'd saved her life so many times on their quest to Alaska, but when he had needed Hazel's help in Rome, she'd failed him. She'd watched, powerless, as he and Annabeth had plunged into that pit. Hazel took a deep breath 
Percy and Annabeth were still alive. She knew that in her heart. She could still help them if she could get to the House of Hades, if she could survive the challenge Nico had warned her about. What about continuing north? She asked. There has to be a break in the mountains or something. Leo fiddled with the bronze Archimedes sphere that he'd installed on the console, his newest and most dangerous toy. Every time Hazel looked at the thing, her mouth went dry. She worried that Leo would turn the wrong combination on the sphere and accidentally eject them all from the deck, or blow up the ship, or turn the Argo 2 into a giant toaster. Fortunately, they got lucky. The sphere grew a camera lens and projected a 3D image of the Apennine Mountains above the console. I don't know. Leo examined the hologram. I don't see any good passes to the north, but I like that idea better than backtracking south. I'm done with Rome. No one argued with that. Rome had not been a good experience. Whatever we do, Nico said, we have to hurry. Every day that Annabeth and Percy are in Tartarus. He didn't need to finish. They had to hope Percy and Annabeth could survive long enough to find the Tartarus side of the Doors of Death. Then, assuming the Argo II could reach the House of Hades, they might be able to open the doors on the mortal side, save their friends, and seal the entrance, stopping Gia's forces from being reincarnated in the mortal world over and over. Yes, nothing could go wrong with that plan. Nico scowled at the Italian countryside below them. Maybe we should wake the others. This decision affects us all. No, Hazel said. We can find a solution. She wasn't sure why she felt so strongly about it, but since leaving Rome, the crew had started to lose its cohesion. They'd been learning to work as a team, then bam their two most important members fell into Tartarus. Percy had been their backbone. He'd given them confidence as they sailed across the Atlantic and into the Mediterranean. As for Annabeth, she'd been the de facto leader of the quest. She'd recovered the Athena Parthenos single-handedly. She was the smartest of the seven, the one with the answers. If Hazel woke up the rest of the crew every time they had a problem, they'd just start arguing again feeling more and more hopeless. She had to make Percy and Annabeth proud of her. She had to take the initiative. She couldn't believe her only role in this quest would be what Nico had warned her of, removing the obstacle waiting for them in the House of Hades. She pushed the thought aside. We need some creative thinking, she said. Another way to cross those mountains, or a way to hide ourselves from the Numina. Nico sighed. If I was on my own, I could shadow travel. But that won't work for an entire ship. And honestly, I'm not sure I have the strength to even transport myself anymore. I could maybe rig some kind of camouflage, Leo said. Like a smokescreen to hide us in the clouds? He didn't sound very enthusiastic. Hazel stared down at the rolling farmland, 
thinking about what lay beneath it. The realm of her father, lord of the underworld. She'd only met Pluto once, and she hadn't even realized who he was. She certainly had never expected help from him. Not when she was alive the first time, not during her time as a spirit in the underworld, not since Nico had brought her back to the world of the living. Her dad's servant, Thanatos, god of death, had suggested that Pluto might be doing Hazel a favor by ignoring her. After all, she wasn't supposed to be alive. If Pluto took notice of her, he might have to return her to the land of the dead. Which meant calling on Pluto would be a very bad idea. And yet... Please, Dad. She found herself praying. I have to find a way to your temple in Greece, the House of Hades. If you're down there, show me what to do. At the edge of the horizon, a flicker of movement caught her eye. Something small and beige, racing across the fields at incredible speed, leaving a vapor trail like a plane's. Hazel couldn't believe it. She didn't dare hope. But it had to be. Orion. What? Nico asked. Leo let out a happy whoop as the dust cloud got closer. It's her horse, man. You missed that whole part. We haven't seen him since Kansas. Hazel laughed. The first time she'd laughed in days. It felt so good to see her old friend. About a mile to the north, the small beige dot circled a hill and stopped at the summit. He was difficult to make out, but when the horse reared and whinnied, the sound carried all the way to the Argo too. Hazel had no doubt. It was Orion. We have to meet him, she said. He's here to help. Yeah, okay. Leo scratched his head. But, uh, we talked about not landing the ship on the ground anymore, remember? You know, with Gia wanting to destroy us and all? Just get me close, and I'll use the rope ladder. Hazel's heart was pounding. I think Orion wants to tell me something. Chapter 2 Hazel Hazel had never felt so happy. Well, except for maybe on the night of the victory feast at Camp Jupiter, when she'd kissed Frank for the first time. But this was a close second. As soon as she reached the ground, she ran to Orion and threw her arms around his neck. I missed you. She pressed her face into the horse's warm flank, which smelled of sea salt and apples. Where have you been? Orion nickered. Hazel wished she could speak hoarse like Percy could, but she got the general idea. Orion sounded impatient, as if saying, No time for sentiment, girl. Come on. You want me to go with you? She guessed. Orion bobbed his head, trotting in place. His dark brown eyes gleamed with urgency. Hazel still couldn't believe he was actually here. He could run across any surface, even the sea. But she'd been afraid he wouldn't follow them into the ancient lands. The Mediterranean was too dangerous for demigods and their allies. He wouldn't have come unless Hazel was in dire need, and he seemed so agitated. 
Anything that could make a fearless horse skittish should have terrified Hazel. Instead, she felt elated. She was so tired of being seasick and airsick. Aboard the Argo, too, she felt about as useful as a box of ballast. She was glad to be back on solid ground, even if it was Gia's territory. She was ready to ride. Hazel! Nico called down from the ship. What's going on? It's fine. She crouched down and summoned a gold nugget from the earth. She was getting better at controlling her power. Precious stones hardly ever popped up around her by accident anymore, and pulling gold from the ground was easy. She fed Orion the nugget, his favorite snack. Then she smiled up at Leo and Nico who were watching her from the top of the ladder a hundred feet above. Orion wants to take me somewhere. The boys exchanged nervous looks. Uh... Leo pointed north. Please tell me he's not taking you into that. Hazel had been so focused on Orion she hadn't noticed the disturbance. A mile away, on the crest of the next hill... A storm had gathered over some old stone ruins, maybe the remains of a Roman temple or a fortress. A funnel cloud snaked its way down toward the hill like an inky black finger. Hazel's mouth tasted like blood. She looked at Orion. You want to go there? Orion whinnied, as if to say, Uh, duh. Well, Hazel had asked for help. Was this her dad's answer? She hoped so, but she sensed something besides Pluto at work in that storm. Something dark, powerful, and not necessarily friendly. Still, this was her chance to help her friends, to lead instead of follow. She tightened the straps of her imperial gold cavalry sword and climbed onto Orion's back. I'll be okay, she called up to Nico and Leo. Stay put and wait for me. Wait for how long? Nico asked. What if you don't come back? Don't worry, I will, she promised, hoping it was true. She spurred Orion, and they shot across the countryside, heading straight for the growing tornado. Chapter 3. Hazel The storm swallowed the hill in a swirling cone of black vapor. Orion charged straight into it. Hazel found herself at the summit, but it felt like a different dimension. The world lost its color. The walls of the storm encircled the hill in murky black. The sky churned gray. The crumbling ruins were bleached so white they almost glowed. Even Orion had turned from caramel brown to a dark shade of ash. In the eye of the tempest, the air was still. Hazel's skin tingled coolly, as if she'd been rubbed with alcohol. In front of her, an arched gateway led through mossy walls into some sort of enclosure. Hazel couldn't see much through the gloom, but she felt a presence within as if she were a chunk of iron close to a large magnet. 
Its pull was irresistible, dragging her forward. Yet she hesitated. She reined in Orion, and he clopped impatiently, the ground crackling under his hooves. Wherever he stepped, the grass, dirt, and stones turned white like frost. Hazel remembered the Hubbard Glacier in Alaska, how the surface had cracked under their feet. She remembered the floor of that horrible cavern in Rome crumbling to dust, plunging Percy and Annabeth into Tartarus. She hoped this black-and-white hilltop wouldn't dissolve under her, but she decided it was best to keep moving. Let's go then, boy. Her voice sounded muffled, as if she were speaking into a pillow. Orion trotted through the stone archway. Ruined walls bordered a square courtyard about the size of a tennis court. Three other gateways, one in the middle of each wall, led north, east, and west. In the center of the yard, two cobblestone paths intersected, making a cross. Mist hung in the air. Hazy shreds of white that coiled and undulated as if they were alive. Not mist, Hazel realized. The mist. All her life, she'd heard about the mist. The supernatural veil that obscured the world of myth from the sight of mortals. It could deceive humans, even demigods, into seeing monsters as harmless animals or gods as regular people. Hazel had never thought of it as actual smoke, but as she watched it curling around Orion's legs, floating through the broken arches of the ruined courtyard, the hairs stood up on her arms. Somehow she knew this white stuff was pure magic. In the distance, a dog howled. Orion wasn't usually scared of anything, but he reared, puffing nervously. It's okay, Hazel stroked his neck. We're in this together. I'm going to get down, all right? She slid off Orion's back. Instantly, he turned and ran. Orion, wait! But he'd already disappeared the way he'd come. So much for being in this together. Another howl cut through the air. Closer this time. Hazel stepped toward the center of the courtyard. The mist clung to her like freezer fog. Hello? She called. Hello, a voice answered. The pale figure of a woman appeared at the northern gateway. No, wait. She stood at the eastern entrance. No, the western. Three smoky images of the same woman moved in unison toward the center of the ruins. Her form was blurred, made from mist, and she was trailed by two smaller wisps of smoke darting at her heels like animals. Some sort of pets? She reached the center of the courtyard and her three forms merged into one. She solidified into a young woman in a dark, sleeveless gown. Her golden hair was gathered into a high-set ponytail, ancient Greek style. Her dress was so silky it seemed to ripple, as if the cloth were ink spilling off her shoulders. She looked no more than twenty, but Hazel knew that meant nothing. Hazel Levesque, 
said the woman. She was beautiful, but deathly pale. Once, back in New Orleans, Hazel had been forced to attend a wake for a dead classmate. She remembered the lifeless body of the young girl in the open casket. Her face had been made up prettily, as if she were resting, which Hazel had found terrifying. This woman reminded Hazel of that girl, except the woman's eyes were open and completely black. When she tilted her head, she seemed to break into three different people again, misty after-images blurring together, like a photograph of someone moving too fast to capture. Who are you? Hazel's fingers twitched at the hilt of her sword. I mean, which goddess? Hazel was sure of that much. This woman radiated power. Everything around them, the swirling mist, the monochromatic storm, the eerie glow of the ruins, was because of her presence. Ah, the woman nodded. Let me give you some light. She raised her hands. Suddenly, she was holding two old-fashioned reed torches, guttering with fire. The mist receded to the edges of the courtyard. At the woman's sandaled feet, the two wispy animals took on solid form. One was a black Labrador retriever. The other was a long, gray, furry rodent with a white mask around its face. A weasel, maybe? The woman smiled serenely. I am Hecate, she said. Goddess of magic. We have much to discuss if you're to live through tonight. Chapter 4 Hazel Hazel wanted to run, but her feet seemed stuck to the white glazed ground. On either side of the crossroads, two dark metal torch stands erupted from the dirt like plant stalks. Hecate fixed her torches in them, then walked a slow circle around Hazel, regarding her as if they were partners in some eerie dance. The black dog and the weasel followed in her wake. You are like your mother, Hecate decided. Hazel's throat constricted. You knew her? Of course. Marie was a fortune teller. She dealt in charms and curses and grigri. I am the goddess of magic. Those pure black eyes seemed to pull at Hazel, as if trying to extract her soul. During her first lifetime in New Orleans, Hazel had been tormented by the kids at St. Agnes School because of her mother. They called Marie Levesque a witch. The nuns muttered that Hazel's mother was trading with the devil. If the nuns were scared of my mom, Hazel wondered, what would they make of this goddess? Many fear me, Hecate said, as if reading her thoughts. But magic is neither good nor evil. It is a tool, like a knife. Is a knife evil? Only if the wielder is evil. My... my mother, Hazel stammered. 
She didn't believe in magic. Not really. She was just faking it for the money. The weasel chittered and bared its teeth. Then it made a squeaking sound from its back end. Under other circumstances, a weasel passing gas might have been funny, but Hazel didn't laugh. The rodent's red eyes glared at her balefully, like tiny coals. Peace, Gale, said Hecate. She gave Hazel an apologetic shrug. Gale does not like hearing about non-believers and con artists. She herself was once a witch, you see. Your weasel was a witch? She's a polecat, actually, Hecate said. But yes, Gale was once a disagreeable human witch. She had terrible personal hygiene, plus extreme, uh, digestive issues. Hecate waved her hand in front of her nose. It gave my other followers a bad name. Okay. Hazel tried not to look at the weasel. She really didn't want to know about the rodent's intestinal problems. At any rate, Hecate said, I turned her into a polecat. She's much better as a polecat. Hazel swallowed. She looked at the black dog, which was affectionately nuzzling the goddess's hand. And your Labrador? Oh, she's Hecuba, the former queen of Troy, Hecate said, as if that should be obvious. The dog grunted. You're right, Hecuba, the goddess said. We don't have time for long introductions. The point is, Hazel Levesque, your mother may have claimed not to believe, but she had true magic. Eventually, she realized this. When she searched for a spell to summon the god Pluto, I helped her find it. You? Yes. Hecate continued circling Hazel. I saw potential in your mother. I see even more potential in you. Hazel's head spun. She remembered her mother's confession just before she had died, how she'd summoned Pluto, how the god had fallen in love with her, and how, because of her greedy wish, her daughter Hazel had been born with a curse. Hazel could summon riches from the earth, but anyone who used them would suffer and die. Now this goddess was saying that she had made all that happen, my mother suffered because of that magic. My whole life. Your life wouldn't have happened without me, Hecate said flatly. I have no time for your anger, neither do you. Without my help, you will die. The black dog snarled. The polecat snapped its teeth and passed gas. Hazel felt like her lungs were filling with hot sand. What kind of help? she demanded. Hecate raised her pale arms. The three gateways she'd come from, north, east, and west, began to swirl with mist. A flurry of black and white images glowed and flickered, 
like the old silent movies that still played in theaters sometimes when Hazel was small. In the western doorway, Roman and Greek demigods in full armor fought one another on a hillside under a large pine tree. The grass was strewn with the wounded and the dying. Hazel saw herself riding Orion, charging through the melee and shouting, trying to stop the violence. In the gateway to the east, Hazel saw the Argo II plunging through the sky above the Apennines. Its rigging was in flames. A boulder smashed into the quarterdeck. Another punched through the hull. The ship burst like a rotten pumpkin, and the engine exploded. The images in the northern doorway were even worse. Hazel saw Leo, unconscious or dead, falling through the clouds. She saw Frank staggering alone down a dark tunnel, clutching his arm, his shirt soaked in blood. And Hazel saw herself in a vast cavern, filled with strands of light like a luminous web. She was struggling to break through while, in the distance, Percy and Annabeth lay sprawled and unmoving at the foot of two black and silver metal doors. Choices, said Hecate. You stand at the crossroads, Hazel Levesque, and I am the goddess of crossroads. The ground rumbled at Hazel's feet. She looked down and saw the glint of silver coins. Thousands of old Roman denarii breaking the surface all around her, as if the entire hilltop was coming to a boil. She'd been so agitated by the visions in the doorways that she must have summoned every bit of silver in the surrounding countryside. The past is close to the surface in this place, Hecate said. In ancient times, two great Roman roads met here. News was exchanged, markets were held, friends met, and enemies fought. Entire armies had to choose a direction. Crossroads are always places of decision. Like, like Janus. Hazel remembered the shrine of Janus on Temple Hill back at Camp Jupiter. Demigods would go there to make decisions. They would flip a coin, heads or tails, and hope the two-faced god would guide them well. Hazel had always hated that place. She'd never understood why her friends were so willing to let a god take away their responsibility for choosing. After all Hazel had been through, she trusted the wisdom of the gods about as much as she trusted a New Orleans slot machine. The goddess of magic made a disgusted hiss. Janus in his doorways. He would have you believe that all choices are black or white, yes or no, in or out. In fact, it's not that simple. Whenever you reach the crossroads, there are always at least three ways to go. Four, if you count going backward. You are at such a crossing now, Hazel. Hazel looked again at each swirling gateway. A demigod war, the destruction of the Argo II, disaster for herself, and her friends. All the choices are bad. All choices have risks, 
the goddess corrected. But what is your goal? My goal? Hazel waved helplessly at the doorways. None of these. The dog Hecuba snarled. Gale, the polecat, skittered around the goddess's feet, farting and gnashing her teeth. You could go backward, Hecate suggested. Retrace your steps to Rome. But Gia's forces are expecting that. None of you will survive. So, what are you saying? Hecate stepped to the nearest torch. She scooped a handful of fire and sculpted the flames until she was holding a miniature relief map of Italy. You could go west. Hecate let her finger drift away from her fiery map. Go back to America with your prize, the Athena Parthenos. Your comrades back home, Greek and Roman, are on the brink of war. Leave now, and you might save many lives. Might, Hazel repeated. But Gia is supposed to wake in Greece. That's where the giants are gathering. True. Gia has set the date of August 1st, the Feast of Spes, goddess of hope, for her rise to power. By waking on the Day of Hope, she intends to destroy all hope forever. Even if you reached Greece by then, could you stop her? I do not know. Hecate traced her finger along the tops of the fiery Apennines. You could go east across the mountains, but Gia will do anything to stop you from crossing Italy. She has raised her mountain gods against you. We noticed, Hazel said. Any attempt to cross the Apennines will mean the destruction of your ship. Ironically, this might be the safest option for your crew. I foresee that all of you would survive the explosion. It is possible, though unlikely, you could still reach Epirus and close the doors of death. You might find Gia and prevent her rise. But by then, both demigod camps would be destroyed. You would have no home to return to. Hecate smiled. More likely, the destruction of your ship would strand you in the mountains. It would mean the end of your quest. But it would spare you and your friends much pain and suffering in the days to come. The war with the giants would have to be won or lost without you. Won or lost without us? A small, guilty part of Hazel found that appealing. She'd been wishing for the chance to be a normal girl. She didn't want any more pain or suffering for herself and her friends. They had already been through so much. She looked behind Hecate at the middle gateway. She saw Percy and Annabeth sprawled helplessly before those black and silver doors. A massive, dark shape, vaguely humanoid, now loomed over them. Its foot raised as if to crush Percy. What about them? Hazel asked her voice ragged. Percy and Annabeth. Hecate shrugged. 
west, east, or south. They die. Not an option, Hazel said. Then you have only one path, though it is the most dangerous. Hecate's finger crossed her miniature apennines, leaving a glowing white line in the red flames. There is a secret pass here in the north, a place where I hold sway, where Hannibal once crossed when he marched against Rome. The goddess made a wide loop. To the top of Italy, then east to the sea, then down along the western coast of Greece. Once through the pass, you would travel north to Bologna, and then to Venice. From there, sail the Adriatic to your goal here, Epirus in Greece. Hazel didn't know much about geography. She had no idea what the Adriatic Sea was like. She'd never heard of Bologna, and all she knew about Venice was vague stories about canals and gondolas. But one thing was obvious. That's so far out of the way. Which is why Gia will not expect you to take this route, Hecate said. I can obscure your progress somewhat, but the success of your journey will depend on you, Hazel Levesque. You must learn to use the mist. Me? Hazel's heart felt like it was tumbling down her ribcage. Use the mist how? Hecate extinguished her map of Italy. She flicked her hand at the black dog Hecuba. Mist collected around the Labrador until she was completely hidden in a cocoon of white. The fog cleared with an audible poof. Where the dog had stood was a disgruntled-looking black kitten with golden eyes. Meow, it complained. I am the goddess of the mist, Hecate explained. I am responsible for keeping the veil that separates the world of the gods from the world of mortals. My children learn to use the mist to their advantage create illusions or influence the minds of mortals. Other demigods can do this as well. And so must you, Hazel, if you are to help your friends. But... Hazel looked at the cat. She knew it was actually Hecuba, the black Labrador, but she couldn't convince herself. The cat seemed so real. I can't do that. Your mother had the talent, Hecate said. You have even more. As a child of Pluto who has returned from the dead, you understand the veil between worlds better than most. You can control the mist. If you do not, well, your brother Nico has already warned you. The spirits have whispered to him, told him of your future. When you reach the house of Hades, you will meet a formidable enemy. She cannot be overcome by strength or sword. You alone can defeat her, and you will require magic. Hazel's legs felt wobbly. She remembered Nico's grim expression, his fingers digging into her arm. You can't tell the others, 
Not yet. Their courage is already stretched to the limit. Who? Hazel croaked. Who is this enemy? I will not speak her name, Hecate said. That would alert her to your presence before you are ready to face her. Go north, Hazel. As you travel, practice summoning the mist. When you arrive in Bologna, seek out the two dwarfs. They will lead you to a treasure that may help you survive in the house of Hades. I don't understand. Meow. The kitten complained. Yes, yes, Hecuba. The goddess flicked her hand again, and the cat disappeared. The black Labrador was back in its place. You will understand, Hazel, the goddess promised. From time to time, I will send Gale to check on your progress. The polecat hissed, its beady red eyes full of malice. Wonderful, Hazel muttered. Before you reach Epirus, you must be prepared, Hecate said. If you succeed, then perhaps we will meet again for the final battle. A final battle, Hazel thought. Oh, joy. Hazel wondered if she could prevent the revelations she saw in the mist. Leo falling through the sky, Frank stumbling through the dark, alone and gravely wounded. Percy and Annabeth at the mercy of a dark giant. She hated the gods' riddles and their unclear advice. She was starting to despise Crossroads. Why are you helping me? Hazel demanded. At Camp Jupiter, they said you sided with the Titans in the last war. Hecate's dark eyes glinted. Because I am a Titan daughter of Perses and Asteria. Long before the Olympians came to power, I ruled the mist. Despite this, in the first Titan War millennia ago, I sided with Zeus against Kronos. I was not blind to Kronos's cruelty. I hoped Zeus would prove a better king. She made a small, bitter laugh. When Demeter lost her daughter Persephone, kidnapped by your father, I guided Demeter through the darkest night with my torches, helping her search. And when the giants rose the first time, I again sided with the gods. I fought my arch-enemy, Clytius, made by Gia to absorb and defeat all my magic. Clytius. Hazel had never heard that name. Clatius. But saying it made her limbs feel heavy. She glanced at the images in the northern doorway, the massive dark shape looming over Percy and Annabeth. Is he the threat in the house of Hades? Oh, he waits for you there, Hecate said. But first, you must defeat the witch. Unless you manage that... She snapped her fingers, and all of the gateways turned dark. The mist dissolved, the images gone. We all face choices, the goddess said. When Kronos arose the second time, 
I made a mistake. I supported him. I had grown tired of being ignored by the so-called major gods. Despite my years of faithful service, they mistrusted me, refused me a seat in their hall. The polecat Gale chittered angrily. It does not matter anymore, the goddess sighed. I have made peace again with Olympus. Even now, when they are laid low, their Greek and Roman personas fighting each other, I will help them, Greek or Roman. I have always been only Hecate. I will assist you against the giants if you prove yourself worthy. So now it is your choice, Hazel Levesque. Will you trust me, or will you shun me, as the Olympian gods have done too often? Blood roared in Hazel's ears. Could she trust this dark goddess who'd given her mother the magic that ruined her life? Sorry, no. She didn't much like Hecate's dog or her gassy polecat either. But she also knew she couldn't let Percy and Annabeth die. I'll go north, she said. We'll take your secret pass through the mountains. Hecate nodded, the slightest hint of satisfaction in her face. You have chosen well, though the path will not be easy. Many monsters will rise against you. Even some of my own servants have sided with Chia, hoping to destroy your mortal world. The goddess took her double torches from their stands. Prepare yourself, daughter of Pluto. If you succeed against the witch, we will meet again. I'll succeed, Hazel promised. And Hecate, I'm not choosing one of your paths. I'm making my own. The goddess arched her eyebrows. Her polecat writhed, and her dog snarled. We're going to find a way to stop Gia, Hazel said. We're going to rescue our friends from Tartarus. We're going to keep the crew and the ship together. And we're going to stop Camp Jupiter and Camp Half Blood from going to war. We're going to do it all. The storm howled, the black walls of the funnel clouds swirling faster. Interesting, Hecate said. As if Hazel were an unexpected result in a science experiment, that would be magic worth seeing. A wave of darkness blotted out the world. When Hazel's sight returned, the storm, the goddess, and her minions were gone. Hazel stood on the hillside in the morning sunlight, alone in the ruins, except for Orion, who paced next to her, nickering impatiently. I agree," Hazel told the horse. "Let's get out of here." What happened? Leo asked as Hazel climbed aboard the Argo too. Hazel's hands still shook from her talk with the goddess. She glanced over the rail and saw the dust of Orion's wake stretching across the hills of Italy. She had hoped her friend would stay, but. Couldn't blame him for wanting to get away from this place as fast as possible. The countryside sparkled as the summer sun hit the morning dew. 
On the hill, the old ruins stood white and silent. No sign of ancient paths, or goddesses, or farting weasels. Hazel? Nico asked. Her knees buckled. Nico and Leo grabbed her arms and helped her to the steps of the foredeck. She felt embarrassed, collapsing like some fairy tale damsel, but her energy was gone. The memory of those glowing scenes at the crossroads filled her with dread. I met Hecate, she managed. She didn't tell them everything. She remembered what Nico had said. Their courage is already stretched to the limits. But she told them about the secret northern pass through the mountains and the detour Hecate described that could take them to Epirus. When she was done, Nico took her hand. His eyes were full of concern. Hazel, you met Hecate at a crossroads. That's... That's something many demigods don't survive. And the ones who do survive are never the same. Are you sure you're... I'm fine, she insisted. But she knew she wasn't. She remembered how bold and angry she'd felt, telling the goddess she'd find her own path and succeed at everything. Now her boast seemed ridiculous. Her courage had abandoned her. What if Hecate is tricking us? Leo asked. This route could be a trap. Hazel shook her head. If it was a trap, I think Hecate would have made the northern route sound tempting. Believe me, she didn't. Leo pulled a calculator out of his tool belt and punched in some numbers. That's something like 300 miles out of our way to get to Venice. Then we'd have to backtrack down the Adriatic. And you said something about baloney dwarfs? Dwarfs in Bologna, Hazel said. I guess Bologna is a city, but why we have to find dwarfs there, I have no idea. Some sort of treasure to help us with the quest. Huh, Leo said. I mean, I'm all about treasure, but... It's our best option. Nico helped Hazel to her feet. We have to make up for lost time. Travel as fast as we can. Percy's and Annabeth's lives might depend on it. Fast? Leo grinned. I can do fast. He hurried to the console and started flipping switches. Nico took Hazel's arm and guided her out of earshot. What else did Hecate say? Anything about... I can't. Hazel cut him off. The images she'd seen had almost overwhelmed her. Percy and Annabeth, helpless at the feet of those black metal doors. The dark giant looming over them. Hazel herself, trapped in a glowing maze of light, unable to help. You must defeat the witch, Hecate had said. You alone can defeat her. Unless you manage that. The end. Hazel thought. All gateways closed. All hope extinguished. Nico had warned her. He'd communed with the dead, 
heard them whispering hints about their future. Two children of the underworld would enter the house of Hades. They would face an impossible foe. Only one of them would make it to the doors of death. Hazel couldn't meet her brother's eyes. I'll tell you later, she promised, trying to keep her voice from trembling. Right now, we should rest while we can. Tonight, we cross the Apennines. Chapter 5 Annabeth Nine Days As she fell, Annabeth thought about Hesiod, the old Greek poet who'd speculated it would take nine days to fall from Earth to Tartarus. She hoped Hesiod was wrong. She'd lost track of how long Percy and she had been falling. Hours? A day? It felt like an eternity. They'd been holding hands ever since they dropped into the chasm. Now Percy pulled her close, hugging her tight as they tumbled through absolute darkness. Wind whistled in Annabeth's ears. The air grew hotter and damper, as if they were plummeting into the throat of a massive dragon. Her recently broken ankle throbbed, though she couldn't tell if it was still wrapped in spiderwebs. That cursed monster, Arachne. Despite having been trapped in her own webbing, smashed by a car, and plunged into Tartarus, the spider lady had gotten her revenge. Somehow, her silk had entangled Annabeth's leg and dragged her over the side of the pit, with Percy in tow. Annabeth couldn't imagine that Arachne was still alive, somewhere below them in the darkness. She didn't want to meet that monster again when they reached the bottom. On the bright side, assuming there was a bottom, Annabeth and Percy would probably be flattened on impact so giant spiders were the least of their worries. She wrapped her arms around Percy and tried not to sob. She'd never expected her life to be easy. Most demigods died young at the hands of terrible monsters. That's the way it had been since ancient times. The Greeks invented tragedy. They knew the greatest heroes didn't get happy endings. Still, this wasn't fair. She'd gone through so much to retrieve that statue of Athena. Just when she'd succeeded, when things had been looking up and she'd been reunited with Percy, they had plunged to their deaths. Even the gods couldn't devise a fate so twisted. But Gia wasn't like other gods. The Earth Mother was older, more vicious, more bloodthirsty. Annabeth could imagine her laughing as they fell into the depths. Annabeth pressed her lips to Percy's ear. I love you. She wasn't sure he could hear her, but if they died, she wanted those to be her last words. She tried desperately to think of a plan to save them. She was a daughter of Athena. She'd proven herself in the tunnels under Rome, beaten a whole series of challenges with only her wits. But she couldn't think of any way to reverse or even slow their fall. Neither of them had the power to fly. Not like Jason, who could control the wind, or Frank, who could turn into a winged animal. 
if they reached the bottom at terminal velocity, well, she knew enough science to know it would be terminal. She was seriously wondering whether they could fashion a parachute out of their shirts. That's how desperate she was, when something about their surroundings changed. The darkness took on a gray-red tinge. She realized she could see Percy's hair as she hugged him. The whistling in her ears turned into more of a roar. The air became intolerably hot, permeated with a smell like rotten eggs. Suddenly, the chute they'd been falling through opened into a vast cavern. Maybe half a mile below them, Annabeth could see the bottom. For a moment, she was too stunned to think properly. The entire island of Manhattan could have fit inside this cavern, and she couldn't even see its full extent. Red clouds hung in the air like vaporized blood. The landscape, at least what she could see of it, was rocky black plains, punctuated by jagged mountains and fiery chasms. To Annabeth's left, the ground dropped off in a series of cliffs, like colossal steps leading deeper into the abyss. The stench of sulfur made it hard to concentrate, but she focused on the ground directly below them and saw a ribbon of glittering black liquid. A river. Percy! She yelled in his ear. Water! She gestured frantically. Percy's face was hard to read in the dim red light. He looked shell-shocked and terrified, but he nodded as if he understood. Percy could control water, assuming that was water below them. He might be able to cushion their fall somehow. Of course, Annabeth had heard horrible stories about the rivers of the underworld. They could take away your memories or burn your body and soul to ashes. But she decided not to think about that. This was their only chance. The river hurtled toward them. At the last second, Percy yelled defiantly. The water erupted in a massive geyser and swallowed them whole. Chapter 6 Annabeth The impact didn't kill her, but the cold nearly did. Freezing water shocked the air right out of her lungs. Her limbs turned rigid, and she lost her grip on Percy. She began to sink. Strange wailing sounds filled her ears. Millions of heartbroken voices as if the river were made of distilled sadness. The voices were worse than the cold. They weighed her down and made her numb. What's the point of struggling? They told her. You're dead anyway. You'll never leave this place. She could sink to the bottom and drown. Let the river carry her body away. That would be easier. She could just close her eyes. Percy gripped her hand and jolted her back to reality. She couldn't see him in the murky water, but suddenly she didn't want to die. Together they kicked upward and broke the surface. Annabeth gasped, grateful for the air, no matter how sulfurous, 
The water swirled around them, and she realized Percy was creating a whirlpool to buoy them up. Though she couldn't make out their surroundings, she knew this was a river. Rivers had shores. Land, she croaked. Go sideways. Percy looked near dead with exhaustion. Usually water reinvigorated him, but not this water. Controlling it must have taken every bit of his strength. The whirlpool began to dissipate. Annabeth hooked one arm around his waist and struggled across the current. The river worked against her. Thousands of weeping voices whispering in her ears, getting inside her brain. Life is despair, they said. Everything is pointless, and then you die. Pointless, Percy murmured. His teeth chattered from the cold. He stopped swimming and began to sink. Percy, she shrieked. The river is messing with your mind. It's the Cocytus, the river of lamentation. It's made of pure misery. Misery, he agreed. Fight it. She kicked and struggled, trying to keep both of them afloat. Another cosmic joke for Gia to laugh at. Annabeth dies trying to keep her boyfriend, the son of Poseidon, from drowning. Not going to happen, you hag, Annabeth thought. She hugged Percy tighter and kissed him. Tell me about New Rome, she demanded. What were your plans for us? New Rome, for us. Yes, yeah, seaweed brain. You said we could have a future there. Tell me. Annabeth had never wanted to leave Camp Half-Blood. It was the only real home she'd ever known. But days ago, on the Argo too, Percy had told her that he imagined a future for the two of them among the Roman demigods. In their city of New Rome, veterans of the Legion could settle down safely, go to college, get married, and even have kids. Architecture, Percy murmured. The fog started to clear from his eyes. Thought you'd like the houses, the parks. There's one street with all these cool fountains. Annabeth started making progress against the current. Her limbs felt like bags of wet sand. But Percy was helping her now. She could see the dark line of the shore about a stone's throw away. College, she gasped. Could we go there together? Y yeah, he agreed a little more confidently. What would you study, Percy? Dunno, he admitted. Marine science, she suggested. Oceanography? Surfing? he asked. She laughed, and the sound sent a shockwave through the water. The wailing faded to background noise. Annabeth wondered if anyone had ever laughed in Tartarus before. Just a pure, simple laugh of pleasure. She doubted it. She used the last of her strength to reach the riverbank. Her feet dug into the sandy bottom. She and Percy hauled themselves ashore, shivering and gasping, and collapsed on the dark sand.
Annabeth wanted to curl up next to Percy and go to sleep. She wanted to shut her eyes, hope all of this was just a bad dream, and wake up to find herself back on the Argo too, safe with her friends. Well, as safe as a demigod can ever be. But no. They were really in Tartarus. At their feet, the river Cocytus roared past, a flood of liquid wretchedness. The sulfurous air stung Annabeth's lungs and prickled her skin. When she looked at her arms, she saw they were already covered with an angry rash. She tried to sit up and gasped in pain. The beach wasn't sand. They were sitting on a field of jagged black glass chips, some of which were now embedded in Annabeth's palms. So the air was acid, the water was misery, the ground was broken glass. Everything here was designed to hurt and kill. Annabeth took a rattling breath and wondered if the voices in the Cocytus were right. Maybe fighting for survival was pointless. They would be dead within the hour. Next to her, Percy coughed. This place smells like my ex-stepfather. Annabeth managed a weak smile. She'd never met Smelly Gabe, but she'd heard enough stories. She loved Percy for trying to lift her spirits. If she'd fallen into Tartarus by herself, Annabeth thought, she would have been doomed. After all she'd been through beneath Rome, finding the Athena Parthenos, this was simply too much. She would have curled up and cried until she became another ghost, melting into the Cocytus. But she wasn't alone. She had Percy, and that meant she couldn't give up. She forced herself to take stock. Her foot was still wrapped in its makeshift cast of board and bubble wrap, still tangled in cobwebs. But when she moved it, it didn't hurt. The ambrosia she'd eaten in the tunnels under Rome must have finally mended her bones. Her backpack was gone, lost during the fall, or maybe washed away in the river. She hated losing Daedalus's laptop, with all its fantastic programs and data. But she had worse problems. Her celestial bronze dagger was missing, the weapon she'd carried since she was seven years old. The realization almost broke her, but she couldn't let herself dwell on it. Time to grieve later. What else did they have? No food, no water, basically no supplies at all. Yep, off to a promising start. Annabeth glanced at Percy. He looked pretty bad. His dark hair was plastered across his forehead, his t-shirt ripped to shreds. His fingers were scraped raw from holding on to that ledge before they fell. Most worrisome of all, he was shivering, and his lips were blue. We should keep moving or we'll get hypothermia, Annabeth said. Can you stand? He nodded. They both struggled to their feet. Annabeth put her arm around his waist, though she wasn't sure who was supporting whom. She scanned their surroundings. Above, she saw no sign of the tunnel they'd fallen down. 
she couldn't even see the cavern roof. Just blood-colored clouds floating in the hazy gray air. It was like staring through a thin mix of tomato soup and cement. The black glass beach stretched inland about fifty yards, then dropped off the edge of a cliff. From where she stood, Annabeth couldn't see what was below, but the edge flickered with red light as if illuminated by huge fires. A distant memory tugged at her. Something about Tartarus and fire. Before she could think too much about it, Percy inhaled sharply. Look, he pointed downstream. A hundred feet away, a familiar-looking baby blue Italian car had crashed headfirst into the sand. It looked just like the Fiat that had smashed into Arachne and sent her plummeting into the pit. Annabeth hoped she was wrong, but how many Italian sports cars could there be in Tartarus? Part of her didn't want to go anywhere near it, but she had to find out. She gripped Percy's hand, and they stumbled toward the wreckage. One of the car's tires had come off and was floating in a backwater eddy of the Cocytus. The Fiat's windows had shattered, sending brighter glass like frosting across the dark beach. Under the crushed hood lay the tattered, glistening remains of a giant silk cocoon, the trap that Annabeth had tricked Arachne into weaving. It was unmistakably empty. Slash marks in the sand made a trail downriver as if something heavy, with multiple legs, had scuttled into the darkness. She's alive! Annabeth was so horrified, so outraged by the unfairness of it all, she had to suppress the urge to throw up. It's Tartarus, Percy said. Monster home court. Down here, maybe they can't be killed. He gave Annabeth an embarrassed look as if realizing he wasn't helping team morale. Or maybe she's badly wounded and she crawled away to die. Let's go with that, Annabeth agreed. Percy was still shivering. Annabeth wasn't feeling any warmer either, despite the hot, sticky air. The glass cuts on her hands were still bleeding, which was unusual for her. Normally, she healed fast. Her breathing got more and more labored. This place is killing us, she said. I mean, it's literally going to kill us, unless... Tartarus. Fire. That distant memory came into focus. She gazed inland toward the cliff, illuminated by flames from below. It was an absolutely crazy idea, but it might be their only chance. Unless what? Percy prompted. You've got a brilliant plan, haven't you? It's a plan, Annabeth murmured. I don't know about brilliant. We need to find the River of Fire. Chapter 7 Annabeth When they reached the ledge, Annabeth was sure she'd sign their death warrants. The cliff dropped more than 80 feet. At the bottom stretched a nightmarish version of the Grand Canyon. 
a river of fire cutting a path through a jagged obsidian crevasse, the glowing red current casting horrible shadows across the cliff faces. Even from the top of the canyon, the heat was intense. The chill of the river Cocytus hadn't left Annabeth's bones, but now her face felt raw and sunburned. Every breath took more effort, as if her chest was filled with styrofoam peanuts. The cuts on her hands bled more rather than less. Annabeth's foot, which had been almost healed, seemed to be re-injuring itself. She'd taken off her makeshift cast, but now she regretted it. Each step made her wince. Assuming they could make it down to the fiery river, which she doubted, her plan seemed certifiably insane. Uh... Percy examined the cliff. He pointed to a tiny fissure running diagonally from the edge to the bottom. We can try that ledge there. Might be able to climb down. He didn't say they'd be crazy to try. He managed to sound hopeful. Annabeth was grateful for that, but she also worried that she was leading him to his doom. Of course, if they stayed here, they would die anyway. Blisters had started to form on their arms from exposure to the Tartarus air. The whole environment was about as healthy as a nuclear blast zone. Percy went first. The ledge was barely wide enough to allow a toehold. Their hands clawed for any crack in the glassy rock. Every time Annabeth put pressure on her bad foot, she wanted to yelp. She'd ripped off the sleeves of her T-shirt and used the cloth to wrap her bloody palms, but her fingers were still slippery and weak. A few steps below her, Percy grunted as he reached for another handhold. So, what is this fire river called? The Phlegathon, she said. You should concentrate on going down. The Phlegathon? He shinnied along the edge. They'd made it roughly a third of the way down the cliff, still high enough up to die if they fell. Sounds like a marathon for hawking spitballs. Please don't make me laugh, she said. Just trying to keep things light. Thanks she grunted, nearly missing the ledge with her bad foot. I'll have a smile on my face as I plummet to my death. They kept going, one step at a time. Annabeth's eyes stung with sweat. Her arms trembled. But to her amazement, they finally made it to the bottom of the cliff. When she reached the ground, she stumbled. Percy caught her. She was alarmed by how feverish his skin felt. Red boils had erupted on his face, so he looked like a smallpox victim. Her own vision was blurry. Her throat felt blistered, and her stomach was clenched tighter than a fist. We have to hurry, she thought. Just to the river, she told Percy, trying to keep the panic out of her voice. We can do this. They staggered over slick glass ledges around massive boulders, avoiding stalagmites that would have impaled them with any slip of the foot. Their tattered clothes steamed from the heat of the river, 
but they kept going until they crumpled to their knees at the banks of the Phlegathon. We have to drink, Annabeth said. Percy swayed, his eyes half-closed. It took him a three-count to respond. Uh, drink fire? The Phlegathon flows from Hades' realm down into Tartarus. Annabeth could barely talk. Her throat was closing up from the heat and the acidic air. The river is used to punish the wicked, but also, some legends call it the River of Healing. Some legends? Annabeth swallowed, trying to stay conscious. The Phlegathon keeps the wicked in one piece so that they can endure the torments of the fields of punishment. I think... It might be the underworld equivalent of ambrosia and nectar. Percy winced as cinders sprayed from the river, curling around his face. But it's fire. How can we... Like this. Annabeth thrust her hands into the river. Stupid? Yes. But she was convinced they had no choice. If they waited any longer, they would pass out and die. Better to try something foolish and hope it worked. On first contact, the fire wasn't painful. It felt cold, which probably meant it was so hot it was overloading Annabeth's nerves. Before she could change her mind, she cupped the fiery liquid in her palms and raised it to her mouth. She expected a taste like gasoline. It was so much worse. Once, at a restaurant back in San Francisco, she'd made the mistake of tasting a ghost chili pepper that came with a plate of Indian food. After barely nibbling it, she thought her respiratory system was going to implode. Drinking from the Phlegathon was like gulping down a ghost chili smoothie. Her sinuses filled with liquid flame. Her mouth felt like it was being deep-fried. Her eyes shed boiling tears, and every pore on her face popped. She collapsed, gagging and retching, her whole body shaking violently. Annabeth! Percy grabbed her arms and just managed to stop her from rolling into the river. The convulsions passed. She took a ragged breath and managed to sit up. She felt horribly weak and nauseous but her next breath came more easily. The blisters on her arms were starting to fade. It worked, she croaked. Percy, you've got a drink. I... His eyes rolled up in his head, and he slumped against her. Desperately, she cupped more fire in her palm. Ignoring the pain, she dripped the liquid into Percy's mouth. He didn't respond. She tried again, pouring a whole handful down his throat. This time he spluttered and coughed. Annabeth held him as he trembled, the magical fire coursing through his system. His fever disappeared. His boils faded. He managed to sit up and smack his lips. Ugh, he said. Spicy, yet disgusting. Annabeth laughed weakly. She was so relieved, she felt lightheaded. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. You saved us. For now, 
she said. The problem is, we're still in Tartarus. Percy blinked. He looked around as if just coming to terms with where they were. Holy Hera, I never thought... Well, I'm not sure what I thought. Maybe that Tartarus was empty space, a pit with no bottom. But this is a real place. Annabeth recalled the landscape she'd seen while they fell, a series of plateaus leading ever downward into the gloom. We haven't seen all of it, she warned. This could be just the first tiny part of the abyss, like the front steps. The welcome mat, Percy muttered. They both gazed up at the blood-colored clouds swirling in the gray haze. No way would they have the strength to climb back up that cliff, even if they wanted to. Now there were only two choices, downriver or upriver, skirting the banks of the Phlegathon. We'll find a way out, Percy said, the doors of death. Annabeth shuddered. She remembered what Percy had said just before they fell into Tartarus. He'd made Nico D'Angelo promise to lead the Argo II to Epirus, to the mortal side of the doors of death. We'll see you there, Percy had said. That idea seemed even crazier than drinking fire. How could the two of them wander through Tartarus and find the doors of death? They'd barely been able to stumble a hundred yards in this poisonous place without dying. We have to, Percy said. Not just for us, for everybody we love. The doors have to be closed on both sides, or the monsters will just keep coming through. Gia's forces will overrun the world. Annabeth knew he was right. Still, when she tried to imagine a plan that could succeed... The logistics overwhelmed her. They had no way of locating the doors. They didn't know how much time it would take, or even if time flowed at the same speed in Tartarus. How could they possibly synchronize a meeting with their friends? And Nico had mentioned a legion of Gia's strongest monsters guarding the doors on the Tartarus side. Annabeth and Percy couldn't exactly launch a frontal assault. She decided not to mention any of that. They both knew the odds were bad. Besides, after swimming in the river Cocytus, Annabeth had heard enough whining and moaning to last a lifetime. She promised herself never to complain again. Well, she took a deep breath, grateful at least that her lungs didn't hurt. If we stay close to the river, we'll have a way to heal ourselves. If we go downstream... It happened so fast. Annabeth would have been dead if she'd been on her own. Percy's eyes locked on something behind her. Annabeth spun as a massive dark shape hurtled down at her. A snarling, monstrous blob with spindly barbed legs and glinting eyes. She had time to think. Arachne. But she was frozen in terror her senses smothered by the sickly sweet smell. Then she heard the familiar shink of Percy's ballpoint pen transforming into a sword. His blade swept over her head in a glowing bronze arc. A horrible wail echoed through the canyon.
Annabeth stood there, stunned, as yellow dust, the remains of Arachne, rained around her like tree pollen. You okay? Percy scanned the cliffs and boulders, alert for more monsters, but nothing else appeared. The golden dust of the spider settled on the obsidian rocks. Annabeth stared at her boyfriend in amazement. Riptide's celestial bronze blade glowed even brighter in the gloom of Tartarus. As it passed through the thick, hot air, it made a defiant hiss like a riled snake. She... she would have killed me, Annabeth stammered. Percy kicked the dust on the rocks, his expression grim and dissatisfied. She died too easy, considering how much torture she put you through. She deserved worse. Annabeth couldn't argue with that, but the hard edge in Percy's voice made her unsettled. She'd never seen someone get so angry or vengeful on her behalf. It almost made her glad Arachne had died quickly. How did you move so fast? Percy shrugged. Gotta watch each other's backs, right? Now, you were saying, downstream? Annabeth nodded, still in a daze. The yellow dust dissipated on the rocky shore, turning to steam. At least now they knew monsters could be killed in Tartarus, though she had no idea how long Arachne would remain dead. Annabeth didn't plan on staying long enough to find out. Yeah, downstream, she managed. If the river comes from the upper levels of the underworld, it should flow deeper into Tartarus. So it leads into more dangerous territory, Percy finished. Which is probably where the doors are. Lucky us. Chapter 8 Annabeth They'd only traveled a few hundred yards when Annabeth heard voices. Annabeth plodded along, half in a stupor, trying to form a plan. Since she was a daughter of Athena, plans were supposed to be her specialty, but it was hard to strategize with her stomach growling and her throat baking. The fiery water of the Phlegathon may have healed her and given her strength, but it didn't do anything for her hunger or thirst. The river wasn't about making you feel good, Annabeth guessed. It just kept you going so you could experience more excruciating pain. Her head started to droop with exhaustion. Then she heard them. Female voices, having some sort of argument. And she was instantly alert. She whispered, Percy, down! She pulled him behind the nearest boulder, wedging herself so close against the riverbank that her shoes almost touched the river's fire. On the other side, in the narrow path between the river and the cliffs, voices snarled, getting louder as they approached from upstream. Annabeth tried to steady her breathing. The voices sounded vaguely human, but that meant nothing. She assumed anything in Tartarus was their enemy. She didn't know how the monsters could have failed to spot them already. Besides, monsters could smell demigods, especially powerful ones like Percy, son of Poseidon. 
Annabeth doubted that hiding behind a boulder would do any good when the monsters caught their scent. Still, as the monsters got nearer, their voices didn't change in tone. Their uneven footsteps. Scrap. Clump. Scrap. Clump. Didn't get any faster. Soon? One of them asked in a raspy voice, as if she'd been gargling in the phlegathon. Oh my gods, said another voice. This one sounded much younger and much more human, like a teenaged mortal girl getting exasperated with her friends at the mall. For some reason, she sounded familiar to Annabeth. You guys are totally annoying. I told you, it's like three days from here. Percy gripped Annabeth's wrist. He looked at her with alarm, as if he recognized the mall girl's voice too. There was a chorus of growling and grumbling. The creatures, maybe half a dozen, Annabeth guessed, had paused just on the other side of the boulder. But still, they gave no indication that they'd caught the demigod's scent. Annabeth wondered if demigods didn't smell the same in Tartarus, or if the other scents here were so powerful they masked a demigod's aura. I wonder, said a third voice, gravelly and ancient like the first, if perhaps you do not know the way, young one. Oh, shut your fang hole, Sir Ephany, said the mall girl. When's the last time you escaped to the mortal world? I was there a couple of years ago. I know the way. Besides, I understand what we're facing up there. You don't have a clue. The Earth Mother did not make you boss, shrieked a fourth voice. More hissing, scuffling, and feral moans, like giant alley cats fighting. At last, the one called Serephony yelled, Enough! The scuffling died down. We will follow for now, Serephony said. But if you do not lead us well, if we find you have lied about the summons of Gia... I don't lie, snapped the mall girl. Believe me, I've got good reason to get into this battle. I have some enemies to devour, and you'll feast on the blood of heroes. Just leave one special morsel for me the one named Percy Jackson. Annabeth fought down a snarl of her own. She forgot about her fear. She wanted to jump over the boulder and slash the monsters to dust with her knife. Except she didn't have it anymore. Believe me, said the mall girl, Gia has called us and we're going to have so much fun. Before this war is over, mortals and demigods will tremble at the sound of my name. Kelly! Annabeth almost yelped aloud. She glanced at Percy. Even in the red light of the phlegathon, his face seemed waxy. Empusai, she mouthed. Vampires! Percy nodded grimly. She remembered Kelly. Two years ago, at Percy's freshman orientation, he and their friend Rachel Dare had been attacked by M. Pusai, disguised as cheerleaders. One of them had been Kelly. Later, the same M. Pusa had attacked them in Daedalus's workshop. 
Annabeth had stabbed her in the back and sent her here, to Tartarus. The creatures shuffled off, their voice getting fainter. Annabeth crept to the edge of the boulder and risked a glimpse. Sure enough, five women staggered along on mismatched legs. Mechanical bronze on the left, shaggy and cloven-hooved on the right. Their hair was made of fire, their skin as white as bone. Most of them wore tattered ancient Greek dresses, except for the one in the lead, Kelly, who wore a burned and torn blouse with a short pleated skirt, her cheerleader's outfit. Annabeth gritted her teeth. She had faced a lot of bad monsters over the years, but she hated Empusai more than most. In addition to their nasty claws and fangs, they had a powerful ability to manipulate the mist. They could change shape and charm-speak, tricking mortals into letting down their guard. Men were especially susceptible. The Empusa's favorite tactic was to make a guy fall in love with her, then drink his blood and devour his flesh. Not a great first date. Kelly had almost killed Percy. She had manipulated Annabeth's oldest friend, Luke, urging him to commit darker and darker deeds in the name of Kronos. Annabeth really wished she still had her dagger. Percy rose. They're heading for the doors of death, he murmured. You know what that means? Annabeth didn't want to think about it. But sadly, this squad of flesh-eating horror show women might be the closest thing to good luck they were going to get in Tartarus. Yeah, she said. We need to follow them. Chapter 9 Leo Leo spent the night wrestling with a forty-foot-tall Athena. Ever since they'd brought the statue aboard, Leo had been obsessed with figuring out how it worked. He was sure it had primo powers. There had to be a secret switch or a pressure plate or something. He was supposed to be sleeping, but he just couldn't. He spent hours crawling over the statue, which took up most of the lower deck. Athena's feet stuck into sickbay so you had to squeeze past her ivory toes if you wanted some Advil. Her body ran the length of the port corridor, her outstretched hand jutting into the engine room, offering the life-sized figure of Nike that stood in her palm like, Here, have some victory. Athena's serene face took up most of the aft Pegasus stables, which were fortunately unoccupied. If Leo were a magic horse... He wouldn't have wanted to live in a stall with an oversized goddess of wisdom staring at him. The statue was wedged tight in the corridor, so Leo had to climb over the top and wriggle under her limbs, searching for levers and buttons. As usual, he found nothing. He'd done some research on the statue. He knew it was made from a hollow wooden frame, covered in ivory and gold, which explained why it was so light. It was in pretty good shape, considering it was more than 2,000 years old, had been pillaged from Athens, toted to Rome, and secretly stored in a spider's cavern for most of the past two millennia. Magic must have kept it intact, Leo figured, combined with really good craftsmanship. 
Annabeth had said, well, he tried not to think about Annabeth. He still felt guilty about her and Percy falling into Tartarus. Leo knew it was his fault. He should have gotten everyone safely on board the Argo too before he started securing the statue. He should have realized the cavern floor was unstable. Still, moping around wasn't going to get Percy and Annabeth back. He had to concentrate on fixing the problems he could fix. Anyway, Annabeth had said the statue was the key to defeating Gia. It could heal the rift between Greek and Roman demigods. Leo figured there had to be more to it than just symbolism. Maybe Athena's eyes shot lasers, or the snake behind her shield could spit poison. Or maybe the smaller figure of Nike came to life and busted out some ninja moves. Leo could think of all kinds of fun things the statue might do if he had designed it. But the more he examined it, the more frustrated he got. The Athena Parthenos radiated magic. Even he could feel that. But it didn't seem to do anything except look impressive. The ship careened to one side taking evasive maneuvers. Leo resisted the urge to run to the helm. Jason, Piper, and Frank were on duty with Hazel now. They could handle whatever was going on. Besides, Hazel had insisted on taking the wheel to guide them through the secret pass that the magic goddess had told her about. Leo hoped Hazel was right about the long detour north. He didn't trust this Hecate lady. He didn't see why such a creepy goddess would suddenly decide to be helpful. Of course, he didn't trust magic in general. That's why he was having so much trouble with the Athena Parthenos. It had no moving parts. Whatever it did, it apparently operated on pure sorcery, and Leo didn't appreciate that. He wanted it to make sense, like a machine. Finally, he got too exhausted to think straight. He curled up with a blanket in the engine room and listened to the soothing hum of the generators. Buford, the mechanical table, sat in the corner on sleep mode, making little steamy snores. Shh. Pff. Shh. Pff. Leo liked his quarters okay, but he felt safest here in the heart of the ship in a room filled with mechanisms he knew how to control. Besides, maybe if he spent more time close to the Athena Parthenos, he would eventually soak in its secrets. It's you or me, big lady, he murmured as he pulled the blanket up to his chin. You're gonna cooperate eventually. He closed his eyes and slept. Unfortunately, that meant dreams. He was running for his life through his mother's old workshop, where she died in a fire when Leo was eight. He wasn't sure what was chasing him, but he sensed it closing fast. Something large and dark and full of hate. He stumbled into workbenches, knocked over toolboxes, and tripped on electrical cords. He spotted the exit and sprinted toward it, but a figure loomed in front of him, a woman in robes of dry, swirling earth, her face covered in a veil of dust. Where are you going, little hero? Gia asked, 
Stay and meet my favorite son. Leo darted to the left, but the earth goddess's laughter followed him. The night your mother died, I warned you. I said the fates would not allow me to kill you then. But now you have chosen your path. Your death is near, Leo Valdez. He ran into a drafting table, his mother's old workstation. The wall behind it was decorated with Leo's crayon drawings. He sobbed in desperation and turned, but the thing pursuing him now stood in his path, a colossal being wrapped in shadows, its shape vaguely humanoid, its head almost scraping the ceiling twenty feet above. Leo's hands burst into flame. He blasted the giant, but the darkness consumed his fire. Leo reached for his tool belt. The pockets were sewn shut. He tried to speak, to say anything that would save his life, but he couldn't make a sound, as if the air had been stolen from his lungs. My son will not allow any fires tonight, Gia said from the depths of the warehouse. He is the void that consumes all magic, the cold that consumes all fire, the silence that consumes all speech. Leo wanted to shout, And I'm the dude that's all out of here! His voice didn't work, so he used his feet. He dashed to the right, ducking under the shadowy giant's grasping hands, and burst through the nearest doorway. Suddenly, he found himself at Camp Half-Blood, except the camp was in ruins. The cabins were charred husks. Burned fields smoldered in the moonlight. The dining pavilion had collapsed into a pile of white rubble, and the big house was on fire, its windows glowing like demon eyes. Leo kept running, sure the shadow giant was still behind him. He wove around the bodies of Greek and Roman demigods. He wanted to check if they were alive. He wanted to help them. But somehow he knew he was running out of time. He jogged toward the only living people he saw, a group of Romans standing at the volleyball pit. Two centurions leaned casually on their javelins, chatting with a tall, skinny, blonde guy in a purple toga. Leo stumbled. It was that freak Octavian, the auger from Camp Jupiter, who was always screaming for war. Octavian turned to face him, but he seemed to be in a trance. His features were slack, his eyes closed. When he spoke, it was in Gia's voice. This cannot be prevented. The Romans move east from New York. They advance on your camp and nothing can slow them down. Leo was tempted to punch Octavian in the face. Instead, he kept running. He climbed Half-Blood Hill. At the summit, lightning had splintered the giant pine tree. He faltered to a stop. The back of the hill was shorn away. Beyond it, the entire world was gone. Leo saw nothing but clouds far below a rolling silver carpet under the dark sky. A sharp voice said, Well? 
Leo flinched. At the shattered pine tree, a woman knelt at a cave entrance that had cracked open between the tree's roots. The woman wasn't Gia. She looked more like a living Athena Parthenos, with the same golden robes and bare ivory arms. When she rose, Leo almost stumbled off the edge of the world. Her face was regally beautiful, with high cheekbones, large dark eyes, and braided licorice-colored hair piled in a fancy Greek hairdo, set with a spiral of emeralds and diamonds, so that it reminded Leo of a Christmas tree. Her expression radiated pure hatred. Her lip curled. Her nose wrinkled. The tinkerer god's child, she sneered. You are no threat, but I suppose my vengeance must start somewhere. Make your choice. Leo tried to speak, but he was about to crawl out of his skin with panic. Between this hate queen and the giant chasing him, he had no idea what to do. He'll be here soon, the woman warned. My dark friend will not give you the luxury of a choice. It's the cliff or the cave, boy. Suddenly, Leo understood what she meant. He was cornered. He could jump off the cliff, but that was suicide. Even if there was land under those clouds, he would die in the fall. Or maybe he would just keep falling forever. But the cave... He stared at the dark opening between the tree roots. It smelled of rot and death. He heard bodies shuffling inside, voices whispering in the shadows. The cave was the home of the dead. If he went down there, he would never come back. Yes, the woman said. Around her neck hung a strange bronze and emerald pendant, like a circular labyrinth. Her eyes were so angry, Leo finally understood why mad was a word for crazy. This lady had been driven nuts by hatred. The house of Hades awaits. You will be the first puny rodent to die in my maze. You have only one chance to escape, Leo Valdez. Take it. She gestured toward the cliff. You're bonkers, he managed. That was the wrong thing to say. She seized his wrist. Perhaps I should kill you now, before my dark friend arrives? Steps shook the hillside. The giant was coming, wrapped in shadows, huge and heavy and bent on murder. Have you heard of dying in a dream, boy? The woman asked. It is possible at the hands of a sorceress. Leo's arm started to smoke. The woman's touch was acid. He tried to free himself, but her grip was like steel. He opened his mouth to scream. The massive shape of the giant loomed over him, obscured by layers of black smoke. The giant raised his fist, and a voice cut through the dream. Leo! Jason was shaking his shoulder. Hey man, why are you hugging Nike? Leo's eyes fluttered open. His arms were wrapped around the human-sized statue in Athena's hand. He must have been thrashing in his sleep. 
He clung to the victory goddess like he used to cling to his pillow when he had nightmares as a kid. Man, that had been so embarrassing in the foster homes. He disentangled himself and sat up, rubbing his face. Nothing, he muttered. We were just cuddling. Um, what's going on? Jason didn't tease him. That's one thing Leo appreciated about his friend. Jason's ice-blue eyes were level and serious. The little scar on his mouth twitched like it always did when he had bad news to share. We made it through the mountains, he said. We're almost to Bologna. You should join us in the mess hall. Nico has new information. Chapter 10 Leo Leo had designed the mess hall's walls to show real-time scenes from Camp Half-Blood. At first, he had thought that was a pretty awesome idea. Now he wasn't so sure. The scenes from back home, the campfire sing-alongs, dinners at the pavilion, volleyball games outside the big house, just seemed to make his friends sad. The farther they got from Long Island, the worse it got. The time zones kept changing, making Leo feel the distance every time he looked at the walls. Here in Italy, the sun had just come up. Back at Camp Half-Blood, it was the middle of the night. Torches sputtered at the cabin doorways. Moonlight glittered on the waves of Long Island Sound. The beach was covered in footprints, as if a big crowd had just left. With a start... Leo realized that yesterday, last night, whatever, had been the 4th of July. They'd missed Camp Half-Blood's annual party at the beach with awesome fireworks prepared by Leo's siblings in Cabin 9. He decided not to mention that to the crew, but he hoped their buddies back home had had a good celebration. They needed something to keep their spirits up, too. He remembered the images he'd seen in his dream the camp in ruins, littered with bodies, Octavian standing at the volleyball pit, casually talking in Gia's voice. He stared down at his eggs and bacon. He wished he could turn off the wall videos. So, Jason said, now that we're here... He sat at the head of the table, kind of by default. Since they'd lost Annabeth, Jason had done his best to act as the group's leader. Having been Preter back at Camp Jupiter, he was probably used to that, but Leo could tell his friend was stressed. His eyes were more sunken than usual. His blonde hair was uncharacteristically messy, like he'd forgotten to comb it. Leo glanced at the others around the table. Hazel was bleary-eyed, too, but of course, she'd been up all night guiding the ship through the mountains. Her curly, cinnamon-colored hair was tied back in a bandana, which gave her a commando look that Leo found kind of hot, and then immediately felt guilty about. Next to her sat her boyfriend, Frank Jong, dressed in black workout pants and a Roman tourist t-shirt that said, Chow. Was that even a word? Frank's old centurion badge was pinned to his shirt. Despite the fact that the demigods of the Argo II were now public enemies numbers one through seven back at Camp Jupiter, his grim expression just reinforced his unfortunate resemblance to a sumo wrestler. 
Then there was Hazel's half-brother, Nico D'Angelo. Dang, that kid gave Leo the freaky deekies. He sat back in his leather aviator jacket, his black t-shirt and jeans, that wicked silver skull ring on his finger, and the Stygian sword at his side. His tufts of black hair stuck up in curls like baby bat wings. His eyes were sad and kind of empty, as if he'd stared into the depths of Tartarus, which he had. The only absent demigod was Piper, who was taking her turn at the helm with Coach Hedge, their satyr chaperone. Leo wished Piper were here. She had a way of calming things down with that Aphrodite charm of hers. After his dreams last night, Leo could use some calm. On the other hand, it was probably good she was above deck chaperoning their chaperone. Now that they were in the ancient lands, they had to be constantly on guard. Leo was nervous about letting Coach Hedge fly solo. The satyr was a little trigger-happy, and the helm had plenty of bright, dangerous buttons that could cause the picturesque Italian villages below them to go boom. Leo had zoned out so totally he didn't realize Jason was still talking. The House of Hades, he was saying. Nico? Nico sat forward. I communed with the dead last night. He just tossed that line out there, like he was saying he got a text from a buddy. I was able to learn more about what we'll face, Nico continued. In ancient times, the House of Hades was a major site for Greek pilgrims. They would come to speak with the dead and honor their ancestors. Leo frowned. Sounds like Dia de los Muertos. My Aunt Rosa took that stuff seriously. He remembered being dragged by her to the local cemetery in Houston, where they'd clean up their relatives' gravesites and put out offerings of lemonade, cookies, and fresh marigolds. Aunt Rosa would force Leo to stay for a picnic, as if hanging out with dead people were good for his appetite. Frank grunted, Chinese have that too. Ancestor worship. Sweeping the graves in the springtime. He glanced at Leo. Your Aunt Rosa would have gotten along with my grandmother. Leo had a terrifying image of his Aunt Rosa and some old Chinese woman in wrestler's outfits, wailing on each other with spiked clubs. Yeah, Leo said. I'm sure they would have been best buds. Nico cleared his throat. A lot of cultures have seasonal traditions to honor the dead, but the House of Hades was open year-round. Pilgrims could actually speak to the ghosts. In Greek, the place was called the Necromantion, the Oracle of Death. You'd work your way through different levels of tunnels, leaving offerings and drinking special potions. Special potions? Leo muttered. Yum. Jason flashed him a look like, Dude, enough. Nico, go on. The pilgrims believed that each level of the temple brought you closer to the underworld until the dead would appear before you. If they were pleased with your offerings, they would answer your questions, maybe even tell you the future. Frank tapped his mug of hot chocolate. 
And if the spirits weren't pleased? Some pilgrims found nothing, Nico said. Some went insane or died after leaving the temple. Others lost their way in the tunnels and were never seen again. The point is, Jason said quickly, Nico found some information that might help us. Yeah, Nico didn't sound very enthusiastic. The ghost I spoke to last night, he was a former priest of Hecate. He confirmed what the goddess told Hazel yesterday at the crossroads. In the first war with the giants, Hecate fought for the gods. She slew one of the giants, one who'd been designed as the anti-Hecate, a guy named Clytius. Dark dude, Leo guessed, wrapped in shadows. Hazel turned toward him, her gold eyes narrowing. Leo, how did you know that? Kind of had a dream. No one looked surprised. Most demigods had vivid nightmares about what was going on in the world. His friends paid close attention as Leo explained. He tried not to look at the wall images of Camp Half-Blood as he described the place in ruins. He told them about the dark giant and the strange woman on Half-Blood Hill, offering him a multiple-choice death. Jason pushed away his plate of pancakes. So the giant is Clytius. I suppose he'll be waiting for us, guarding the doors of death. Frank rolled up one of the pancakes and started munching. Not a guy to let impending death stand in the way of a healthy breakfast. And the woman in Leo's dream? She's my problem. Hazel passed a diamond between her fingers and a sleight of hand. Hecate mentioned a formidable enemy in the house of Hades, a witch who couldn't be defeated except by me, using magic. Do you know magic? Leo asked. Not yet. Ah. He tried to think of something hopeful to say, but he recalled the angry woman's eyes, the way her steely grip made his skin smoke. Any idea who she is? Hazel shook her head. Only that... She glanced at Nico, and some sort of silent argument happened between them. Leo got the feeling that the two of them had had some private conversations about the House of Hades, and they weren't sharing all the details. Only that she won't be easy to defeat. But there is some good news, Nico said. The ghost I talked to explained how Hecate defeated Clytius in the First War. She used her torches to set his hair on fire. He burned to death. In other words, fire is his weakness. Everybody looked at Leo. Oh, he said. Okay. Jason nodded encouragingly, like this was great news like he expected Leo to walk up to a towering mass of darkness, shoot a few fireballs, and solve all their problems. Leo didn't want to bring him down, but he could still hear Gia's voice. He is the void that consumes all magic, the cold that consumes all fire, the silence that consumes all speech. Leo was pretty sure it would take more than a few matches to set that giant ablaze. It's a good lead, Jason insisted. At least we know how to kill the giant. And this sorceress, 
Well, if Hecate believes Hazel can defeat her, then so do I. Hazel dropped her eyes. Now we just have to reach the house of Hades, battle our way through Gia's forces. Plus a bunch of ghosts, Nico added grimly. The spirits in that temple may not be friendly. And find the doors of death, Hazel continued. Assuming we can somehow arrive at the same time as Percy and Annabeth and rescue them. Frank swallowed a bite of pancake. We can do it. We have to. Leo admired the big guy's optimism. He wished he shared it. So, with this detour, Leo said, I'm estimating four or five days to arrive at Epirus, assuming no delays for, you know, monster attacks and stuff. Jason smiled sourly. Yeah, those never happen. Leo looked at Hazel. Hecate told you that Gia was planning her big wake-up party on August 1st, right? The feast of whatever? Spes, Hazel said. The goddess of hope. Jason turned his fork. Theoretically, that leaves us enough time. It's only July 5th. We should be able to close the doors of death, then find the giant's HQ and stop them from waking Gia before August 1st. Theoretically, Hazel agreed. But I'd still like to know how we make our way through the House of Hades without going insane or dying. Nobody volunteered any ideas. Frank set down his pancake roll like it suddenly didn't taste so good. It's July 5th. Oh, jeez. I hadn't even thought of that. Hey, man, it's cool, Leo said. You're Canadian, right? I didn't expect you to get me an Independence Day present or anything. Unless you wanted to. It's not that. My grandmother... She always told me that seven was an unlucky number. It was a ghost number. She didn't like it when I told her there would be seven demigods on our quest. And July is the seventh month. Yeah, but... Leo tapped his fingers nervously on the table. He realized he was doing the Morse code for I love you, the way he used to do with his mom, which would have been pretty embarrassing if his friends understood Morse code. But that's just coincidence, right? Frank's expression didn't reassure him. Back in China, Frank said, in the old days, people called the seventh month the ghost month. That's when the spirit world and the human world were closest. The living and the dead could go back and forth. Tell me it's a coincidence we're searching for the doors of death during the ghost month. No one spoke. Leo wanted to think that an old Chinese belief couldn't have anything to do with the Romans and the Greeks. Totally different, right? But Frank's existence was proof that the cultures were tied together. The Zhang family went all the way back to ancient Greece. They'd found their way through Rome and China, and finally to Canada. Also, Leo kept thinking about his meeting with the revenge goddess Nemesis at the Great Salt Lake. Nemesis had called him the seventh wheel, the odd man out on the quest. She didn't mean seventh as in ghost, did she?
Jason pressed his hands against the arms of his chair. Let's focus on the things we can deal with. We're getting close to Bologna. Maybe we'll get more answers once we find these dwarfs that Hecate... The ship lurched, as if it had hit an iceberg. Leo's breakfast plate slid across the table. Nico fell backward out of his chair and banged his head against the sideboard. He collapsed on the floor, with a dozen magic goblets and platters crashing down on top of him. Nico! Hazel ran to help him. What? Frank tried to stand, but the ship pitched in the other direction. He stumbled into the table and went face first into Leo's plate of scrambled eggs. Look! Jason pointed at the walls. The images of Camp Half-Blood were flickering and changing. Not possible, Leo murmured. No way those enchantments could show anything other than scenes from camp. But suddenly, a huge, distorted face filled the entire portside wall. Crooked yellow teeth, a scraggly red beard, a warty nose, and two mismatched eyes, one much larger and higher than the other. The face seemed to be trying to eat its way into the room. The other walls flickered, showing scenes from above deck. Piper stood at the helm, but something was wrong. From the shoulders down, she was wrapped in duct tape. Her mouth gagged and her legs bound to the control console. At the mainmast, Coach Hedge was similarly bound and gagged, while a bizarre-looking creature, a sort of gnome-chimpanzee combo with poor fashion sense, danced around him, doing the coach's hair in tiny pigtails with pink rubber bands. On the port side wall, the huge, ugly face receded so that Leo could see the entire creature, another gnome chimp in even crazier clothes. This one began leaping around the deck, stuffing things in a burlap bag, Piper's dagger, Leo's Wii controllers. Then he pried the Archimedes sphere out of the command console. No! Leo yelled. Ugh! Nico groaned from the floor. Piper! Jason cried. Monkey! Frank yelled. Not monkeys, Hazel grumbled. I think those are dwarfs. Stealing my stuff! Leo yelled, and he ran for the stairs. Chapter 11 Leo Leo was vaguely aware of Hazel shouting, Go! I'll take care of Nico! As if Leo was going to turn back. Sure, he hoped D'Angelo was okay, but he had headaches of his own. Leo bounded up the steps, with Jason and Frank behind him. The situation on deck was even worse than he feared. Coach Hedge and Piper were struggling against their duct-tape bonds while one of the demon monkey dwarfs danced around the deck, picking up whatever wasn't tied down and sticking it in his bag. He was maybe four feet tall, even shorter than Coach Hedge, with bowed legs and chimp-like feet, his clothes so loud they gave Leo vertigo. His green plaid pants were pinned at the cuffs and held up with bright red suspenders 
over a striped pink and black woman's blouse. He wore half a dozen gold watches on each arm and a zebra-patterned cowboy hat with a price tag dangling from the brim. His skin was covered with patches of scraggly red fur, though 90% of his body hair seemed to be concentrated in his magnificent eyebrows. Leo was just forming the thought, Where's the other dwarf? When he heard a click behind him and realized he'd led his friends into a trap. Duck! He hit the deck as the explosion blasted his eardrums. Note to self, Leo thought groggily. Do not leave boxes of magic grenades where dwarfs can reach them. At least he was alive. Leo had been experimenting with all sorts of weapons based on the Archimedes sphere that he'd recovered in Rome. He'd built grenades that could spray acid, fire, shrapnel, or freshly buttered popcorn. Hey, you never knew when you'd get hungry in battle. Judging from the ringing in Leo's ears, the dwarf had detonated the flashbang grenade, which Leo had filled with a rare vial of Apollo's music, pure liquid extract. It didn't kill, but it left Leo feeling like he'd just done a belly flop off the deep end. He tried to get up. His limbs were useless. Someone was tugging at his waist. Maybe a friend trying to help him up? No. His friends didn't smell like heavily perfumed monkey cages. He managed to turn over. His vision was out of focus and tinted pink, like the world had been submerged in strawberry jelly. A grinning, grotesque face loomed over him. The brown-furred dwarf was dressed even worse than his friend, in a green bowler hat like a leprechaun's, dangly diamond earrings, and a white and black referee's shirt. He showed off the prize he'd just stolen, Leo's tool belt, then danced away. Leo tried to grab him, but his fingers were numb. The dwarf frolicked over to the nearest ballista, which his red-furred friend was priming to launch. The brown-furred dwarf jumped onto the projectile like it was a skateboard, and his friend shot him into the sky. Red Fur pranced over to Coach Hedge. He gave the satyr a big smack on the cheek, then skipped to the rail. He bowed to Leo, doffing his zebra cowboy hat, and did a backflip over the side. Leo managed to get up. Jason was already on his feet, stumbling and running into things. Frank had turned into a silverback gorilla. Why? Leo wasn't sure. Maybe to commune with the monkey dwarfs? But the flash grenade had hit him hard. He was sprawled on the deck, with his tongue hanging out, and his gorilla eyes rolled up in his head. Piper! Jason staggered to the helm and carefully pulled the gag out of her mouth. Don't waste your time on me, she said. Go after them! At the mast, Coach Hedge mumbled, Leo figured that meant, Kill them! Easy translation, since most of the coach's sentences involved the word kill. Leo glanced at the control console. His Archimedes sphere was gone. 
He put his hand to his waist where his tool belt should have been. His head started to clear, and his sense of outrage came to a boil. Those dwarfs had attacked his ship. They'd stolen his most precious possessions. Below him spread the city of Bologna, a jigsaw puzzle of red-tiled buildings in a valley hemmed by green hills. Unless Leo could find the dwarves somewhere in that maze of streets. Nope. Failure wasn't an option. Neither was waiting for his friends to recover. He turned to Jason. You feeling good enough to control the winds? I need a lift. Jason frowned. Sure, but... Good, Leo said. We've got some monkey dudes to catch. Jason and Leo touched down in a big piazza lined with white marble government buildings and outdoor cafes. Bikes and Vespas clogged the surrounding streets, but the square itself was empty except for pigeons and a few old men drinking espresso. None of the locals seemed to notice the huge Greek warship hovering over the piazza or the fact that Jason and Leo had just flown down. Jason wielding a gold sword, and Leo, well, Leo pretty much empty-handed. Where to? Jason asked. Leo stared at him. Well, I don't know. Let me pull my dwarf-tracking GPS out of my tool belt. Oh, wait. I don't have a dwarf-tracking GPS or my tool belt. Fine. Jason grumbled. He glanced up at the ship as if to get his bearings, then pointed across the piazza. The ballista fired the first dwarf in that direction, I think. Come on. They waded through a lake of pigeons, then maneuvered down a side street of clothing stores and gelato shops. The sidewalks were lined with white columns covered in graffiti. A few panhandlers asked for change. Leo didn't know Italian, but he got the message loud and clear. He kept patting his waist, hoping his tool belt would magically reappear. It didn't. He tried not to freak, but he'd come to depend on that belt for almost everything. He felt like somebody had stolen one of his hands. We'll find it, Jason promised. Usually, Leo would have felt reassured. Jason had a talent for staying level-headed in a crisis, and he'd gotten Leo out of plenty of bad scrapes. Today, though, all Leo could think about was the stupid fortune cookie he had opened in Rome. The goddess Nemesis had promised him help, and he'd gotten it. The code to activate the Archimedes' sphere. At the time, Leo had had no choice but to use it if he wanted to save his friends but Nemesis had warned that her help came with a price. Leo wondered if that price would ever be paid. Percy and Annabeth were gone. The ship was hundreds of miles off course, heading toward an impossible challenge. Leo's friends were counting on him to beat a terrifying giant, and now he didn't even have his tool belt or his Archimedes sphere. He was so absorbed with feeling sorry for himself that he didn't notice where they were until Jason grabbed his arm. Check it out. Leo looked up. 
they'd arrived in a smaller piazza. Looming over them was a huge bronze statue of a buck-naked Neptune. Ah, jeez, Leo averted his eyes. He really didn't need to see a godly groin this early in the morning. The sea gods stood on a big marble column in the middle of a fountain that wasn't working, which seemed kind of ironic. On either side of Neptune, little winged Cupid dudes were sitting, kind of chillin' like, what's up? Neptune himself, avoid the groin, was throwing his hip to one side in an Elvis Presley move. He gripped his trident loosely in his right hand and stretched his left hand out like he was blessing Leo or possibly attempting to levitate him. Some kind of clue? Leo wondered. Jason frowned. Maybe, maybe not. There are statues of the gods all over the place in Italy. I'd just feel better if we ran across Jupiter or Minerva. Anybody but Neptune, really. Leo climbed into the dry fountain. He put his hand on the statue's pedestal, and a rush of impressions surged through his fingertips. He sensed celestial bronze gears, magical levers, springs, and pistons. It's mechanical, he said. Maybe a doorway to the dwarves' secret lair? Oh, shrieked a nearby voice. Secret lair! I want a secret lair, yelled another voice from above. Jason stepped back, his sword ready. Leo almost got whiplash trying to look in two places at once. The red-furred dwarf in the cowboy hat was sitting about thirty feet away at the nearest cafe table, sipping an espresso with his monkey-like foot. The brown-furred dwarf in the green bowler was perched on the marble pedestal at Neptune's feet just above Leo's head. If we had a secret lair, said Redfur, I would want a firehouse pole. And a water slide, said Brownfur, who was pulling random tools out of Leo's belt, tossing aside wrenches, hammers, and staple guns. Stop that! Leo tried to grab the dwarf's feet, but he couldn't reach the top of the pedestal. Too short? Brown fur sympathized. You're calling me short? Leo looked around for something to throw, but there was nothing but pigeons, and he doubted he could catch one. Give me my belt, you stupid... Now, now, said Brown fur. We haven't even introduced ourselves. I'm Akmon, and my brother over there is the handsome one. The red-furred dwarf lifted his espresso. Judging from his dilated eyes and his maniacal grin, he didn't need any more caffeine. Pasolos, singer of songs, drinker of coffee, stealer of shiny stuff. Please, shrieked his brother Akmon. I steal much better than you. Pasolos snorted. Stealing naps, maybe. He took out a knife. Piper's knife, and started picking his teeth with it. Hey, Jason yelled, that's my girlfriend's knife. He lunged at Pasolos, but the red-furred dwarf was too quick. He sprang from his chair, bounced off Jason's head, did a flip, and landed next to Leo, his hairy arms around Leo's waist, 
Save me? The dwarf pleaded. Get off! Leo tried to shove him away, but Pasalos did a backward somersault and landed out of reach. Leo's pants promptly fell around his knees. He stared at Pasalos, who was now grinning and holding a small zigzaggy strip of metal. Somehow, the dwarf had stolen the zipper right off Leo's pants. Give, stupid zipper! Leo stuttered, trying to shake his fist and hoist up his pants at the same time. Eh, not shiny enough! Pasalos tossed it away. Jason lunged with his sword. Pasalos launched himself straight up and was suddenly sitting on the statue's pedestal next to his brother. Tell me I don't have moves, Pasalos boasted. Okay, Akmon said. You don't have moves. Bah! Pasalos said. Give me the tool belt. I want to see. No. Akmon elbowed him away. You got the knife and the shiny ball. Yes, the shiny ball is nice. Pasalos took off his cowboy hat. Like a magician producing a rabbit, he pulled out the Archimedes sphere and began tinkering with the ancient bronze dials. Stop! Leo yelled. That's a delicate machine! Jason came to his side and glared up at the dwarves. Who are you two anyway? The Kirkopis! Akmon narrowed his eyes at Jason. I bet you're a son of Jupiter, eh? I can always tell. Just like Black Bottom, Pasalos agreed. Black Bottom? Leo resisted the urge to jump at the dwarf's feet again. He was sure Pasalos was going to ruin the Archimedes sphere any second now. Yes, you know, Akmon grinned. Hercules. We called him Black Bottom because he used to go around without clothes. He got so tan that his backside, well, at least he had a sense of humor, Pasalos said. He was going to kill us when we stole from him, but he let us go because he liked our jokes. Not like you two, grumpy, grumpy. Hey, I've got a sense of humor, Leo snarled. Give me back our stuff and I'll tell you a joke with a good punchline. Nice try. Akmon pulled a ratchet wrench from the tool belt and spun it like a noisemaker. Oh, very nice. I'm definitely keeping this. Thanks, Blue Bottom. Blue Bottom? Leo glanced down. His pants had slipped around his ankles again, revealing his blue undershorts. That's it, he shouted. My stuff, now, or I'll show you how funny a flaming dwarf is. His hands caught fire. Now we're talking. Jason thrust his sword into the sky. Dark clouds began to gather over the piazza. Thunder boomed. Oh, scary, Akmon shrieked. Yes, Pasalos agreed. If only we had a secret lair to hide in. Alas, this statue isn't the doorway to a secret lair, Akmon said. It has a different purpose. Leo's gut twisted. The fires died in his hands, 
and he realized something was very wrong. He yelled, Trap! and dove out of the fountain. Unfortunately, Jason was too busy summoning his storm. Leo rolled on his back as five golden cords shot from the Neptune statue's fingers. One barely missed Leo's feet. The rest homed in on Jason, wrapping him like a rodeo calf and yanking him upside down. A bolt of lightning blasted the tines of Neptune's trident, sending arcs of electricity up and down the statue. But the Kirkopes had already disappeared. Bravo! Akmon applauded from a nearby cafe table. You make a wonderful piñata, son of Jupiter. Yes, Pasolos agreed. Hercules hung us upside down once, you know. Oh, revenge is sweet. Leo summoned a fireball. He lobbed it at Pasolos, who was trying to juggle two pigeons and the Archimedes sphere. Eek! The dwarf jumped free of the explosion dropping the sphere and letting the pigeons fly. Time to leave, Akmon decided. He tipped his bowler and sprang away, jumping from table to table. Pasolos glanced at the Archimedes' sphere, which had rolled between Leo's feet. Leo summoned another fireball. Try me, he snarled. Bye! Pasolos did a backflip and ran after his brother. Leo scooped up the Archimedes sphere and ran over to Jason, who was still hanging upside down, thoroughly hogtied except for his sword arm. He was trying to cut the cords with his gold blade, but having no luck. Hold on, Leo said. If I can find a release switch... Just go, Jason growled. I'll follow you when I get out of this. But don't lose them. The last thing Leo wanted was some alone time with the monkey dwarfs, but the Kirkopes were already disappearing around the far corner of the piazza. Leo left Jason hanging and ran after them. Chapter 12 Leo The dwarves didn't try very hard to lose him, which made Leo suspicious. They stayed just at the edge of his vision, scampering over red-tiled rooftops, knocking over window boxes, whooping and hollering and leaving a trail of screws and nails from Leo's tool belt, almost as if they wanted Leo to follow. He jogged after them, cursing every time his pants fell down. He turned a corner and saw two ancient stone towers jutting into the sky, side by side, much taller than anything else in the neighborhood. Maybe medieval watchtowers? They leaned in different directions like gear shifts on a race car. The Kirkopes scaled the tower on the right. When they reached the top, they climbed around the backside and disappeared. Had they gone inside? Leo could see some tiny windows at the top, covered with metal grates, but he doubted those would stop the dwarfs. He watched for a minute, but the Kirkopes didn't reappear, which meant Leo had to get up there and look for them. Great, he muttered. No flying friend to carry him up. The ship was too far away to call for help. He could jury-rig the Archimedes' sphere into some sort of flying device, maybe, but only if he had his tool belt, which he didn't. 
He scanned the neighborhood, trying to think. Half a block down, a set of double glass doors opened, and an old lady hobbled out, carrying plastic shopping bags. A grocery store? Hmm. Leo patted his pockets. To his amazement, he still had some euro notes from his time in Rome. Those stupid dwarfs had taken everything except his money. He ran for the store as fast as his zipperless pants allowed. Leo scoured the aisles, looking for things he could use. He didn't know the Italian for, Hello, where are your dangerous chemicals, please? But that was probably just as well. He didn't want to end up in an Italian jail. Fortunately, he didn't need to read labels. He could tell just from picking up a toothpaste tube whether it contained potassium nitrate. He found charcoal. He found sugar and baking soda. The store sold matches and bug spray and aluminum foil. Pretty much everything he needed. Plus a laundry cord he could use as a belt. He added some Italian junk food to the basket, just to sort of disguise his more suspicious purchases, then dumped his stuff at the register. A wide-eyed checkout lady asked him some questions he didn't understand, but he managed to pay, get a bag, and race out. He ducked into the nearest doorway where he could keep an eye on the towers. He started to work, summoning fire to dry out materials and do a little cooking that otherwise would have taken days to complete. Every once in a while, he sneaked a look at the tower, but there was no sign of the dwarfs. Leo could only hope they were still up there. Making his arsenal took just a few minutes. He was that good, but it felt like hours. Jason didn't show. Maybe he was still tangled at the Neptune fountain or scouring the streets looking for Leo. No one else from the ship came to help. Probably it was taking them a long time to get all those pink rubber bands out of Coach Hedge's hair. That meant Leo had only himself, his bag of junk food, and a few highly improvised weapons made from sugar and toothpaste. Oh, and the Archimedes Sphere. That was kind of important. He hoped he hadn't ruined it by filling it with chemical powder. He ran to the tower and found the entrance. He started up the winding stairs inside, only to be stopped at a ticket booth by some caretaker who yelled at him in Italian. Seriously? Leo asked. Look, man, you've got dwarves in your belfry. I'm the exterminator. He held up his can of bug spray. See? Exterminator. Molto buono. Squirt, squirt. Ah! He pantomimed a dwarf melting in terror, which for some reason the Italian didn't seem to understand. The guy just held out his palm for money. Dang, man. Leo grumbled. I just spent all my cash on homemade explosives and whatnot. He dug around in his grocery bag. Don't suppose you'd accept, uh, whatever these are? Leo held up a yellow and red bag of junk food called Fonzie's. He assumed they were some kind of chips. To his surprise, the caretaker shrugged and took the bag. Avanti! Leo kept climbing, but he made a mental note to stock up on Fonzies. Apparently, they were better than cash in Italy. 
The stairs went on and on and on. The whole tower seemed to be nothing but an excuse to build a staircase. He stopped on a landing and slumped against a narrow, barred window, trying to catch his breath. He was sweating like crazy, and his heart thumped against his ribs. Stupid Kirkopies. Leo figured that as soon as he reached the top, they would jump away before he could use his weapons. But he had to try. He kept climbing. Finally, his legs feeling like overcooked noodles, he reached the summit. The room was about the size of a broom closet, with barred windows on all four walls. Shoved in the corners were sacks of treasure, shiny goodies spilling all over the floor. Leo spotted Piper's knife, an old leather-bound book, a few interesting-looking mechanical devices, and enough gold to give Hazel's horse a stomachache. At first, he thought the dwarves had left. Then he looked up. Akmon and Pasalos were hanging upside down from the rafters by their chimp feet, playing anti-gravity poker. When they saw Leo, they threw their cards like confetti and broke out in applause. I told you he'd do it, Akmon shrieked in delight. Pasolo shrugged and took off one of his gold watches and handed it to his brother. You win. I didn't think he was that dumb. They both dropped to the floor. Akmon was wearing Leo's tool belt. So close. Leo had to resist the urge to lunge for it. Pasolos straightened his cowboy hat and kicked open the grate on the nearest window. What should we make him climb next, brother? The Dome of San Luca? Leo wanted to throttle the dwarfs, but he forced a smile. Oh, that sounds fun. But before you guys go... You forgot something shiny. Impossible, Akmon scowled. We were very thorough. You sure? Leo held up his grocery bag. The dwarfs inched closer. As Leo had hoped, their curiosity was so strong that they couldn't resist. Look, Leo brought out his first weapon, a lump of dried chemicals wrapped in aluminum foil and lit it with his hand. He knew enough to turn away when it popped, but the dwarves were staring right at it. Toothpaste, sugar, and bug spray weren't as good as Apollo's music, but they made for a pretty decent flashbang. The Kirkopis wailed, clawing at their eyes. They stumbled toward the window, but Leo set off his homemade firecrackers, snapping them around the dwarfs' bare feet to keep them off balance. Then, for good measure, Leo turned the dial on his Archimedes sphere, which unleashed a plume of foul white fog that filled the room. Leo wasn't bothered by smoke. Being immune to fire, he'd stood in smoky bonfires, endured dragon breath, and cleaned out blazing forges plenty of times. While the dwarfs were hacking and wheezing, he grabbed his tool belt from Akmon, calmly summoned some bungee cords, and tied up the dwarfs. My eyes! Akmon coughed. My tool belt! My feet are on fire! Pasolos wailed. Not shiny! Not shiny at all! After making sure they were securely bound, Leo dragged the Kirkopis into one corner and began rifling through their treasures. 
He retrieved Piper's dagger, a few of his prototype grenades, and a dozen other odds and ends the dwarves had taken from the Argo too. Please, Akmon wailed. Don't take our shinies. We'll make you a deal, Pasalos suggested. We'll cut you in for ten percent if you let us go. Uh, afraid not, Leo muttered. It's all mine now. Twenty percent! Just then, thunder boomed overhead. Lightning flashed, and the bars on the nearest window burst into sizzling, melted stubs of iron. Jason flew in like Peter Pan, electricity sparking around him and his gold sword steaming. Leo whistled appreciatively. Man, you just wasted an awesome entrance. Jason frowned. He noticed the hog-tied Kirkopis. What the? All by myself, Leo said. I'm special that way. How did you find me? Uh, the smoke, Jason managed. And I heard popping noises. Were you having a gunfight in here? Something like that. Leo tossed him Piper's dagger, then kept rummaging through the bags of dwarf shinies. He remembered what Hazel had said about finding a treasure that would help them with the quest, but he wasn't sure what he was looking for. There were coins, gold nuggets, jewelry, paper clips, foil wrappers, cufflinks. He kept coming back to a couple of things that didn't seem to belong. One was an old bronze navigation device, like an astrolabe from a ship. It was badly damaged and seemed to be missing some pieces, but Leo still found it fascinating. Take it, Pasalos offered. Odysseus made it, you know. Take it and let us go. Odysseus? Jason asked. Like the Odysseus? Yes! Pasalos squeaked. Made it when he was an old man in Ithaca, one of his last inventions, and we stole it. How does it work? Leo asked. Oh, it doesn't, Akmon said. Something about a missing crystal? He glanced at his brother for help. My biggest what if, Pasalos said. Should have taken a crystal. That's what he kept muttering in his sleep. The night we stole it. Pasolo shrugged. No idea what he meant, but the shiny is yours. Can we go now? Leo wasn't sure why he wanted the astrolabe. It was obviously broken, and he didn't get the sense that this was what Hecate meant for them to find. Still, he slipped it into one of his tool belt's magic pockets. He turned his attention to the other strange piece of loot the leather-bound book. Its title was in gold leaf, in a language Leo couldn't understand, but nothing else about the book seemed shiny. He didn't figure the Kirkopis for big readers. What's this? He wagged it at the dwarfs, who were still teary-eyed from the smoke. Nothing, Akmon said. Just a book. It had a pretty gold cover, so we took it from him. Him? Leo asked. Akbon and Pasalos exchanged a nervous look. Minor god, Pasalos said. 
in Venice. Really, it's nothing. Venice. Jason frowned at Leo. Isn't that where we're supposed to go next? Yeah. Leo examined the book. He couldn't read the text, but it had lots of illustrations. Scythes, different plants, a picture of the sun, a team of oxen pulling a cart. He didn't see how any of that was important, but if the book had been stolen from a minor god in Venice, the next place Hecate had told them to visit, then this had to be what they were looking for. Where exactly can we find this minor god? Leo asked. No! Akmon shrieked. You can't take it back to him. If he finds out we stole it, he'll destroy you, Jason guessed. Which is what we'll do if you don't tell us, and we're a lot closer. He pressed the point of his sword against Akmon's furry throat. Okay, okay, the dwarf shrieked. La Casa Nera, Calle Franceria. Is that an address? Leo asked. The dwarves both nodded vigorously. Please don't tell him we stole it, Pasolos begged. He isn't nice at all. Who is he? Jason asked. What god? I... I can't say, Pasolos stammered. You'd better, Leo warned. No, Pasolos said miserably. I mean... I really can't say. I can't pronounce it. Tr, tr, it's too hard. Tra, Akmon said. Tra, to, too many syllables. They both burst into tears. Leo didn't know if the Kirkopies were telling them the truth, but it was hard to stay mad at weeping dwarfs, no matter how annoying and badly dressed they were. Jason lowered his sword. What do you want to do with them, Leo? Send them to Tartarus? Please, no! Akmon wailed. It might take us weeks to come back. Assuming Gia even lets us, Pasolos sniffled. She controls the doors of death now. She'll be very cross with us. Leo looked at the dwarfs. He'd fought lots of monsters before and never felt bad about dissolving them, but this was different. He had to admit he sort of admired these little guys. They played cool pranks and liked shiny things. Leo could relate. Besides, Percy and Annabeth were in Tartarus right now, hopefully still alive, trudging toward the Dwarves of Death. The idea of sending these twin monkey boys there to face the same nightmarish problem? Well... It didn't seem right. He imagined Gia laughing at his weakness. A demigod, too soft-hearted to kill monsters. He remembered his dream about Camp Half-Blood in ruins, Greek and Roman bodies littering the fields. He remembered Octavian speaking with the Earth Goddess's voice. The Romans move east from New York. They advance on your camp. And nothing can slow them down. Nothing can slow them down, Leo mused. I wonder... What? Jason asked. Leo looked at the dwarfs. 
I'll make you a deal. Akmon's eyes lit up. Thirty percent? We'll leave you all your treasure, Leo said, except the stuff that belongs to us, and the astrolabe, and this book, which we'll take back to the dude in Venice. But he'll destroy us, Pasolos wailed. We won't say where we got it, Leo promised, and we won't kill you. We'll let you go free. Uh, Leo? Jason asked nervously. Akmon squealed with delight. I knew you were as smart as Hercules. I will call you Black Bottom, the sequel. Yeah, no thanks, Leo said. But in return for us sparing your lives, you have to do something for us. I'm going to send you somewhere to steal from some people, harass them, make life hard for them any way you can. You have to follow my directions exactly. You have to swear on the river Styx. We swear, Tassilos said. Stealing from people is our specialty. I love harassment, Akmon agreed. Where are we going? Leo grinned. Ever heard of New York? Chapter 13 Percy Percy had taken his girlfriend on some romantic walks before. This wasn't one of them. They followed the river Phlegathon, stumbling over the glassy black terrain, jumping crevices and hiding behind rocks whenever the vampire girls slowed in front of them. It was tricky to stay far enough back to avoid getting spotted, but close enough to keep Kelly and her comrades in view through the dark, hazy air. The heat from the river baked Percy's skin. Every breath was like inhaling sulfur-scented fiberglass. When they needed a drink, the best they could do was sip some refreshing liquid fire. Yep, Percy definitely knew how to show a girl a good time. At least Annabeth's ankle seemed to have healed. She was hardly limping at all. Her various cuts and scrapes had faded. She'd tied her blonde hair back with a strip of denim torn from her pants leg, and in the fiery light of the river, her gray eyes flickered. Despite being beat up, sooty, and dressed like a homeless person, she looked great to Percy. So what if they were in Tartarus? So what if they stood a slim chance of surviving? He was so glad that they were together, he had the ridiculous urge to smile. Physically, Percy felt better, too, though his clothes looked like he'd been through a hurricane of broken glass. He was thirsty, hungry, and scared out of his mind, though he wasn't going to tell Annabeth that. But he'd shaken off the hopeless cold of the river Cocytus, and as nasty as the firewater tasted, it seemed to keep him going. Time was impossible to judge. They trudged along, following the river as it cut through the harsh landscape. Fortunately, the Empusai weren't exactly speedwalkers. They shuffled on their mismatched bronze and donkey legs, hissing and fighting with each other, apparently in no hurry to reach the doors of death. Once, the demons sped up in excitement and swarmed something that looked like a beached carcass on the riverbank.
Percy couldn't tell what it was. A fallen monster? An animal of some kind? The Impusai attacked it with relish. When the demons moved on, Percy and Annabeth reached the spot and found nothing left except a few splintered bones and glistening stains drying in the heat of the river. Percy had no doubt the Empusai would devour demigods with the same gusto. Come on. He led Annabeth gently away from the scene. We don't want to lose them. As they walked, Percy thought about the first time he'd fought the Empusa Kelly at Good High School's freshman orientation, when he and Rachel Elizabeth Dare got trapped in the band hall. At the time, it seemed like a hopeless situation. Now, he'd give anything to have a problem that simple. At least he'd been in the mortal world then. Here, there was nowhere to run. Wow. When he started looking back on the war with Kronos as the good old days, that was sad. He kept hoping things would get better for Annabeth and him, but their lives just got more and more dangerous, as if the three fates were up there spinning their futures with barbed wire instead of thread, just to see how much two demigods could tolerate. After a few more miles, the Empusai disappeared over a ridge. When Percy and Annabeth caught up, they found themselves at the edge of another massive cliff. The river Phlegathon spilled over the side in jagged tiers of fiery waterfalls. The demon ladies were picking their way down the cliff, jumping from ledge to ledge like mountain goats. Percy's heart crept into his throat. Even if he and Annabeth reached the bottom of the cliff alive, they didn't have much to look forward to. The landscape below them was a bleak ash-gray plain bristling with black trees, like insect hair. The ground was pocketed with blisters. Every once in a while, a bubble would swell and burst, disgorging a monster-like larva from an egg. Suddenly, Percy wasn't hungry anymore. All the newly formed monsters were crawling and hobbling in the same direction, toward a bank of black fog that swallowed the horizon like a storm front. The phlegathon flowed in the same direction until about halfway across the plain, where it met another river of black water. Maybe the Cocytus? The two floods combined in a steaming, boiling cataract and flowed on as one toward the black fog. The longer Percy looked into that storm of darkness, the less he wanted to go there. It could be hiding anything. An ocean, a bottomless pit, an army of monsters. But if the doors of death were in that direction, it was their only chance to get home. He peered over the edge of the cliff. Wish we could fly, he muttered. Annabeth rubbed her arms. Remember Luke's winged shoes? I wonder if they're still down here somewhere. Percy remembered. Those shoes had been cursed to drag their wearer into Tartarus. They'd almost taken his best friend, Grover. I'd settle for a hang glider. Maybe not a good idea, Annabeth pointed. Above them, dark-winged shapes spiraled in and out of the blood-red clouds. Furies? Percy wondered. Or some other kind of demon, Annabeth said, 
Tartarus has thousands. Including the kind that eats hang gliders, Percy guessed. Okay, so we climb. He couldn't see the Empusai below them anymore. They disappeared behind one of the ridges, but that didn't matter. It was clear where he and Annabeth needed to go. Like all the maggot monsters crawling over the plains of Tartarus, they should head toward the dark horizon. Percy was just brimming with enthusiasm for that. Chapter 14 Percy As they started down the cliff, Percy concentrated on the challenges at hand, keeping his footing, avoiding rock slides that would alert the Empusai to their presence, and, of course, making sure he and Annabeth didn't plummet to their deaths. About halfway down the precipice, Annabeth said, Stop, okay? Just a quick break. Her legs wobbled so badly, Percy cursed himself for not calling a rest earlier. They sat together on a ledge next to a roaring, fiery waterfall. Percy put his arm around Annabeth, and she leaned against him, shaking from exhaustion. He wasn't much better. His stomach felt like it had shrunk to the size of a gumdrop. If they came across any more monster carcasses, he was afraid he might pull an empusa and try to devour it. At least he had Annabeth. They would find a way out of Tartarus. They had to. He didn't think much of fates and prophecies, but he did believe in one thing. Annabeth and he were supposed to be together. They hadn't survived so much just to get killed now. Things could be worse, Annabeth ventured. Yeah? Percy didn't see how, but he tried to sound upbeat. She snuggled against him. Her hair smelled of smoke, and if he closed his eyes, he could almost imagine they were at the campfire at Camp Half-Blood. We could have fallen into the River Lethe, she said. Lost all our memories. Percy's skin crawled just thinking about it. He'd had enough trouble with amnesia for one lifetime. Only last month, Hera had erased his memories to put him among the Roman demigods. Percy had stumbled into Camp Jupiter with no idea who he was or where he came from. And a few years before that, he'd fought a titan on the banks of the Lethe, near Hades' palace. He'd blasted the titan with water from that river and completely wiped his memory clean. Yeah, the Lethe, he muttered. Not my favorite. What was the titan's name? Annabeth asked. Uh, Iapetus. He said it meant the Impaler or something. No, the name you gave him after he lost his memory. Steve? Bob, Percy said. Annabeth managed a weak laugh. Bob the Titan. Percy's lips were so parched it hurt to smile. He wondered what had happened to Iapetus after they'd left him in Hades' palace, if he was still content being Bob, friendly, happy, and clueless. Percy hoped so, but the underworld seemed to bring out the worst in everyone, monsters, heroes, and gods. He gazed across the ashen plains. 
the other Titans were supposed to be here in Tartarus. Maybe bound in chains or roaming aimlessly or hiding in some of those dark crevices. Percy and his allies had destroyed the worst Titan, Kronos, but even his remains might be down here somewhere. A billion angry Titan particles floating through the blood-colored clouds or lurking in that dark fog. Percy decided not to think about that. He kissed Annabeth's forehead. We should keep moving. You want some more fire to drink? Ugh, I'll pass. They struggled to their feet. The rest of the cliff looked impossible to descend, nothing more than a cross-hatching of tiny ledges. But they kept climbing down. Percy's body went on autopilot. His fingers cramped. He felt blisters popping up on his ankles. He got shaky from hunger. He wondered if they would die of starvation or if the fire water would keep them going. He remembered the punishment of Tantalus, who'd been permanently stuck in a pool of water under a fruit tree but couldn't reach either food or drink. Geez, Percy hadn't thought about Tantalus in years. That stupid guy had been paroled briefly to serve as director at Camp Half-Blood. Probably he was back in the fields of punishment. Percy had never felt sorry for the jerk before, but now he was starting to sympathize. He could imagine what it would be like, getting hungrier and hungrier, for eternity, but never being able to eat. Keep climbing, he told himself. Cheeseburgers, his stomach replied. Shut up, he thought. With fries, his stomach complained. A billion years later, with a dozen new blisters on his feet, Percy reached the bottom. He helped Annabeth down, and they collapsed on the ground. Ahead of them stretched miles of wasteland, bubbling with monstrous larvae and big insect hair trees. To their right, the phlegathons split into branches that etched the plain, widening into a delta of smoke and fire. To the north, Along the main route of the river, the ground was riddled with cave entrances. Here and there, spires of rock jutted up like exclamation points. Under Percy's hand, the soil felt alarmingly warm and smooth. He tried to grab a handful, then realized that under a thin layer of dirt and debris, the ground was a single vast membrane, like skin. He almost threw up, but forced himself not to. There was nothing in his stomach but fire. He didn't mention it to Annabeth, but he started to feel like something was watching them. Something vast and malevolent. He couldn't zero in on it because the presence was all around them. Watching was the wrong word, too. That implied eyes, and this thing was simply aware of them. The ridges above them now looked less like steps and more like rows of massive teeth. The spires of rock looked like broken ribs, and if the ground was skin... Percy forced those thoughts aside. This place was just freaking him out. That was all. Annabeth stood, wiping soot from her face. She gazed toward the darkness on the horizon. 
we're going to be completely exposed, crossing this plain. About a hundred yards ahead of them, a blister burst on the ground. A monster clawed its way out. A glistening telkine with slick fur, a seal-like body, and stunted human limbs. It managed to crawl a few yards before something shot out of the nearest cave, so fast that Percy could only register a dark green reptilian head. The monster snatched the squealing telkine in its jaws and dragged it into the darkness. Reborn in Tartarus for two seconds only to be eaten. Percy wondered if that telkine would pop up some other place in Tartarus and how long it would take to reform. He swallowed down the sour taste of firewater. Oh yeah, this'll be fun. Annabeth helped him to his feet. He took one last look at the cliffs, but there was no going back. He would have given a thousand golden drachma to have Frank Jong with them right now. Good old Frank, who always seemed to show up when needed and could turn into an eagle or a dragon to fly them across this stupid wasteland. They started walking, trying to avoid the cave entrances, sticking close to the bank of the river. They were just skirting one of the spires when a glint of movement caught Percy's eye, something darting between the rocks to their right. A monster following them? Or maybe it was just some random baddie heading for the doors of death. Suddenly, he remembered why they'd started following this route, and he froze in his tracks. The Empusai! He grabbed Annabeth's arm. Where are they? Annabeth scanned a 360, her gray eyes bright with alarm. Maybe the demon ladies had been snapped up by that reptile in the cave. If the Empusai were still ahead of them, they should have been visible somewhere on the plains. Unless they were hiding. Too late. Percy drew his sword. The Empusai emerged from the rocks all around them, five of them forming a ring, a perfect trap. Kelly limped forward on her mismatched legs. Her fiery hair burned across her shoulders like a miniature Phlegathon waterfall. Her tattered cheerleader outfit was splattered with rusty brown stains, and Percy was pretty sure they weren't ketchup. She fixed him with her glowing red eyes and bared her fangs. Percy Jackson, she cooed. How awesome! I don't even have to return to the mortal world to destroy you. Chapter 15 Percy Percy recalled how dangerous Kelly had been the last time they'd fought in the labyrinth. Despite those mismatched legs, she could move fast when she wanted to. She dodged his sword strikes and would have eaten his face if Annabeth hadn't stabbed her from behind. Now she had four friends with her. And your friend Annabeth is with you. Kelly hissed with laughter. Oh, yeah, I totally remember her. Kelly touched her own sternum, where the tip of the knife had exited when Annabeth stabbed her in the back. What's the matter, daughter of Athena? Don't have your weapon? Bummer, I'd use it to kill you. 
Percy tried to think. He and Annabeth stood shoulder to shoulder, as they had many times before, ready to fight. But neither of them was in good shape for battle. Annabeth was empty-handed. They were hopelessly outnumbered. There was nowhere to run. No help coming. Briefly, Percy considered calling for Mrs. O'Leary, his hellhound friend who could shadow travel. Even if she heard him, could she make it into Tartarus? This was where monsters went when they died. Calling her here might kill her, or turn her back to her natural state as a fierce monster. No, he couldn't do that to his dog. So, no help. Fighting was a long shot. That left Annabeth's favorite tactics. Trickery, talk, delay. So, he started, I guess you're wondering what we're doing in Tartarus. Kelly snickered. Not really. I just want to kill you. That would have been it, but Annabeth chimed in. Too bad, she said, because you have no idea what's going on in the mortal world. The other Empusai circled, watching Kelly for a cue to attack, but the ex-cheerleader only snarled, crouching out of reach of Percy's sword. We know enough, Kelly said. Gia has spoken. You're heading toward a major defeat. Annabeth sounded so confident even Percy was impressed. She glanced at the other Empusai one by one, then pointed accusingly at Kelly. This one claims she's leading you to a victory. She's lying. The last time she was in the mortal world, Kelly was in charge of keeping my friend Luke Castellan faithful to Kronos. In the end, Luke rejected him. He gave his life to expel Kronos. The Titans lost because Kelly failed. Now Kelly wants to lead you to another disaster. The other Empusai muttered and shifted uneasily. Enough! Kelly's fingernails grew into long black talons. She glared at Annabeth as if imagining her sliced into small pieces. Percy was pretty sure Kelly had had a thing for Luke Castellan. Luke had that effect on girls, even donkey-legged vampires. And Percy wasn't sure bringing up his name was such a good idea. The girl lies, Kelly said. So the Titans lost, fine. That was part of the plan to wake Gia. Now the Earth Mother and her giants will destroy the mortal world and we will totally feast on demigods. The other vampires gnashed their teeth in a frenzy of excitement. Percy had been in the middle of a school of sharks when the water was full of blood. That wasn't nearly as scary as Empusai ready to feed. He prepared to attack, but how many could he dispatch before they overwhelmed him? It wouldn't be enough. The demigods have united. Annabeth yelled. You'd better think twice before you attack us. Romans and Greeks will fight you together. You don't stand a chance. The Impusai backed up nervously, hissing, Romany. Percy guessed they'd had experience with the Twelfth Legion before, and it hadn't worked out well for them. 
Yeah, you bet, Romany. Percy bared his forearm and showed them the brand he'd gotten at Camp Jupiter. The SPQR mark with the trident of Neptune. You mix Greek and Roman and you know what you get? You get BAM! He stomped his foot and the Empusai scrambled back. One fell off the boulder where she'd been perched. That made Percy feel good. But they recovered quickly and closed in again. Bold talk, Kelly said, for two demigods lost in Tartarus. Lower your sword, Percy Jackson, and I'll kill you quickly. Believe me, there are worse ways to die down here. Wait, Annabeth tried again. Aren't M. Pusai the servants of Hecate? Kelly curled her lip. So? So Hecate is on our side now, Annabeth said. She has a cabin at Camp Half-Blood. Some of her demigod children are my friends. If you fight us, she'll be angry. Percy wanted to hug Annabeth. She was so brilliant. One of the other Empusai growled. Is this true, Kelly? Has our mistress made peace with Olympus? Shut up, Seraphine, Kelly screeched. Gods, you're annoying. I will not cross the Dark Lady. Annabeth took the opening. You'd all be better following Seraphine. She's older and wiser. Yes, Seraphine shrieked. Follow me. Kelly struck so fast, Percy didn't have the chance to raise his sword. Fortunately, she didn't attack him. Kelly lashed out at Seraphine. For half a second, the two demons were a blur of slashing claws and fangs. Then it was over. Kelly stood triumphant over a pile of dust. From her claws hung the tattered remains of Seraphine's dress. Any more issues? Kelly snapped at her sisters. Hecate is the goddess of the mist. Her ways are mysterious. Who knows which side she truly favors? She is also the goddess of the crossroads, and she expects us to make our own choices. I choose the path that will bring us the most demigod blood. I choose Gia. Her friends hissed in approval. Annabeth glanced at Percy, and he saw that she was out of ideas. She'd done what she could. She'd gotten Kelly to eliminate one of her own. Now there was nothing left but to fight. For two years, I churned in the void, Kelly said. Do you know how completely annoying it is to be vaporized, Annabeth Chase? Slowly reforming, fully conscious, in searing pain for months and years as your body regrows. Then, finally breaking the crust of this hellish place and clawing your way back to daylight? All because some little girl stabbed you in the back? Her baleful eyes held Annabeth's. I wonder what happens if a demigod is killed in Tartarus. I doubt it's ever happened before. Let's find out. Percy sprang, slashing Riptide in a huge arc. He cut one of the demons in half, but Kelly dodged and charged Annabeth. The other two Empusai launched themselves at Percy. 
One grabbed his sword arm. Her friend jumped on his back. Percy tried to ignore them and staggered toward Annabeth, determined to go down defending her if he had to. But Annabeth was doing pretty well. She tumbled to one side, evading Kelly's claws, and came up with a rock in her hand, which she smacked into Kelly's nose. Kelly wailed. Annabeth scooped up gravel and flung it in the Empusa's eyes. Meanwhile, Percy thrashed from side to side, trying to throw off his Empusa hitchhiker, but her claws sank deeper into his shoulders. The second Empusa held his arm, preventing him from using Riptide. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Kelly lunge, raking her talons across Annabeth's arm. Annabeth screamed and fell. Percy stumbled in her direction. The vampire on his back sank her teeth into his neck. Searing pain coursed through his body. His knees buckled. Stay on your feet, he told himself. You have to beat them. Then the other vampire bit his sword arm, and Riptide clattered to the ground. That was it. His luck had finally run out. Kelly loomed over Annabeth, savoring her moment of triumph. The other two Empusai circled Percy, their mouths slavering, ready for another taste. Then a shadow fell across Percy. A deep war cry bellowed from somewhere above, echoing across the plains of Tartarus, and a titan dropped onto the battlefield. Chapter 16 Percy Percy thought he was hallucinating. It just wasn't possible that a huge silvery figure could drop out of the sky and stomp Kelly flat trampling her into a mound of monster dust. But that's exactly what happened. The titan was ten feet tall, with wild silver Einstein hair, pure silver eyes, and muscular arms protruding from a ripped-up blue janitor's uniform. In his hand was a massive pushbroom. His name tag, incredibly read, Bob. Annabeth yelped and tried to crawl away, but the giant janitor wasn't interested in her. He turned to the two remaining Empusai who stood over Percy. One was foolish enough to attack. She lunged with the speed of a tiger, but she never stood a chance. A spearhead jutted from the end of Bob's broom. With a single deadly swipe, he cut her to dust. The last vampire tried to run. Bob threw his broom like a massive boomerang. Was there such a thing as a broomerang? It sliced through the vampire and returned to Bob's hand. Sweep! The titan grinned with delight and did a victory dance. Sweep, sweep, sweep! Percy couldn't speak. He couldn't bring himself to believe that something good had actually happened. Annabeth looked just as shocked. How? She stammered. Percy called me, the janitor said happily. Yes, he did. Annabeth crawled a little farther away. Her arm was bleeding badly. Called you? He? Wait, you're Bob? 
The Bob? The janitor frowned when he noticed Annabeth's wounds. Owie! Annabeth flinched as he knelt next to her. It's okay, Percy said, still woozy with pain. He's friendly. He remembered when he'd first met Bob. The Titan had healed a bad wound on Percy's shoulder just by touching it. Sure enough, the janitor tapped Annabeth's forearm and it mended instantly. Bob chuckled, pleased with himself, then bounded over to Percy and healed his bleeding neck and arm. The Titan's hands were surprisingly warm and gentle. All better, Bob declared, his eerie silver eyes crinkling with pleasure. I am Bob, Percy's friend. Uh, yeah, Percy managed. Thanks for the help, Bob. It's really good to see you again. Yes, the janitor agreed. Bob, that's me. Bob, Bob, Bob. He shuffled around, obviously pleased with his name. I am helping. I heard my name upstairs in Hades's palace. Nobody calls for Bob unless there is a mess. Bob, sweep up these bones. Bob, mop up these tortured souls. Bob, a zombie exploded in the dining room. Annabeth gave Percy a puzzled look, but he had no explanation. Then I heard my friend call. The Titan beamed. Percy said, Bob. He grabbed Percy's arm and hoisted him to his feet. That's awesome. Percy said. Seriously, but how did you... Oh, time to talk later. Bob's expression turned serious. We must go before they find you. They are coming. Yes, indeed. They? Annabeth asked. Percy scanned the horizon. He saw no approaching monsters. Nothing but the stark gray wasteland. Yes, Bob agreed. But Bob knows a way. Come on, friends. We will have fun. Chapter 17 Frank Frank woke up as a python, which puzzled him. Changing into an animal wasn't confusing. He did that all the time. But he had never changed from one animal to another in his sleep before. He was pretty sure he hadn't dozed off as a snake. Usually, he slept like a dog. He discovered that he got through the night much better if he curled up on his bunk in the shape of a bulldog. For whatever reason, his nightmares didn't bother him as much. The constant screaming in his head almost disappeared. He had no idea why he'd become a reticulated python, but it did explain his dream about slowly swallowing a cow. His jaw was still sore. He braced himself and changed back to human form. Immediately, his splitting headache returned, along with the voices. Fight them, yelled Mars. Take this ship! Defend Rome! The voice of Ares shouted back, Kill the Romans! Blood and death! Large guns! 
His father's Roman and Greek personalities screamed back and forth in Frank's mind with the usual soundtrack of battle noises, explosions, assault rifles, roaring jet engines, all throbbing like a subwoofer behind Frank's eyes. He sat up on his berth, dizzy with pain. As he did every morning, he took a deep breath and stared at the lamp on his desk. A tiny flame that burned night and day, fueled by magic olive oil from the supply room. Fire, Frank's biggest fear. Keeping an open flame in his room terrified him, but it also helped him focus. The noise in his head faded to the background, allowing him to think. He'd gotten better at this, but for days he'd been almost worthless. As soon as the fighting broke out at Camp Jupiter, the war gods' two voices had started screaming nonstop. Ever since, Frank had been stumbling around in a daze, barely able to function. He'd acted like a fool, and he was sure his friends thought he'd lost his marbles. He couldn't tell them what was wrong. There was nothing they could do, and from listening to them talk. Frank was pretty sure they didn't have the same problem with their godly parents yelling in their ears. Just Frank's luck, but he had to pull it together. His friends needed him, especially now with Annabeth gone. Annabeth had been kind to him, even when he was so distracted he'd acted like a buffoon. Annabeth had been patient and helpful. While Ares screamed that Athena's children couldn't be trusted, and Mars bellowed at him to kill all the Greeks, Frank had grown to respect Annabeth. Now that they were without her, Frank was the next best thing the group had to a military strategist. They would need him for the trip ahead. He rose and got dressed. Fortunately, he'd managed to buy some new clothes in Siena a couple of days ago. Replacing the laundry that Leo had sent flying away on Buford the table. Long story. He tugged on some Levi's in an army green T-shirt, then reached for his favorite pullover before remembering he didn't need it. The weather was too warm. More important, he didn't need the pockets anymore to protect the magical piece of firewood that controlled his lifespan. Hazel was keeping it safe for him. Maybe that should have made him nervous. If the firewood burned, Frank died. End of story. But he trusted Hazel more than he trusted himself. Knowing she was safeguarding his big weakness made him feel better, like he'd fastened his seatbelt for a high-speed chase. He slung his bow and quiver over his shoulder. Immediately, they morphed into a regular backpack. Frank loved that. He never would have known about the quiver's camouflage power if Leo hadn't figured it out for him. Leo, Mars raged. He must die. Throttle him, Ares cried. Throttle everyone. Who are we talking about again? The two began shouting at each other again over the sound of bombs exploding in Frank's skull. He steadied himself against the wall. For days, Frank had listened to those voices demanding Leo Valdez's death. After all, Leo had started the war with Camp Jupiter by firing up Alista into the forum. 
Sure, he'd been possessed at the time, but still, Mars demanded vengeance. Leo made things harder by constantly teasing Frank, and Ares demanded that Frank retaliate for every insult. Frank kept the voices at bay, but it wasn't easy. On their trip across the Atlantic, Leo had said something that still stuck in Frank's mind. When they'd learned that Gia, the evil Earth goddess, had put a bounty on their heads, Leo had wanted to know for how much. I can understand not being as pricey as Jason or Percy, he'd said, but am I worth, like, two or three francs? Just another one of Leo's stupid jokes, but the comment hit a little too close to home. On the Argo, too, Frank definitely felt like the LVP, least valuable player. Sure, he could turn into animals. So what? His biggest claim to helpfulness so far had been changing into a weasel to escape from an underground workshop, and even that had been Leo's idea. Frank was better known for the giant goldfish fiasco in Atlanta, and just yesterday for turning into a 200-kilo gorilla, only to get knocked senseless by a flashbang grenade. Leo hadn't made any gorilla jokes at his expense yet, but it was only a matter of time. Kill him! Torture him! Then kill him! The two sides of the war god seemed to be kicking and punching each other inside Frank's head, using his sinuses as a wrestling mat. Blood! Guns! Rome! War! Quiet down, Frank ordered. Amazingly, the voices obeyed. Okay, then, Frank thought. Maybe he could finally get those annoying, screaming mini-gods under control. Maybe today would be a good day. That hope was shattered as soon as he climbed above deck. What are they? Hazel asked. The Argo, too, was docked at a busy wharf. On one side stretched a shipping channel about a half a kilometer wide. On the other spread the city of Venice, red tiled roofs, metal church domes, steepled towers, and sun-bleached buildings in all the colors of Valentine candy hearts. Red, white, ochre, pink, and orange. Everywhere there were statues of lions, on top of pedestals, over doorways, on the porticos of the largest buildings. There were so many, Frank figured the lion must be the city's mascot. Where streets should have been, green canals etched their way through the neighborhoods, each one jammed with motorboats. Along the docks, the sidewalks were mobbed with tourists, shopping at the t-shirt kiosks, overflowing from stores, and lounging across acres of outdoor cafe tables, like pods of sea lions. Frank had thought Rome was full of tourists. This place was insane. Hazel and the rest of his friends weren't paying attention to any of that, though. They had gathered at the starboard rail to stare at the dozens of weird, shaggy monsters milling through the crowds. Each monster was about the size of a cow, with a bowed back like a broken-down horse, matted gray fur, 
skinny legs, and black, cloven hooves. The creatures' heads seemed much too heavy for their necks. Their long, anteater-like snouts drooped to the ground. Their overgrown gray manes completely covered their eyes. Frank watched as one of the creatures lumbered across the promenade, snuffling and licking the pavement with its long tongue. The tourists parted around it, unconcerned. A few even petted it. Frank wondered how the mortals could be so calm. Then the monster's appearance flickered. For a moment, it turned into an old, fat beagle. Jason grunted. The mortals think they're stray dogs. Or pets roaming around, Piper said. My dad shot a film in Venice once. I remember him telling me there were dogs everywhere. Venetians love dogs. Frank frowned. He kept forgetting that Piper's dad was Tristan McLean, A-list movie star. She didn't talk about him much. She seemed pretty down-to-earth for a kid raised in Hollywood. That was fine with Frank. The last thing they needed on this quest was paparazzi taking pictures of all Frank's epic fails. But what are they, he asked, repeating Hazel's question. They look like... Starving, shaggy cows with sheepdog hair. He waited for someone to enlighten him. Nobody volunteered any information. Maybe they're harmless, Leo suggested. They're ignoring the mortals. Harmless? Gleason Hedge laughed. The satyr wore his usual gym shorts, sports shirt, and coach's whistle. His expression was as gruff as ever but he still had one pink rubber band stuck in his hair from the prankster dwarfs in Bologna. Frank was kind of scared to mention it to him. Valdez, how many harmless monsters have we met? We should just aim the ballisti and see what happens. Uh, no, Leo said. For once, Frank agreed with Leo. There were too many monsters it would be impossible to target one without causing collateral damage in the crowds of tourists. Besides, if those creatures panicked and stampeded... We'll have to walk through them and hope they're peaceful, Frank said, hating the idea already. It's the only way we're going to track down the owner of that book. Leo pulled the leather-bound manual from underneath his arm. He'd slapped a sticky note on the cover with the address the dwarfs in Bologna had given him. La Casa Nera, he read. Calle Frezzeria. The Black House, Nico D'Angelo translated. Calle Frezzeria is the street. Frank tried not to flinch when he realized Nico was at his shoulder. The guy was so quiet and brooding he almost seemed to dematerialize when he wasn't speaking. Hazel might have been the one who came back from the dead, but Nico was way more ghost-like. You speak Italian? Frank asked. Nico shot him a warning look like, watch the questions. He spoke calmly, though. Frank is right. We have to find that address. The only way to do it is to walk the city. Venice is a maze. We'll have to risk the crowds and those... 
whatever they are. Thunder rumbled in the clear summer sky. They'd passed through some storms the night before. Frank had thought they were over, but now he wasn't sure. The air felt as thick and warm as sauna steam. Jason frowned at the horizon. Maybe I should stay on board. Lots of venti in that storm last night. If they decide to attack the ship again... He didn't need to finish. They'd all had experiences with angry wind spirits. Jason was the only one who had much luck fighting them. Coach Hedge grunted. Well, I'm out too. If you soft-hearted cupcakes are going to stroll through Venice without even whacking those furry animals on the head, forget it. I don't like boring expeditions. It's okay, coach. Leo grinned. We still have to repair the foremast. Then I need your help in the engine room. I've got an idea for a new installation. Frank didn't like the gleam in Leo's eye. Since Leo had found that Archimedes sphere, he'd been trying out a lot of new installations. Usually, they exploded or sent smoke billowing upstairs into Frank's cabin. Well, Piper shifted her feet. Whoever goes should be good with animals. I, uh, I'll admit I'm not great with cows. Frank figured there was a story behind that comment, but he decided not to ask. I'll go, he said. He wasn't sure why he volunteered, maybe because he was anxious to be useful for a change, or maybe he didn't want anyone beating him to the punch. Animals? Frank can turn into animals. Send him. Leo patted him on the shoulder and handed him the leather-bound book. Awesome. If you pass a hardware store, could you get me some two-by-fours and a gallon of tar? Leo, Hazel chided. It's not a shopping trip. I'll go with Frank, Nico offered. Frank's eye started twitching. The war god's voices rose to a crescendo in his head. Kill him, Greekus scum! No! I love Greekus scum! Uh, you're good with animals? He asked. Nico smiled without humor. Actually, most animals hate me. They can sense death. But there's something about this city. His expression turned grim. Lots of death. Restless spirits. If I go, I may be able to keep them at bay. Besides, as you noticed, I speak Italian. Leo scratched his head. Lots of death, huh? Personally, I'm trying to avoid lots of death. But you guys have fun. Frank wasn't sure what scared him more. Shaggy cow monsters... Hordes of restless ghosts, or going somewhere alone with Nico D'Angelo. I'll go too. Hazel slipped her arm through Frank's. Three is the best number for a demigod quest, right? Frank tried not to look too relieved. He didn't want to offend Nico, but he glanced at Hazel and told her with his eyes, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Nico stared at the canals, as if wondering what new and interesting forms of evil spirits might be lurking there. 
All right, then. Let's go find the owner of that book. Chapter 18 Frank Frank might have liked Venice if it hadn't been summertime and tourist season, and if the city wasn't overrun with large, hairy creatures. Between the rows of old houses and the canals, the sidewalks were already too narrow for the crowds jostling one another and stopping to take pictures. The monsters made things worse. They shuffled around with their heads down, bumping into mortals and sniffing the pavement. One seemed to find something it liked at the edge of a canal. It nibbled and licked at a crack between the stones until it dislodged some sort of greenish root. The monster sucked it up happily and shambled along. Well, they're plant eaters, Frank said. That's good news. Hazel slipped her hand into his. Unless they supplement their diet with demigods, let's hope not. Frank was so pleased to be holding her hand, the crowds and the heat and the monsters suddenly didn't seem so bad. He felt needed, useful. Not that Hazel required his protection. Anybody who'd seen her charging on Orion with her sword drawn would know she could take care of herself. Still, Frank liked being next to her, imagining he was her bodyguard. If any of these monsters tried to hurt her, Frank would gladly turn into a rhinoceros and push them into the canal. Could he do a rhino? Frank had never tried that before. Nico stopped. There. They'd turned onto a smaller street, leaving the canal behind. Ahead of them was a small plaza lined with five-story buildings. The area was strangely deserted, as if the mortals could sense it wasn't safe. In the middle of the cobblestone courtyard, a dozen shaggy cow creatures were sniffing around the mossy base of an old stone well. A lot of cows in one place, Frank said. Yeah, but look, Nico said. Past that archway. Nico's eyes must have been better than his. Frank squinted. At the far end of the plaza, a stone archway carved with lions led into a narrow street. Just past the arch, one of the townhouses was painted black, the only black building Frank had seen so far in Venice. La Casa Nera, he guessed. Hazel's grip tightened on his fingers. I don't like that plaza. It feels... cold. Frank wasn't sure what she meant. He was still sweating like crazy. But Nico nodded. He studied the townhouse windows, most of which were covered with wooden shutters. You're right, Hazel. This neighborhood is filled with lemurs. Lemurs? Frank asked nervously. I'm guessing you don't mean the furry little guys from Madagascar? Angry ghosts, Nico said. Lemures go back to Roman times. They hang around a lot of Italian cities, but I've never felt so many in one place. My mom told me... He hesitated. She used to tell me stories about the ghosts of Venice. Again, Frank wondered about Nico's past, but he was afraid to ask. He caught Hazel's eye. Go ahead, she seemed to be saying. 
Nico needs practice talking to people. The sounds of assault rifles and atom bombs got louder in Frank's head. Mars and Ares were trying to outsing each other with Dixie and the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Frank did his best to push that aside. Nico, your mom was Italian? He guessed. She was from Venice? Nico nodded reluctantly. She met Hades here, back in the 1930s. As World War II got closer, she fled to the U.S. with my sister and me. I mean, Bianca, my other sister. I don't remember much about Italy, but I can still speak the language. Frank tried to think of a response. Oh, that's nice, didn't seem to cut it. He was hanging out with not one, but two demigods who'd been pulled out of time. They were both... Technically, about 70 years older than he was. Must have been hard on your mom, Frank said. I guess we'll do anything for someone we love. Hazel squeezed his hand appreciatively. Nico stared at the cobblestones. Yeah, he said bitterly. I guess we will. Frank wasn't sure what Nico was thinking. He had a hard time imagining Nico D'Angelo acting out of love for anybody, except maybe Hazel. But Frank decided he'd gone as far as he dared with the personal questions. So the Lemuris, he swallowed. How do we avoid them? I'm already on it, Nico said. I'm sending out the message that they should stay away and ignore us. Hopefully that's enough. Otherwise... Things could get messy. Hazel pursed her lips. Let's get going, she suggested. Halfway across the piazza, everything went wrong, but it had nothing to do with ghosts. They were skirting the well in the middle of the square, trying to give the cow monsters some distance, when Hazel stumbled on a loose piece of cobblestone. Frank caught her. Six or seven of the big gray beasts turned to look at them. Frank glimpsed a glowing green eye under one's mane, and instantly he was hit with a wave of nausea, the way he felt when he ate too much cheese or ice cream. The creatures made deep, throbbing sounds in their throats, like angry foghorns. Nice cows, Frank murmured. He put himself between his friends and the monsters. Guys, I'm thinking we should back out of here slowly. I'm such a klutz, Hazel whispered. Sorry. It's not your fault, Nico said. Look at your feet. Frank glanced down and caught his breath. Under their shoes, the paving stones were moving. Spiky plant tendrils were pushing up from the cracks. Nico stepped back. The roots snaked out in his direction, trying to follow. The tendrils got thicker, exuding a steamy green vapor that smelled of boiled cabbage. These roots seem to like demigods, Frank noted. Hazel's hand drifted to her sword hilt. And the cow creatures lacked the roots. The entire herd was now looking their direction, making foghorn growls and stamping their hooves. Frank understood animal behavior well enough to get the message. You are standing on our food. That makes you enemies. 
Frank tried to think. There were too many monsters to fight. Something about their eyes hidden under those shaggy manes. Frank had gotten sick from the barest glimpse. He had a bad feeling that if those monsters made direct eye contact, he might get a lot worse than nauseous. Don't meet their eyes, Frank warned. I'll distract them. You two back up slowly toward that black house. The creatures tensed, ready to attack. Never mind, Frank said. Run! As it turned out, Frank could not turn into a rhino, and he lost valuable time trying. Nico and Hazel bolted for the side street. Frank stepped in front of the monsters, hoping to keep their attention. He yelled at the top of his lungs, imagining himself as a fearsome rhinoceros. But with Ares and Mars screaming in his head, he couldn't concentrate. He remained regular old Frank. Two of the cow monsters peeled off from the herd to chase Nico and Hazel. No! Frank yelled after them. Me! I'm the rhino! The rest of the herd surrounded Frank. They growled, emerald green gas billowing from their nostrils. Frank stepped back to avoid the stuff, but the stench nearly knocked him over. Okay, so not a rhino. Something else. Frank knew he had only seconds before the monsters trampled or poisoned him, but he couldn't think. He couldn't hold the image of any animal long enough to change form. Then he glanced up at one of the townhouse balconies and saw a stone carving. The symbol of Venice. The next instant, Frank was a full-grown lion. He roared in challenge, then sprang from the middle of the monster herd and landed eight meters away, on top of the old stone well. The monsters growled in reply. Three of them sprang at once, but Frank was ready. His lion reflexes were built for speed in combat. He slashed the first two monsters into dust with his claws, then sank his fangs into the third one's throat and tossed it aside. There were seven left, plus the two chasing his friends. Not great odds, but Frank had to keep the bulk of the herd focused on him. He roared at the monsters, and they edged away. They outnumbered him, yes, but Frank was a top-of-the-line predator. The herd monsters knew it. They had also just watched him send three of their friends to Tartarus. He pressed his advantage and leaped off the well, still bearing his fangs. The herd backed off. If he could just maneuver around them, then turn and run after his friends, he was doing all right until he took his first backward step toward the arch. One of the cows, either the bravest or the stupidest, took that as a sign of weakness. It charged and blasted Frank in the face with green gas. He slashed the monster to dust, but the damage was already done. He forced himself not to breathe. Regardless, he could feel the fur burning off his snout. His eyes stung. He staggered back, half-blind and dizzy, dimly aware of Nico screaming his name. Frank! Frank! He tried to focus. He was back in human form, retching and stumbling. His face felt like it was peeling off. In front of him... The green cloud of gas floated between him and the herd.
The remaining cow monsters eyed him warily, probably wondering if Frank had any more tricks up his sleeve. He glanced behind him. Under the stone arch, Nico D'Angelo was holding his black Stygian iron sword, gesturing at Frank to hurry. At Nico's feet, two puddles of darkness stained the pavement, no doubt the remains of the cow monsters that had chased them. And Hazel? She was propped against the wall behind her brother. She wasn't moving. Frank ran toward them, forgetting about the monster herd. He rushed past Nico and grabbed Hazel's shoulders. Her head slumped against her chest. She got a blast of green gas right in the face, Nico said miserably. I... I wasn't fast enough. Frank couldn't tell if she was breathing. Rage and despair battled inside him. He'd always been scared of Nico. Now, he wanted to dropkick the son of Hades into the nearest canal. Maybe that wasn't fair, but Frank didn't care. Neither did the war gods screaming in his head. We need to get her back to the ship, Frank said. The cow monster herd prowled cautiously just beyond the archway. They bellowed their foghorn cries. From the surrounding streets, more monsters answered. Reinforcements would soon have the demigods surrounded. We'll never make it on foot. Nico said. Frank, turn into a giant eagle. Don't worry about me. Get her back to the Argo, too. With his face burning and the voices screaming in his mind, Frank wasn't sure he could change shape. But he was about to try when a voice behind them said, Your friends can't help you. They don't know the cure. Frank spun. Standing in the threshold of the black house was a young man in jeans and a denim shirt. He had curly black hair and a friendly smile, though Frank doubted he was friendly. Probably he wasn't even human. At the moment, Frank didn't care. Can you cure her? He asked. Of course, the man said. But you'd better hurry inside. I think you've angered every catobleps in Venice. Chapter 19 Frank They barely made it inside. As soon as their host threw the bolts, the cow monsters bellowed and slammed into the door, making it shudder on its hinges. Oh, they can't get in, the man in denim promised. You're safe now. Safe? Frank demanded. Hazel is dying. Their host frowned as if he didn't appreciate Frank ruining his good mood. Yes, yes, bring her this way. Frank carried Hazel as they followed the man farther into the building. Nico offered to help, but Frank didn't need it. Hazel weighed nothing, and Frank's body hummed with adrenaline. He could feel Hazel shivering, so at least he knew she was alive, but her skin was cold. Her lips had taken on a greenish tinge, or was that just Frank's blurry vision? His eyes still burned from the monster's breath. His lungs felt like he'd inhaled a flaming cabbage. He didn't know why the gas had affected him less than it had Hazel. Maybe she'd gotten more of it in her lungs. He would have given anything to change places if it meant saving her. 
The voices of Mars and Ares yelled in his head, urging him to kill Nico and the man in denim and anyone else he could find, but Frank forced down the noise. The house's front room was some sort of greenhouse. The walls were lined with tables of plant trays under fluorescent lights. The air smelled of fertilizer solution. Maybe Venetians did their gardening inside, since they were surrounded by water instead of soil. Frank wasn't sure, but he didn't spend much time worrying about it. The back room looked like a combination garage, college dorm, and computer lab. Against the left wall glowed a bank of servers and laptops, their screensavers flashing pictures of plowed fields and tractors. Against the right wall sat a single bed, a messy desk, and an open wardrobe filled with extra denim clothes and a stack of farm implements, like pitchforks and rakes. The back wall was a huge garage door. Parked next to it was a red and gold chariot with an open carriage and a single axle, like the chariots Frank had raced at Camp Jupiter. Sprouting from the sides of the driver's box were giant feathery wings. Wrapped around the rim of the left wheel, a spotted python snored loudly. Frank hadn't known that pythons could snore. He hoped he hadn't done that himself in python form last night. Set your friend here, said the man in denim. Frank placed Hazel gently on the bed. He removed her sword and tried to make her comfortable, but she was as limp as a scarecrow. Her complexion definitely had a greenish tint. What were those cow things? Frank demanded. What did they do to her? Catobleponies, said their host. Singular, catobleps. In English, it means downlooker. Called that because... They're always looking down. Nico smacked his forehead. Right. I remember reading about them. Frank glared at him. Now you remember? Nico hung his head almost as low as a catobleps. I, uh, used to play this stupid card game when I was younger. Mythomagic? The catobleps was one of the monster cards. Frank blinked. I played Mythomagic. I never saw that card. It was in the Africanus Extreme Expansion deck. Oh. Their host cleared his throat. Are you two done, uh, geeking out, as they say? Right, sorry, Nico muttered. Anyway, Catobleponies have poison breath and a poison gaze. I thought they only lived in Africa. The man in denim shrugged. That's their native land. They were accidentally imported to Venice hundreds of years ago. You've heard of St. Mark? Frank wanted to scream with frustration. He didn't see how any of this was relevant. But if their host could heal Hazel, Frank decided maybe it would be best not to make him angry. Saints? They're not part of Greek mythology. The man in denim chuckled. No, but St. Mark is the patron saint of this city. He died in Egypt. Oh, a long time ago. When the Venetians became powerful, well, 
The relics of saints were a big tourist attraction back in the Middle Ages. The Venetians decided to steal St. Mark's remains and bring them to their big church of San Marco. They smuggled out his body in a barrel of pickled pig parts. That's disgusting, Frank said. Yes, the man agreed with a smile. The point is, you can't do something like that and not have consequences. The Venetians unintentionally smuggled something else out of Egypt, the Caddo Blepines. They came here aboard that ship and have been breeding like rats ever since. They love the magical poison roots that grow here, swampy, foul-smelling plants that creep up from the canals. It makes their breath even more poisonous. Usually the monsters ignore mortals, but demigods? Especially demigods who get in their way. Got it, Frank snapped. Can you cure her? The man shrugged. Possibly. Possibly? Frank had to use all his willpower not to throttle the guy. He put his hand under Hazel's nose. He couldn't feel her breath. Nico, please tell me she's doing that death trance thing like you did in the bronze jar. Nico grimaced. I don't know if Hazel can do that. Her dad is technically Pluto, not Hades, so... Hades? cried their host. He backed away, staring at Nico with distaste. So that's what I smell. Children of the underworld? If I'd known that, I would never have let you in. Frank rose. Hazel's a good person. You promised you would help her. I did not promise. Nico drew his sword. She's my sister, he growled. I don't know who you are, but if you can cure her, you have to. Or so help me by the river sticks. Oh, blah, blah, blah. The man waved his hand. Suddenly, where Nico D'Angelo had been standing was a potted plant about five feet tall with drooping green leaves, tufts of silk, and half a dozen ripe yellow ears of corn. There, the man huffed, wagging his finger at the corn plant. Children of Hades can't order me around. You should talk less and listen more. Now, at least you have ears. Frank stumbled against the bed. What did you... Why... The man raised an eyebrow. Frank made a squeaky noise that wasn't very courageous. He'd been so focused on Hazel, he'd forgotten what Leo had told them about the guy they were looking for. You're a god, he remembered. Triptolemus. The man bowed. My friends call me Trip, so don't call me that. And if you're another child of Hades... Mars, Frank said quickly. Child of Mars. Triptolemus sniffed. Well, not much better, but perhaps you deserve to be something better than a corn plant. Sorghum? Sorghum is very nice. Wait, Frank pleaded. We're here on a friendly mission. We brought a gift. Very slowly, he reached into his backpack and brought out the leather-bound book. This belongs to you? My almanac! 
Triptolemus grinned and seized the book. He thumbed through the pages and started bouncing on the balls of his feet. Oh, this is fabulous. Where did you find it? Um, Bologna. There were these... Frank remembered that he wasn't supposed to mention the dwarfs. Terrible monsters. We risked our lives, but we knew this was important to you. So, could you maybe, you know, turn Nico back to normal and heal Hazel? Hmm. Tripp looked up from his book. He'd been happily reciting lines to himself, something about turnip planting schedules. Frank wished that Ella the Harpy were here. She would get along great with this guy. Oh, heal them? Triptolemus clucked disapprovingly. I'm grateful for the book, of course. I can definitely let you go free, son of Mars. But I have a long-standing problem with Hades. After all, I owe my godly powers to Demeter. Frank racked his brain. But it was hard with the voices screaming in his head and the catobleps poison making him dizzy. Uh, Demeter, he said. The plant goddess. She... she didn't like Hades because... Suddenly, he recalled an old story he'd heard at Camp Jupiter. Her daughter, Proserpine. Persephone, Tripp corrected. I prefer the Greek, if you don't mind. Kill him? Mars screamed. I love this guy, Ares yelled back. Kill him anyway. Frank decided not to take offense. He didn't want to get turned into a sorghum plant. Okay, Hades kidnapped Persephone. Exactly, Tripp said. So, Persephone was a friend of yours? Tripp snorted. I was just a mortal prince back then. Persephone wouldn't have noticed me. But when her mother, Demeter, went searching for her, scouring the whole earth, not many people would help her. Hecate lit her way at night with her torches. And I, well, when Demeter came to my part of Greece, I gave her a place to stay. I comforted her, gave her a meal, and offered my assistance. I didn't know she was a goddess at the time, but my good deed paid off. Later, Demeter rewarded me by making me a god of farming. Wow, Frank said. Farming. Congratulations. I know. Pretty awesome, right? Anyway, Demeter never got along with Hades, so naturally, you know, I have to side with my patron goddess. Children of Hades? Forget it. In fact, one of them, this Scythian king named Lyncus, when I tried to teach his countrymen about farming, he killed my right python. Your right python? Trip marched over to his winged chariot and hopped in. He pulled a lever and the wings began to flap. The spotted python on the left wheel opened his eyes. He started to writhe, coiling around the axle like a spring. The chariot whirred into motion, but the right wheel stayed in place so Triptolemus spun in circles, the chariot beating its wings and bouncing up and down like a defective merry-go-round. You see, he said as he spun, no good. 
Ever since I lost my right python, I haven't been able to spread the word about farming. At least not in person. Now I have to resort to giving online courses. What? As soon as he said it, Frank was sorry he'd asked. Trip hopped off the chariot while it was still spinning. The python slowed to a stop and went back to snoring. Trip jogged over to the line of computers. He tapped the keyboards and the screens woke up, displaying a website in maroon and gold with a picture of a happy farmer in a toga and a John Deere cap, standing with his bronze scythe in a field of wheat. Triptolemus Farming University, he announced proudly. In just six weeks, you can get your bachelor's degree in the exciting and vibrant career of the future. Farming. Frank felt a bead of sweat trickle down his cheek. He didn't care about this crazy god or his snake-powered chariot or his online degree program. But Hazel was turning greener by the moment. Nico was a corn plant, and he was alone. Look, he said, we did bring you the almanac, and my friends are really nice. They're not like those other children of Hades you've met. So if there's any way... Oh, Tripp snapped his fingers. I see where you're going. Uh, you do? Absolutely. If I cure your friend Hazel and return the other one, Nicholas... Nico. If I return him to normal... Frank hesitated. Yes. Then in exchange, you stay with me and take up farming. A child of Mars as my apprentice? It's perfect. What a spokesman you'll be. We can beat swords into plowshares and have so much fun. Actually, Frank tried frantically to come up with a plan. Ares and Mars screamed in his head. Swords, guns, massive kabooms. If he declined Tripp's offer, Frank figured he would offend the guy and end up as sorghum or wheat or some other cash crop. If it was the only way to save Hazel, then sure. He could agree to Tripp's demands and become a farmer. But that couldn't be the only way. Frank refused to believe he'd been chosen by the fates to go on this quest just so he could take online courses in turnip cultivation. Frank's eyes wandered to the broken chariot. I have a better offer, he blurted out. I can fix that. Tripp's smile melted. Fix? My chariot? Frank wanted to kick himself. What was he thinking? He wasn't Leo. He couldn't even figure out a stupid pair of Chinese handcuffs. He could barely change the batteries in a TV remote. He couldn't fix a magical chariot. But something told him it was his only chance. That chariot was the one thing Triptolemus might really want. I'll go find a way to fix the chariot, he said. In return, you fix Nico and Hazel. Let us go in peace. And... And give us whatever aid you can to defeat Gia's forces. Triptolemus laughed. What makes you think I can aid you with that? Hecate told us so, Frank said. She sent us here. She... She decided Hazel is one of her favorites. The color drained from Tripp's face. 
Hecate? Frank hoped he wasn't overstating things. He didn't need Hecate mad at him, too. But if Triptolemus and Hecate were both friends of Demeter, maybe that would convince Trip to help. The goddess guided us to your almanac in Bologna, Frank said. She wanted us to return it to you because, well, she must have known you had some knowledge that would help us get through the house of Hades and Epirus. Trip nodded slowly. Yes, I see. I know why Hecate sent you to me. Very well, son of Mars. Go find a way to fix my chariot. If you succeed, I will do all you ask. If not... I know, Frank grumbled. My friends die. Yes, Trip said cheerfully. And you'll make a lovely patch of sorghum. Chapter 20 Frank Frank stumbled out of the black house. The door shut behind him, and he collapsed against the wall, overcome with guilt. Fortunately, the Caddo Blepines had cleared off, or he might have just sat there and let them trample him. He deserved nothing better. He'd left Hazel inside, dying and defenseless at the mercy of a crazy farmer god. Kill farmers, Ares screamed in his head. Return to the Legion and fight Greeks, Mars said. What are we doing here? Killing farmers, Ares screamed back. Shut up, Frank yelled aloud. Both of you. A couple of old ladies with shopping bags shuffled past. They gave Frank a strange look, muttered something in Italian, and kept going. Frank stared miserably at Hazel's cavalry sword, lying at his feet next to his backpack. He could run back to the Argo, too, and get Leo. Maybe Leo could fix the chariot. But Frank somehow knew this wasn't a problem for Leo. It was Frank's task. He had to prove himself. Besides, the chariot wasn't exactly broken. There was no mechanical problem. It was missing a serpent. Frank could turn himself into a python. When he'd woken up that morning as a giant snake, perhaps it had been a sign from the gods. He didn't want to spend the rest of his life turning the wheel of a farmer's chariot, but if it meant saving Hazel... No, there had to be another way. Serpents, Frank thought. Mars. Did his father have some connection to snakes? Mars's sacred animal was the wild boar, not the serpent. Still, Frank was sure he'd heard something once. He could think of only one person to ask. Reluctantly, he opened his mind to the voices of the war god. I need a snake, he told them. How? Ha-ha! Ares screamed. Yes! The serpent! Like that vile Cadmus, Mars said. We punished him for killing our dragon. They both started yelling until Frank thought his brain would split in half. Okay, stop. The voices quieted. Cadmus, Frank muttered. Cadmus. The story came back to him. The demigod Cadmus had slain a dragon that happened to be a child of Ares. 
How Ares had ended up with a dragon for a son, Frank didn't want to know. But as punishment for the dragon's death, Ares turned Cadmus into a snake. So you can turn your enemies into snakes, Frank said. That's what I need. I need to find an enemy. Then I need you to turn him into a snake. You think I would do that for you? Ares roared. You have not proven your worth. Only the greatest hero could ask such a boon, Mars said. A hero like Romulus. To Roman, Ares shouted. Diomedes! Never! Mars shouted back. That coward fell to Heracles! Horatius, then, Mars suggested. Ares went silent. Frank sensed a grudging agreement. Horatius, Frank said. Fine. If that's what it takes, I'll prove I'm as good as Horatius. Uh, what did he do? Images flooded into Frank's mind. He saw a lone warrior standing on a stone bridge, facing an entire army massed on the far side of the Tiber River. Frank remembered the legend. Horatius, the Roman general, had single-handedly held off a horde of invaders, sacrificing himself on that bridge to keep the barbarians from crossing the Tiber. By giving his fellow Romans time to finish their defenses, He'd save the Republic. Venice is overrun, Mars said, as Rome was about to be. Cleanse it. Destroy them all, Ares said. Put them to the sword. Frank pushed the voices to the back of his mind. He looked at his hands and was amazed they weren't trembling. For the first time in days, his thoughts were clear. He knew exactly what he needed to do. He didn't know how he would pull it off. The odds of dying were excellent, but he had to try. Hazel's life depended on him. He strapped Hazel's sword to his belt, morphed his backpack into a quiver and bow, and raced toward the piazza where he'd fought the cow monsters. The plan had three phases. Dangerous really dangerous, and insanely dangerous. Frank stopped at the old stone well. No catablepanes in sight. He drew Hazel's sword and used it to pry up some cobblestones, unearthing a big tangle of spiky roots. The tendrils unfurled, exuding their stinky green fumes as they crept toward Frank's feet. In the distance, a catoblepsis foghorn moan filled the air. Others joined in from all different directions. Frank wasn't sure how the monsters could tell he was harvesting their favorite food. Maybe they just had an excellent sense of smell. He had to move fast now. He sliced off a long cluster of vines and laced them through one of his belt loops, trying to ignore the burning and itching in his hands. Soon, he had a glowing, stinking lasso of poisonous weeds. Hooray! The first few catablepanes lumbered into the piazza, bellowing in anger. Green eyes glowed under their manes. Their long snouts blew clouds of gas, like furry steam engines. 
Frank knocked an arrow. He had a momentary pang of guilt. These were not the worst monsters he'd met. They were basically grazing animals that happened to be poisonous. Hazel is dying because of them, he reminded himself. He let the arrow fly. The nearest catoblepts collapsed, crumbling to dust. He knocked a second arrow, but the rest of the herd was almost on top of him. More were charging into the square from the opposite direction. Frank turned into a lion. He roared defiantly and leaped toward the archway, straight over the heads of the second herd. The two groups of catoblepanes slammed into each other, but quickly recovered and ran after him. Frank hadn't been sure the roots would still smell when he changed form. Usually, his clothes and possessions just sort of melted into his animal shape. But apparently, he still smelled like a yummy poison dinner. Each time he raced past a catobleps, it roared with outrage and joined the Kill Frank parade. He turned onto a larger street and pushed through the crowds of tourists. What the mortals saw, he had no idea. A cat being chased by a pack of dogs? People cursed at Frank in about twelve different languages. Gelato cones went flying. A woman spilled a stack of carnival masks. One dude toppled into the canal. When Frank glanced back, he had at least two dozen monsters on his tail. But he needed more. He needed all the monsters in Venice. And he had to keep the ones behind him enraged. He found an open spot in the crowd and turned back into a human. He drew Hazel's spatha, never his preferred weapon, but he was big enough and strong enough that the heavy cavalry sword didn't bother him. In fact, he was glad for the extra reach. He slashed the golden blade, destroying the first catobleps and letting the others bunch up in front of him. He tried to avoid their eyes, but... He could feel their gaze burning into him. He figured that if all these monsters breathed on him at once, their combined noxious cloud would be enough to melt him into a puddle. The monsters crowded forward and slammed into one another. Frank yelled, You want my poison roots? Come and get them. He turned into a dolphin and jumped into the canal. He hoped Catobleponese couldn't swim. At the very least, they seemed reluctant to follow him in, and he couldn't blame them. The canal was disgusting, smelly and salty and as warm as soup. But Frank forged through it, dodging gondolas and speedboats, pausing occasionally to chitter dolphin insults at the monsters who followed him on the sidewalks. When he reached the nearest gondola dock, Frank turned back into a human again stabbed a few more catablepanes to keep them angry, and took off running. So it went. After a while, Frank fell into a kind of daze. He attracted more monsters, scattered more crowds of tourists, and led his now massive following of catablepanes through the winding streets of the old city. Whenever he needed a quick escape, he dove into a canal as a dolphin, or turned into an eagle and soared overhead. But he never got too far ahead of his pursuers. Whenever he felt like the monsters might be losing interest, he stopped on a rooftop and drew his bow, 
picking off a few of the catablepanes in the center of the herd. He shook his lasso of poison vines and insulted the monster's bad breath, stirring them into a fury. Then he continued the race. He backtracked. He lost his way. Once he turned a corner and ran into the tail end of his own monster mob. He should have been exhausted, yet somehow he found the strength to keep going, which was good. The hardest part was yet to come. He spotted a couple of bridges, but they didn't look right. One was elevated and completely covered. No way could he get the monsters to funnel through it. Another was too crowded with tourists. Even if the monsters ignored the mortals, that noxious gas couldn't be good for anyone to breathe. The bigger the monster herd got, the more mortals would get pushed aside, knocked into the water, or trampled. Finally, Frank saw something that would work. Just ahead, past a big piazza, a wooden bridge spanned one of the widest canals. The bridge itself was a latticed arc of timber, like an old-fashioned roller coaster, about 50 meters long. From above, in eagle form, Frank saw no monsters on the far side. Every catablepse in Venice seemed to have joined the herd and was pushing through the streets behind him as tourists screamed and scattered, maybe thinking they were caught in the midst of a stray dog stampede. The bridge was empty of foot traffic. It was perfect. Frank dropped like a stone and turned back to human form. He ran to the middle of the bridge, a natural choke point, and threw his bait of poisonous roots on the deck behind him. As the front of the catablep's herd reached the base of the bridge, Frank drew Hazel's golden spatha. Come on, he yelled. You want to know what Frank Jong is worth? Come on. He realized he wasn't just shouting at the monsters. He was venting weeks of fear, rage, and resentment. The voices of Mars and Ares screamed right along with him. The monsters charged. Frank's vision turned red. Later, he couldn't remember the details clearly. He sliced through monsters until he was ankle-deep in yellow dust. Whenever he got overwhelmed and the clouds of gas began to choke him, he changed shape, became an elephant, a dragon, a lion, and each transformation seemed to clear his lungs, giving him a fresh burst of energy. His shape-shifting became so fluid he could start an attack in human form with his sword and finish as a lion, raking his claws across a catoblepsis snout. The monsters kicked with their hooves. They breathed noxious gas and glared straight at Frank with their poisonous eyes. He should have died. He should have been trampled. But somehow he stayed on his feet, unharmed and unleashed a hurricane of violence. He didn't feel any sort of pleasure in this, but he didn't hesitate either. He stabbed one monster and beheaded another. He turned into a dragon and bit a catoblepse in half, then changed into an elephant and trampled three at once under his feet. His vision was still tinted red, and he realized his eyes weren't playing tricks on him, he was actually glowing, 
surrounded by a rosy aura. He didn't understand why, but he kept fighting until there was only one monster left. Frank faced it with his sword drawn. He was out of breath, sweaty, and caked in monster dust, but he was unharmed. The catobleps snarled. It must not have been the smartest monster. Despite the fact that several hundred of its brethren had just died, it did not back down. Mars! Frank yelled. I've proven myself. Now I need a snake. Frank doubted anyone had ever shouted those words before. It was kind of a weird request. He got no answer from the skies. For once, the voices in his head were silent. The catobleps lost patience. It launched itself at Frank and left him no choice. He slashed upward. As soon as his blade hit the monster, the catobleps disappeared in a flash of blood-red light. When Frank's vision cleared, a mottled brown Burmese python was coiled at his feet. Well done, said a familiar voice. Standing a few feet away was his dad, Mars, wearing a red beret and olive fatigues with the insignia of the Italian Special Forces, an assault rifle slung over his shoulder. His face was hard and angular, his eyes covered with dark sunglasses. Father? Frank managed. He couldn't believe what he'd just done. The terror started to catch up to him. He felt like sobbing, but he guessed that would not be a good idea in front of Mars. It's natural to feel fear. The war god's voice was surprisingly warm, full of pride. All great warriors are afraid. Only the stupid and the delusional are not. But you faced your fear, my son. You did what you had to do, like Horatius. This was your bridge and you defended it. I... Frank wasn't sure what to say. I... I just needed a snake. A tiny smile tugged at Mars's mouth. Yes, and now you have one. Your bravery has united my forms, Greek and Roman, if only for a moment. Go, save your friends, but hear me, Frank. Your greatest test is yet to come. When you face the armies of Gia at Epirus, your leadership... Suddenly, the god doubled over, clutching his head. His form flickered. His fatigues turned into a toga, then a biker's jacket and jeans. His rifle changed into a sword, and then a rocket launcher. Agony! Mars bellowed. Go! Hurry! Frank didn't ask questions. Despite his exhaustion, he turned into a giant eagle, snatched up the python in his massive claws, and launched himself into the air. When he glanced back, a miniature mushroom cloud erupted from the middle of the bridge, rings of fire washing outward, and a pair of voices, Mars and Ares, screamed, No! Frank wasn't sure what had just happened, but he had no time to think about it. He flew over the city, 
now completely empty of monsters, and headed for the house of Triptolemus. You found one, the farmer god exclaimed. Frank ignored him. He stormed into La Casa Nera, dragging the python by its tail like a very strange Santa Claus bag, and dropped it next to the bed. He knelt at Hazel's side. She was still alive, green and shivering, barely breathing, but alive. As for Nico, he was still a corn plant. Heal them, Frank said. Now. Triptolemus crossed his arms. How do I know the snake will work? Frank gritted his teeth. Since the explosion on the bridge, the voices of the war god had gone silent in his head, but he still felt their combined anger churning inside him. He felt physically different, too. Had Triptolemus gotten shorter? The snake is a gift from Mars, Frank growled. It will work. As if on cue, the Burmese python slithered over to the chariot and wrapped itself around the right wheel. The other snake woke up. The two serpents checked each other out, touching noses, then turned their wheels in unison. The chariot inched forward, its wings flapping. You see, Frank said, now heal my friends. Triptolemus tapped his chin. Well, thank you for the snake, but I'm not sure I like your tone, demigod. Perhaps I'll turn you into... Frank was faster. He lunged at Trip and slammed him into the wall. His fingers locked around the god's throat. Think about your next words, Frank warned, deadly calm. Or instead of beating my sword into a plowshare, I will beat it into your head. Triptolemus gulped. You know, I think I'll heal your friends. Swear it on the river Styx. I swear it on the river Styx. Frank released him. Triptolemus touched his throat, as if making sure it was still there. He gave Frank a nervous smile, edged around him, and scurried off to the front room. Just, just gathering herbs. Frank watched as the god picked leaves and roots and crushed them in a mortar. He rolled a pill-sized ball of green goop and jogged to Hazel's side. He placed the gunk ball under Hazel's tongue. Instantly, she shuddered and sat up, coughing. Her eyes flew open. The greenish tint in her skin disappeared. She looked around, bewildered, until she saw Frank. What? Frank tackled her in a hug. You're going to be fine, he said fiercely. Everything is fine. But... Hazel gripped his shoulders and stared at him in amazement. Frank, what happened to you? To me? He stood, suddenly self-conscious. I don't... He looked down and realized what she meant. Triptolemus hadn't gotten shorter. Frank was taller. His gut had shrunk. His chest seemed bulkier. Frank had had growth spurts before. Once, he'd woken up two centimeters taller than when he'd gone to sleep. 
but this was nuts. It was as if some of the dragon and lion had stayed with him when he turned back to human. Uh, I don't... Maybe I can fix it. Hazel laughed with delight. Why? You look amazing. I... I do? I mean, you were handsome before, but you look older and taller and so distinguished. Triptolemus heaved a dramatic sigh. Yes, obviously some sort of blessing from Mars. Congratulations, blah, blah, blah. Now, if we're done here... Frank glared at him. We're not done. Heal Nico. The farm god rolled his eyes. He pointed at the corn plant and bam! Nico D'Angelo appeared in an explosion of corn silk. Nico looked around in a panic. I... I had the weirdest nightmare about popcorn. He frowned at Frank. Why are you taller? Everything's fine, Frank promised. Triptolemus was about to tell us how to survive the House of Hades. Weren't you, Trip? The farm god raised his eyes to the ceiling like, Why me, Demeter? Fine, Trip said. When you arrive at Epirus, you will be offered a chalice to drink from. Offered by whom? Nico asked. Doesn't matter, Trip snapped. Just know that it is filled with deadly poison. Hazel shuddered. So you're saying that we shouldn't drink it? No, Trip said. You must drink it, or you'll never be able to make it through the temple. The poison connects you to the world of the dead, lets you pass into the lower levels. The secret to surviving is... His eyes twinkled. Barley. Frank stared at him. Barley. In the front room, take some of my special barley. Make it into little cakes. Eat these before you step into the house of Hades. The barley will absorb the worst of the poison, so it will affect you, but not kill you. That's it? Nico demanded. Hecate sent us halfway across Italy so you could tell us to eat barley? Good luck! Triptolemus sprinted across the room and hopped in his chariot. And, Frank Jong, I forgive you. You got spunk. If you ever change your mind, my offer is open. I'd love to see you get a degree in farming. Yeah, Frank muttered. Thanks. The god pulled a lever on his chariot. The snake wheels turned. The wings flapped. At the back of the room, the garage doors rolled open. Oh, to be mobile again, Trip cried. So many ignorant lands in need of my knowledge. I will teach them the glories of tilling, irrigation, fertilizing. The chariot lifted off and zipped out of the house, Triptolemus shouting to the sky. Away, my serpents, away! That, Hazel said, was very strange. The glories of fertilizing. Nico brushed some corn silk off his shoulder. Can we get out of here now? Hazel put her hand on Frank's shoulder. Are you okay, really? 
You bartered for our lives. What did Triptolemus make you do? Frank tried to hold it together. He scolded himself for feeling so weak. He could face an army of monsters, but as soon as Hazel showed him kindness, he wanted to break down and cry. Those cow monsters, the catoblepanes that poisoned you, I had to destroy them. That was brave, Nico said. There must have been, what, six or seven left in that herd? No, Frank cleared his throat. All of them. I killed all of them in the city. Nico and Hazel stared at him in stunned silence. Frank was afraid they might doubt him or start to laugh. How many monsters had he killed on that bridge? Two hundred? Three hundred? But he saw in their eyes that they believed him. They were children of the underworld. Maybe they could sense the death and carnage he'd waded through. Hazel kissed his cheek. She had to stand on her tiptoes to do it now. Her eyes were incredibly sad, as if she realized something had changed in Frank, something much more important than the physical growth spurt. Frank knew it, too. He would never be the same. He just wasn't sure if that was a good thing. Well, Nico said, breaking the tension, does anyone know what barley looks like? Chapter 21 Annabeth Annabeth decided the monsters wouldn't kill her. Neither would the poisonous atmosphere, nor the treacherous landscape, with its pits, cliffs, and jagged rocks. Nope. Most likely she would die from an overload of weirdness that would make her brain explode. First, she and Percy had had to drink fire to stay alive. Then, they were attacked by a gaggle of vampires, led by a cheerleader Annabeth had killed two years ago. Finally, they were rescued by a titan janitor named Bob, who had Einstein hair, silver eyes, and wicked broom skills. Sure, why not? They followed Bob through the wasteland, tracing the route of the Phlegathon as they approached the stormfront of darkness. Every so often, they stopped to drink firewater, which kept them alive, but Annabeth wasn't happy about it. Her throat felt like she was constantly gargling with battery acid. Her only comfort was Percy. Every so often, he would glance over and smile or squeeze her hand. He had to be just as scared and miserable as she was, and she loved him for trying to make her feel better. Bob knows what he's doing, Percy promised. You have interesting friends, Annabeth murmured. Bob is interesting! The Titan turned and grinned. Yes, thank you! The big guy had good ears. Annabeth would have to remember that. So, Bob? She tried to sound casual and friendly, which wasn't easy with a throat scorched by firewater. How did you get to Tartarus? I jumped, he said, like it was obvious. You jumped into Tartarus, she said, because Percy said your name? He needed me. Those silver eyes gleamed in the darkness. 
It is okay. I was tired of sweeping the palace. Come along. We are almost at a rest stop. A rest stop? Annabeth couldn't imagine what those words meant in Tartarus. She remembered all the times she, Luke, and Thalia had relied on highway rest stops when they were homeless demigods trying to survive. Wherever Bob was taking them, she hoped it had clean restrooms and a snack machine. She repressed the giggles. Yes, she was definitely losing it. Annabeth hobbled along, trying to ignore the rumble in her stomach. She stared at Bob's back as he led them toward the wall of darkness, now only a few hundred yards away. His blue janitor's coveralls were ripped between the shoulder blades, as if someone had tried to stab him. Cleaning rags stuck out of his pocket. A squirt bottle swung from his belt, the blue liquid inside sloshing hypnotically. Annabeth remembered Percy's story about meeting the Titan. Thalia Grace, Nico D'Angelo, and Percy had worked together to defeat Bob on the banks of the Lethe. After wiping his memory, they didn't have the heart to kill him. He became so gentle and sweet and cooperative that they left him at the Palace of Hades, where Persephone promised he would be looked after. Apparently, the underworld king and queen thought Looking after someone meant giving him a broom and having him sweep up their messes. Annabeth wondered how even Hades could be so callous. She'd never felt sorry for a titan before, but it didn't seem right taking a brainwashed immortal and turning him into an unpaid janitor. He's not your friend, she reminded herself. She was terrified that Bob would suddenly remember himself, Tartarus was where monsters came to regenerate. What if it healed his memory? If he became Iapetus again, well, Annabeth had seen the way he had dealt with those Empusai. Annabeth had no weapon. She and Percy were in no condition to fight a titan. She glanced nervously at Bob's broom handle, wondering how long it would be before that hidden spearhead jutted out and got pointed at her. Following Bob through Tartarus was a crazy risk. Unfortunately, she couldn't think of a better plan. They picked their way across the ashen wasteland as red lightning flashed overhead in the poisonous clouds. Just another lovely day in the dungeon of creation. Annabeth couldn't see far in the hazy air, but the longer they walked, the more certain she became that the entire landscape was a downward curve. She'd heard conflicting descriptions of Tartarus. It was a bottomless pit. It was a fortress surrounded by brass walls. It was nothing but an endless void. One story described it as the inverse of the sky, a huge, hollow, upside-down dome of rock. That seemed the most accurate, though if Tartarus was a dome, Annabeth guessed it was like the sky with no real bottom but made of multiple layers, each one darker and less hospitable than the last. And even that wasn't the full horrible truth. They passed a blister in the ground, a writhing, translucent bubble the size of a minivan. Curled inside was the half-formed body of a draken. 
Bob speared the blister without a second thought. It burst in a geyser of steaming yellow slime, and the draken dissolved into nothing. Bob kept walking. Monsters are zits on the skin of Tartarus, Annabeth thought. She shuddered. Sometimes she wished she didn't have such a good imagination, because now she was certain they were walking across a living thing. This whole twisted landscape, the dome, pit, or whatever you called it, was the body of the god Tartarus, the most ancient incarnation of evil. Just as Gia inhabited the surface of the earth, Tartarus inhabited the pit. If that god noticed them walking across his skin like fleas on a dog, enough. No more thinking. Here, Bob said. They stopped at the top of a ridge. Below them, in a sheltered depression like a moon crater, stood a ring of broken black marble columns surrounding a dark stone altar. Hermes's shrine, Bob explained. Percy frowned. A Hermes shrine in Tartarus? Bob laughed in delight. Yes, it fell from somewhere long ago. Maybe Mortal World, maybe Olympus. Anyway, monsters steer clear, mostly. How did you know it was here? Annabeth asked. Bob's smile faded. He got a vacant look in his eyes. Can't remember. That's okay, Percy said quickly. Annabeth felt like kicking herself. Before Bob became Bob, he had been Iapetus, the Titan. Like all his brethren, he'd been imprisoned in Tartarus for eons. Of course he knew his way around. If he remembered this shrine, he might start recalling other details of his old prison and his old life. That would not be good. They climbed into the crater and entered the circle of columns. Annabeth collapsed on a broken slab of marble, too exhausted to take another step. Percy stood over her protectively, scanning their surroundings. The inky storm front was less than a hundred feet away now, obscuring everything ahead of them. The crater's rim blocked their view of the wasteland behind. They'd be well hidden here, but if monsters did stumble across them, they would have no warning. You said someone was chasing us, Annabeth said. Who? Bob swept his broom around the base of the altar, occasionally crouching to study the ground, as if looking for something. They are following, yes. They know you are here. Giants and titans, the defeated ones. They know. The defeated ones. Annabeth tried to control her fear. How many titans and giants had she and Percy fought over the years? Each one had seemed like an impossible challenge. If all of them were down here in Tartarus, and if they were actively hunting Percy and Annabeth? Why are we stopping then? She said. We should keep moving. Soon. Bob said, but mortals need rest. Good place here. Best place for, oh, long, long way. I will guard you. Annabeth glanced at Percy, 
sending him the silent message, uh, no. Hanging out with the Titan was bad enough. Going to sleep while the Titan guarded you? She didn't need to be a daughter of Athena to know that was 100% unwise. You sleep, Percy told her. I'll keep the first watch with Bob. Bob rumbled in agreement. Yes, good. When you wake, food should be here. Annabeth's stomach did a rollover at the mention of food. She didn't see how Bob could summon food in the midst of Tartarus. Maybe he was a caterer as well as a janitor. She didn't want to sleep, but her body betrayed her. Her eyelids turned to lead. Percy, wake me for second watch. Don't be a hero. He gave her that smirk she'd come to love. Who, me? He kissed her, his lips parched and feverishly warm. Sleep. Annabeth felt like she was back in the hypnos cabin at Camp Half-Blood, overcome with drowsiness. She curled up on the hard ground and closed her eyes. Chapter 22 Annabeth Later, she made a resolution. Never, ever sleep in Tartarus. Demigod dreams were always bad. Even in the safety of her bunk at camp, she'd had horrible nightmares. In Tartarus, they were a thousand times more vivid. First, she was a little girl again, struggling to climb Half-Blood Hill. Luke Castellon held her hand, pulling her along. Their satyr guide, Grover Underwood, pranced nervously at the summit, yelling, Hurry! Hurry! Thalia Grace stood behind them, holding back an army of hellhounds with her terror-invoking shield, Aegis. From the top of the hill, Annabeth could see the camp in the valley below, the warm lights of the cabins, the possibility of sanctuary. She stumbled, twisting her ankle, and Luke scooped her up to carry her. When they looked back, the monsters were only a few yards away, dozens of them surrounding Thalia. Go! Thalia yelled. I'll hold them off! She brandished her spear, and forked lightning slashed through the monsters' ranks, but as the hellhounds fell, more took their place. We have to run! Grover cried. He led the way into camp. Luke followed, with Annabeth crying, beating at his chest, and screaming that they couldn't leave Thalia alone. But it was too late. The scene shifted. Annabeth was older, climbing to the summit of Half-Blood Hill. Where Thalia had made her last stand, a tall pine tree now rose. Overhead, a storm was raging. Thunder shook the valley. A blast of lightning split the tree down to its roots opening a smoking crevice. In the darkness below stood Reyna, the praetor of New Rome. Her cloak was the color of blood fresh from a vein. Her gold armor glinted. She stared up, her face regal and distant, and spoke directly into Annabeth's mind. You have done well, Reyna said, but the voice was Athena's. The rest of my journey must be on the wings of Rome. The praetor's dark eyes turned as gray as storm clouds. 
I must stand here, Reina told her. The Roman must bring me. The hill shook. The ground rippled as the grass became folds of silk, the dress of a massive goddess. Gia rose over Camp Half-Blood, her sleeping face as large as a mountain. Hellhounds poured over the hills. Giants, six-armed earthborn, and wild cyclopes charged from the beach, tearing down the dining pavilion, setting fire to the cabins and the big house. Hurry, said the voice of Athena. The message must be sent. The ground split at Annabeth's feet, and she fell into darkness. Her eyes flew open. She cried out, grasping Percy's arms. She was still in Tartarus, at the shrine of Hermes. It's okay, Percy promised. Bad dreams? Her body tingled with dread. Is it... is it my turn to watch? No, no, we're good. I let you sleep. Percy! Hey, it's fine. Besides, I was too excited to sleep. Look! Bob the Titan sat cross-legged by the altar, happily munching a piece of pizza. Annabeth rubbed her eyes, wondering if she was still dreaming. Is that... pepperoni? Burnt offerings, Percy said. Sacrifices to Hermes from the mortal world, I guess. They appeared in a cloud of smoke. We've got half a hot dog, some grapes, a plate of roast beef, and a package of peanut M&Ms. M&Ms for Bob, Bob said happily. Uh, that okay? Annabeth didn't protest. Percy brought her the plate of roast beef, and she wolfed it down. She'd never tasted anything so good. The brisket was still hot, with exactly the same spicy sweet glaze as the barbecue at Camp Half-Blood. I know, said Percy, reading her expression. I think it is from Camp Half-Blood. The idea made Annabeth giddy with homesickness. At every meal, the campers would burn a portion of their food to honor their godly parents. The smoke supposedly pleased the gods, but Annabeth had never thought about where the food went when it was burned. Maybe the offerings reappeared on the gods' altars in Olympus, or even here, in the middle of Tartarus. Peanut M&Ms, Annabeth said. Connor Stoll always burned a pack for his dad at dinner. She thought about sitting in the dining pavilion, watching the sunset over Long Island Sound. That was the first place she and Percy had truly kissed. Her eyes smarted. Percy put his hand on her shoulder. Hey, this is good. Actual food from home, right? She nodded. They finished eating in silence. Bob chomped down the last of his M&Ms. Should go now. They will be here in a few minutes. A few minutes? Annabeth reached for her dagger, then remembered she didn't have it. Yes, well, I think minutes. Bob scratched his silvery hair. Time is hard in Tartarus, not the same. Percy crept to the edge of the crater. He peered back the way they'd come. I don't see anything, 
but that doesn't mean much. Bob, which giants are we talking about? Which titans? Bob grunted. Not sure of names. Six, maybe seven? I can sense them. Six or seven? Annabeth wasn't sure her barbecue would stay down. And can they sense you? Don't know. Bob smiled. Bob is different, but they can smell demigods, yes. You two smell very strong. Good strong. Like, hmm, like buttery bread. Buttery bread, Annabeth said. Well, that's great. Percy climbed back to the altar. Is it possible to kill a giant in Tartarus? I mean, since we don't have a god to help us? He looked at Annabeth as if she actually had an answer. Percy, I don't know. Traveling in Tartarus? Fighting monsters here? It's never been done before. Maybe Bob could help us kill a giant. Maybe a titan would count as a god? I just don't know. Yeah, Percy said. Okay. She could see the worry in his eyes. For years, he depended on her for answers. Now, when he needed her most, she couldn't help. She hated being so clueless, but nothing she'd ever learned at camp had prepared her for Tartarus. There was only one thing she was sure of. They had to keep moving. They couldn't be caught by six or seven hostile immortals. She stood, still disoriented from her nightmares. Bob started cleaning up, collecting their trash in a little pile, using his squirt bottle to wipe off the altar. Where to now? Annabeth asked. Percy pointed at the stormy wall of darkness. Bob says that way. Apparently the doors of death... You told him? Annabeth didn't mean it to come out so harsh, but Percy winced. While you were asleep, he admitted. Annabeth, Bob can help. We need a guide. Bob helps, Bob agreed. Into the Darklands, the doors of death. Hmm, walking straight to them would be bad. Too many monsters gathered there. Even Bob could not sweep that many. They would kill Percy and Annabeth in about two seconds. The Titan frowned. I think seconds. Time is hard in Tartarus. Right, Annabeth grumbled. So was there another way? Hiding, said Bob. The Death Mist could hide you. Oh. Annabeth suddenly felt very small in the shadow of the Titan. Uh, what is Death Mist? It is dangerous, Bob said. But if the lady will give you Death Mist, it might hide you. If we can avoid night. The lady is very close to night. That is bad. The lady, Percy repeated. Yes. Bob pointed ahead of them into the inky blackness. We should go. Percy glanced at Annabeth, obviously hoping for guidance, but she had none. She was thinking about her nightmare. Thalia's tree splintered by lightning. Gia rising on the hillside and unleashing her monsters on Camp Half-Blood. Okay, then. Percy said. I guess we'll see a lady about some death mist. Wait, 
Annabeth said. Her mind was buzzing. She thought of her dream about Luke and Thalia. She recalled the stories Luke had told her about his father, Hermes, god of travelers, guide to the spirits of the dead, god of communication. She stared at the black altar. Annabeth? Percy sounded concerned. She walked to the pile of trash and picked out a reasonably clean paper napkin. She remembered her vision of Reyna standing in the smoking crevice beneath the ruins of Thalia's pine tree, speaking with the voice of Athena. I must stand here. The Roman must bring me. Hurry! The message must be sent. Bob, she said, Offerings burned in the mortal world appear on this altar, right? Bob frowned uncomfortably, like he wasn't ready for a pop quiz. Yes. So what happens if I burn something on the altar here? Uh... That's all right, Annabeth said. You don't know. Nobody knows, because it's never been done. There was a chance, she thought just the slimmest chance that an offering burned on this altar might appear at Camp Half-Blood. Doubtful, but if it did work... Annabeth? Percy said again. You're planning something. You've got that I'm-planning-something look. I don't have an I'm-planning-something look. Yeah, you totally do. Your eyebrows knit and your lips pressed together and... Do you have a pen? She asked him. You're kidding, right? He brought out Riptide. Yes, but can you actually write with it? I... I don't know, he admitted. Never tried. He uncapped the pen. As usual, it sprang into a full-sized sword. Annabeth had watched him do this hundreds of times. Normally, when he fought... Percy simply discarded the cap. It always appeared in his pocket later, as needed. When he touched the cap to the point of the sword, it would turn back into a ballpoint pen. What if you touch the cap to the other end of the sword? Annabeth said. Like, where you'd put the cap if you were actually going to write with the pen. Uh... Percy looked doubtful. But he touched the cap to the hilt of the sword. Riptide shrank back into a ballpoint pen, but now the writing point was exposed. May I? Annabeth plucked it from his hand. She flattened the napkin against the altar and began to write. Riptide's ink glowed celestial bronze. What are you doing? Percy asked. Sending a message, Annabeth said. I just hope Rachel gets it. Rachel? Percy asked. You mean our Rachel? Oracle of Delphi, Rachel? That's the one. Annabeth suppressed a smile. Whenever she brought up Rachel's name, Percy got nervous. At one point, Rachel had been interested in dating Percy. That was ancient history. Rachel and Annabeth were good friends now. But Annabeth didn't mind making Percy a little uneasy. You had to keep your boyfriend on his toes. Annabeth finished her note and folded the napkin. On the outside, she wrote, Connor, give this to Rachel. Not a prank, 
Don't be a moron. Love, Annabeth. She took a deep breath. She was asking Rachel Dare to do something ridiculously dangerous, but it was the only way she could think of to communicate with the Romans, the only way that might avoid bloodshed. Now I just need to burn it, she said. Anybody got a match? The point of Bob's spear shot from his broom handle. It sparked against the altar and erupted in silvery fire. Uh, thanks. Annabeth lit the napkin and set it on the altar. She watched it crumble to ash and wondered if she was crazy. Could the smoke really make it out of Tartarus? We should go now, Bob advised. Really, really go, before we are killed. Annabeth stared at the wall of blackness in front of them. Somewhere in there was a lady who dispensed a death mist that might hide them from monsters, a plan recommended by a titan, one of their bitterest enemies, another dose of weirdness to explode her brain. Right, she said. I'm ready. Chapter 23 Annabeth Annabeth literally stumbled over the second titan. After entering the storm front, they plodded on for what seemed like hours, relying on the light of Percy's celestial bronze blade and on Bob, who glowed faintly in the dark like some sort of crazy janitor angel. Annabeth could only see about five feet in front of her. In a strange way, the dark lands reminded her of San Francisco where her dad lived, on those summer afternoons when the fog bank rolled in like cold, wet packing material and swallowed Pacific Heights. Except here in Tartarus, the fog was made of ink. Rocks loomed out of nowhere, pits appeared at their feet, and Annabeth barely avoided falling in. Monstrous roars echoed in the gloom, but Annabeth couldn't tell where they came from. All she could be certain of was that the terrain was still sloping down. Down seemed to be the only direction allowed in Tartarus. If Annabeth backtracked even a step, she felt tired and heavy, as if gravity were increasing to discourage her. Assuming that the entire pit was the body of Tartarus, Annabeth had a nasty feeling they were marching straight down his throat. She was so preoccupied with that thought, she didn't notice the ledge until it was too late. Percy yelled, Whoa! He grabbed for her arm, but she was already falling. Fortunately, it was only a shallow depression. Most of it was filled with a monster blister. She had a soft landing on a warm, bouncy surface and was feeling lucky, until she opened her eyes and found herself staring through a glowing gold membrane at another, much larger face. She screamed and flailed, toppling sideways off the mound. Her heart did a hundred jumping jacks. Percy helped her to her feet. You okay? She didn't trust herself to answer. If she opened her mouth, she might scream again, and that would be undignified. She was a daughter of Athena, not some shrill, girly victim in a horror movie. But gods of Olympus, 
Curled in the membrane bubble in front of her was a fully formed titan in golden armor, his skin the color of polished pennies. His eyes were closed, but he scowled so deeply he appeared to be on the verge of a blood-curdling war cry. Even through the blister, Annabeth could feel the heat radiating from his body. Hyperion, Percy said. I hate that guy. Annabeth's shoulder suddenly ached from an old wound. During the Battle of Manhattan, Percy had fought this titan at the reservoir, water against fire. It had been the first time Percy had summoned a hurricane, which wasn't something Annabeth would ever forget. I thought Grover turned this guy into a maple tree. Yeah, Percy agreed. Maybe the maple tree died and he wound up back here. Annabeth remembered how Hyperion had summoned fiery explosions and how many satyrs and nymphs he'd destroyed before Percy and Grover stopped him. She was about to suggest that they burst Hyperion's bubble before he woke up. He looked ready to pop out at any moment and start charbroiling everything in his path. Then she glanced at Bob. The silvery titan was studying Hyperion with a frown of concentration. Maybe recognition. Their faces looked so much alike. Annabeth bit back a curse. Of course they looked alike. Hyperion was his brother. Hyperion was the titan lord of the east. Iapetus, Bob, was the lord of the west. Take away Bob's broom and his janitor's clothes, put him in armor and cut his hair, change his color scheme from silver to gold, and Iapetus would have been almost indistinguishable from Hyperion. Bob, she said, we should go. Gold, not silver, Bob murmured. But he looks like me. Bob, Percy said. Hey, buddy, over here. The Titan reluctantly turned. Am I your friend? Percy asked. Yes. Bob sounded dangerously uncertain. We are friends. You know that some monsters are good, Percy said, and some are bad. Hmm, Bob said. Like, the pretty ghost ladies who serve Persephone are good. Exploding zombies are bad. Right, Percy said. And some mortals are good, and some are bad. Well, the same thing is true for titans. Titans. Bob loomed over them, glowering. Annabeth was pretty sure her boyfriend had just made a big mistake. That's what you are, Percy said calmly. Bob the Titan. You're good. You're awesome, in fact. But some titans are not. This guy here... Hyperion is full-on bad. He tried to kill me. Tried to kill a lot of people. Bob blinked his silver eyes. But he looks... His face is so... He looks like you, Percy agreed. He's a titan, like you. But he's not good like you are. Bob is good. His fingers tightened on his broom handle. 
Yes, there is always at least one good one. Monsters, titans, giants. Uh, Percy grimaced. Well, I'm not sure about the giants. Oh, yes, Bob nodded earnestly. Annabeth sensed they'd already been in this place too long. Their pursuers would be closing in. We should go, she urged. What do we do about... Bob, Percy said. It's your call. Hyperion is your kind. We could leave him alone, but if he wakes up... Bob's broom spear swept into motion. If he'd been aiming at Annabeth or Percy, they would have been cut in half. Instead, Bob slashed through the monstrous blister, which burst in a geyser of hot golden mud. Annabeth wiped the titan sludge out of her eyes. Where Hyperion had been, there was nothing but a smoking crater. Hyperion is a bad titan, Bob announced, his expression grim. Now he can't hurt my friends. He will have to reform somewhere else in Tartarus. Hopefully it will take a long time. The titan's eyes seemed brighter than usual, as if he were about to cry quicksilver. Thank you, Bob, Percy said. How was he keeping his cool? The way he talked to Bob left Annabeth awestruck, and maybe a little uneasy, too. If Percy had been serious about leaving the choice to Bob, then she didn't like how much he trusted the Titan. If he'd been manipulating Bob into making that choice, well then, Annabeth was stunned that Percy could be so calculating. He met her eyes, but she couldn't read his expression. That bothered her, too. We'd better keep going, he said. She and Percy followed Bob, the golden mud flecks from Hyperion's burst bubble glowing on his janitor's uniform. Chapter 24 Annabeth After a while, Annabeth's feet felt like titan mush. She marched along, following Bob, listening to the monotonous slosh of liquid in his cleaning bottle. Stay alert, she told herself but it was hard. Her thoughts were as numb as her legs. From time to time, Percy took her hand or made an encouraging comment, but she could tell the dark landscape was getting to him as well. His eyes had a dull sheen, like his spirit was being slowly extinguished. He fell into Tartarus to be with you, said a voice in her head. If he dies, it will be your fault. Stop it, she said aloud. Percy frowned. What? No, not you. She tried for a reassuring smile, but she couldn't quite muster one. Talking to myself. This place, it's messing with my mind, giving me dark thoughts. The worry lines deepened around Percy's sea-green eyes. Hey, Bob... Where exactly are we heading? The lady, Bob said. Death mist. Annabeth fought down her irritation. But what does that mean? Who is this lady? Naming her? Bob glanced back. Not a good idea. 
Annabeth sighed. The Titan was right. Names had power, and speaking them here in Tartarus was probably very dangerous. Can you at least tell us how far? she asked. I do not know, Bob admitted. I can only feel it. We wait for the darkness to get darker. Then we go sideways. Sideways, Annabeth muttered. Naturally. She was tempted to ask for a rest, but she didn't want to stop. Not here in this cold, dark place. The black fog seeped into her body, turning her bones into moist styrofoam. She wondered if her message would get to Rachel Dare, if Rachel could somehow carry her proposal to Raina without getting killed in the process. A ridiculous hope, said the voice in her head. You have only put Rachel in danger. Even if she finds the Romans, why should Raina trust you after all that has happened? Annabeth was tempted to shout back at the voice, but she resisted. Even if she were going crazy, she didn't want to look like she was going crazy. She desperately needed something to lift her spirits. A drink of actual water, a moment of sunlight, a warm bed, a kind word from her mother. Suddenly, Bob stopped. He raised his hand. Wait. What? Percy whispered. Shh, Bob warned. Ahead, something moves. Annabeth strained her ears. From somewhere in the fog came a deep thrumming noise, like the idling engine of a large construction vehicle. She could feel the vibrations through her shoes. We will surround it, Bob whispered. Each of you take a flank. For the millionth time, Annabeth wished she had her dagger. She picked up a chunk of jagged black obsidian and crept to the left. Percy went right, his sword ready. Bob took the middle, his spearhead glowing in the fog. The humming got louder, shaking the gravel at Annabeth's feet. The noise seemed to be coming from immediately in front of them. Ready? Bob murmured. Annabeth crouched, preparing to spring. On three? One, Percy whispered. Two? A figure appeared in the fog. Bob raised his spear. Wait, Annabeth shrieked. Bob froze just in time, the point of his spear hovering an inch above the head of a tiny calico kitten. Wow said the kitten, clearly unimpressed by their attack plan. It butted its head against Bob's foot and purred loudly. It seemed impossible, but the deep rumbling sound was coming from the kitten. As it purred, the ground vibrated and pebbles danced. The kitten fixed its yellow, lamp-like eyes on one particular rock, right between Annabeth's feet, and pounced. The cat could have been a demon or a horrible underworld monster in disguise, but Annabeth couldn't help it. She picked it up and cuddled it. The little thing was bony under its fur, but otherwise it seemed perfectly normal. How did... She couldn't even form the question. 
What is a kitten doing? The cat grew impatient and squirmed out of her arms. It landed with a thump, padded over to Bob, and started purring again as it rubbed against his boots. Percy laughed. Somebody likes you, Bob. It must be a good monster. Bob looked up nervously. Isn't it? Annabeth felt a lump in her throat. Seeing the huge titan and this tiny kitten together, she suddenly felt insignificant compared to the vastness of Tartarus. This place had no respect for anything, good or bad, small or large, wise or unwise. Tartarus swallowed titans and demigods and kittens indiscriminately. Bob knelt down and scooped up the cat. It fit perfectly in Bob's palm, but it decided to explore. It climbed the titan's arm, made itself at home on his shoulder, and closed its eyes, purring like an earth mover. Suddenly, its fur shimmered. In a flash, the kitten became a ghostly skeleton, as if it had stepped behind an X-ray machine. Then, it was a regular kitten again. Annabeth blinked. Did you see? Yeah. Percy knit his eyebrows. Oh, man, I know that kitten. It's one of the ones from the Smithsonian. Annabeth tried to make sense of that. She'd never been to the Smithsonian with Percy. Then she recalled several years ago when the Titan Atlas had captured her. Percy and Thalia had led a quest to rescue her. Along the way, they'd watched Atlas raise some skeleton warriors from dragon teeth in the Smithsonian Museum. According to Percy, the Titan's first attempt went wrong. He'd planted saber-toothed tiger teeth by mistake and raised a batch of skeleton kittens from the soil. That's one of them? Annabeth asked. How did it get here? Percy spread his hands helplessly. Atlas told his servants to take the kittens away. Maybe they destroyed the cats and they were reborn in Tartarus. I don't know. It's cute, Bob said as the kitten sniffed his ear. But is it safe? Annabeth asked. The titan scratched the kitten's chin. Annabeth didn't know if it was a good idea, carrying around a cat grown from a prehistoric tooth but obviously it didn't matter now. The Titan and the cat had bonded. I will call him Small Bob, said Bob. He is a good monster. End of discussion. The Titan hefted his spear and they continued marching into the gloom. Annabeth walked in a daze, trying not to think about pizza. To keep herself distracted, she watched small Bob, the kitten, pacing across Bob's shoulders and purring, occasionally turning into a glowing kitty skeleton and then back to a calico fuzzball. Here, Bob announced. He stopped so suddenly Annabeth almost ran into him. Bob stared off to their left, as if deep in thought. Is this the place? Annabeth asked. Where we go sideways? Yes, Bob agreed. Darker than sideways. 
Annabeth couldn't tell if it was actually darker, but the air did seem colder and thicker, as if they'd stepped into a different microclimate. Again, she was reminded of San Francisco, where you could walk from one neighborhood to the next and the temperature might drop 10 degrees. She wondered if the Titans had built their palace on Mount Tamalpais because the Bay Area reminded them of Tartarus. What a depressing thought. Only Titans would see such a beautiful place as a potential outpost of the abyss, a hellish home away from home. Bob struck off to the left. They followed. The air definitely got colder. Annabeth pressed against Percy for warmth. He put his arm around her. It felt good being close to him, but she couldn't relax. They'd entered some sort of forest. Towering black trees soared into the gloom, perfectly round and bare of branches, like monstrous hair follicles. The ground was smooth and pale. With our luck, Annabeth thought, were marching through the armpit of Tartarus. Suddenly, her senses were on high alert, as if somebody had snapped a rubber band against the base of her neck. She rested her hand on the trunk of the nearest tree. What is it? Percy raised his sword. Bob turned and looked back, confused. We are stopping? Annabeth held up her hand for silence. She wasn't sure what had set her off. Nothing looked different. Then she realized the tree trunk was quivering. She wondered momentarily if it was the kitten's purr, but small Bob had fallen asleep on large Bob's shoulder. A few yards away, another tree shuddered. Something's moving above us, Annabeth whispered. Gather up. Bob and Percy closed ranks with her, standing back to back. Annabeth strained her eyes, trying to see above them in the dark, but nothing moved. She had almost decided she was being paranoid when the first monster dropped to the ground only five feet away. Annabeth's first thought? The Furies. The creature looked almost exactly like one, a wrinkled hag with bat-like wings, brass talons, and glowing red eyes. She wore a tattered dress of black silk, and her face was twisted and ravenous, like a demonic grandmother in the mood to kill. Bob grunted as another one dropped in front of him, and then another in front of Percy. Soon, there were half a dozen surrounding them. More hissed in the trees above. They couldn't be furies then. There were only three of those, and these winged hags didn't carry whips. That didn't comfort Annabeth. The monster's talons looked plenty dangerous. What are you? she demanded. The Arai, hissed a voice. The curses. Annabeth tried to locate the speaker, but none of the demons had moved their mouths. Their eyes looked dead. Their expressions were frozen, like a puppet's. The voice simply floated overhead like a movie narrator, as if a single mind controlled all the creatures. What? What do you want? Annabeth asked, trying to maintain a tone of confidence. The voice cackled maliciously. 
To curse you, of course. To destroy you a thousand times in the name of Mother Night. Only a thousand times? Percy murmured. Oh, good. I thought we were in trouble. The circle of demon ladies closed in. Chapter 25 Hazel Everything smelled like poison. Two days after leaving Venice, Hazel still couldn't get the noxious scent of Eau de Cow Monster out of her nose. The seasickness didn't help. The Argo too sailed down the Adriatic, a beautiful glittering expanse of blue, but Hazel couldn't appreciate it thanks to the constant rolling of the ship. Above deck, she tried to keep her eyes fixed on the horizon, the white cliffs that always seemed just a mile or so to the east. What country was that? Croatia? She wasn't sure. She just wished she were on solid ground again. The thing that nauseated her most was the weasel. Last night, Hecate's pet, Gale, had appeared in her cabin. Hazel woke from a nightmare thinking, what is that smell? She found a furry rodent propped on her chest, staring at her with its beady black eyes. Nothing like waking up screaming, kicking off your covers, and dancing around your cabin while a weasel scampers between your feet, screeching and farting. Her friends rushed to her room to see if she was okay. The weasel was difficult to explain. Hazel could tell that Leo was trying hard not to make a joke. In the morning, once the excitement died down, Hazel decided to visit Coach Hedge, since he could talk to animals. She'd found his cabin door ajar and heard the coach inside, talking as if he were on the phone with someone, except they had no phones on board. Maybe he was sending a magical iris message? Hazel had heard that the Greeks used those a lot. Sure, hun, Hedge was saying. Yeah, I know, baby. No, it's great news, but... His voice broke with emotion. Hazel suddenly felt horrible for eavesdropping. She would have backed away, but Gail squeaked at her heels. Hazel knocked on the coach's door. Hedge poked his head out, scowling as usual but his eyes were red. What? He growled. Um, sorry, Hazel said. Are you okay? The coach snorted and opened his door wide. Kind of question is that? There was no one else in the room. I... Hazel tried to remember why she was there. I wondered if you could talk to my weasel. The coach's eyes narrowed. He lowered his voice. Are we speaking in code? Is there an intruder aboard? Well, sort of. Gale peeked out from behind Hazel's feet and started chattering. The coach looked offended. He chattered back at the weasel. They had what sounded like a very intense argument. What did she say? Hazel asked. A lot of rude things, grumbled the satyr. The gist of it, she's here to see how it goes. How what goes? Coach Hedge stomped his hoof, 
How am I supposed to know? She's a polecat. They never give a straight answer. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got, uh, stuff. He closed the door in her face. After breakfast, Hazel stood at the port rail, trying to settle her stomach. Next to her, Gail ran up and down the railing, passing gas, but the strong wind off the Adriatic helped whisk it away. Hazel wondered what was wrong with Coach Hedge. He must have been using an iris message to talk with someone, but if he'd gotten great news, why had he looked so devastated? She'd never seen him so shaken up. Unfortunately, she doubted the coach would ask for help if he needed it. He wasn't exactly the warm and open type. She stared at the white cliffs in the distance and thought about why Hecate had sent Gail the polecat. She's here to see how it goes. Something was about to happen. Hazel would be tested. She didn't understand how she was supposed to learn magic with no training. Hecate expected her to defeat some super-powerful sorceress, the lady in the gold dress, whom Leo had described from his dream. But how? Hazel had spent all her free time trying to figure that out. She'd stared at her spatha, trying to make it look like a walking stick. She'd tried to summon a cloud to hide the full moon. She'd concentrated until her eyes crossed and her ears popped, but nothing happened. She couldn't manipulate the mist. The last few nights, her dreams had gotten worse. She found herself back in the fields of Asphodel, drifting aimlessly among the ghosts. Then she was in Gia's cave in Alaska, where Hazel and her mother had died as the ceiling collapsed and the voice of the earth goddess wailed in anger. She was on the stairs of her mother's apartment building in New Orleans, face to face with her father Pluto. His cold fingers gripped her arm. The fabric of his black wool suit writhed with imprisoned souls. He fixed her with his dark, angry eyes and said, the dead see what they believe they will see. So do the living. That is the secret. He'd never said that to her in real life. She had no idea what it meant. The worst nightmares seemed like glimpses of the future. Hazel was stumbling through a dark tunnel while a woman's laughter echoed around her. Control this if you can, child of Pluto the woman taunted. And always, Hazel dreamed about the images she'd seen at Hecate's crossroads. Leo falling through the sky, Percy and Annabeth lying unconscious, possibly dead, in front of black metal doors, and a shrouded figure looming above them, the giant Clytius wrapped in darkness. Next to her on the rail, Gale the weasel chittered impatiently. Hazel was tempted to push the stupid rodent into the sea. I can't even control my own dreams, she wanted to scream. How am I supposed to control the mist? She was so miserable, she didn't notice Frank until he was standing at her side. Feeling any better? he asked. He took her hand, his fingers completely covering hers. She couldn't believe how much taller he'd gotten. 
He had changed into so many animals, she wasn't sure why one more transformation should amaze her. But suddenly he'd grown into his weight. No one could call him pudgy or cuddly anymore. He looked like a football player, solid and strong, with a new center of gravity. His shoulders had broadened. He walked with more confidence. What Frank had done on that bridge in Venice, Hazel was still in awe. None of them had actually seen the battle, but no one doubted it. Frank's whole bearing had changed. Even Leo had stopped making jokes at his expense. I'm... I'm all right, Hazel managed. You? He smiled, the corners of his eyes crinkling. I'm, uh, taller. Otherwise, yeah, I'm good. I haven't really, you know, changed inside. His voice held a little of the old doubt and awkwardness. The voice of her Frank, who always worried about being a klutz and messing up. Hazel felt relieved. She liked that part of him. At first, his new appearance had shocked her. She'd been worried that his personality had changed as well. Now she was starting to relax about that. Despite all his strength, Frank was the same sweet guy. He was still vulnerable. He still trusted her with his biggest weakness, the piece of magical firewood she carried in her coat pocket, next to her heart. I know, and I'm glad. She squeezed his hand. It's... It's actually not you I'm worried about. Frank grunted. How's Nico doing? She'd been thinking about herself, not Nico, but she followed Frank's gaze to the top of the foremast, where Nico was perched on the yardarm. Nico claimed that he liked to keep watch because he had good eyes. Hazel knew that wasn't the reason. The top of the mast was one of the few places on board where Nico could be alone. The others had offered him the use of Percy's cabin, since Percy was, well, absent. Nico adamantly refused. He spent most of his time up in the rigging, where he didn't have to talk with the rest of the crew. Since he'd been turned into a corn plant in Venice, he'd only gotten more reclusive and morose. I don't know. Hazel admitted. He's been through a lot. Getting captured in Tartarus, being held prisoner in that bronze jar, watching Percy and Annabeth fall, and promising to lead us to Epirus. Frank nodded. I get the feeling Nico doesn't play well with others. Frank stood up straight. He was wearing a beige t-shirt with a picture of a horse and the words Palio di Siena. He'd only bought it a couple days ago, but now it was too small. When he stretched, his midriff was exposed. Hazel realized she was staring. She quickly looked away, her face flushed. Nico is my only relative, she said. He's not easy to like, but thanks for being kind to him. Frank smiled. Hey, you put up with my grandmother in Vancouver. Talk about not easy to like. I loved your grandmother. Gail, the polecat, scampered up to them, farted, and ran away. Ugh, 
Frank waved away the smell. Why is that thing here anyway? Hazel was almost glad she wasn't on dry land. As agitated as she felt, golden gems would probably be popping up all around her feet. Hecate sent Gail to observe, she said. Observe what? Hazel tried to take comfort in Frank's presence, his new aura of solidity and strength. I don't know, she said at last. Some kind of test. Suddenly, the boat lurched forward. Chapter 26 Hazel Hazel and Frank tumbled over each other. Hazel accidentally gave herself a Heimlich maneuver with the pommel of her sword and curled on the deck, moaning and coughing up the taste of Catobleps poison. Through a fog of pain, she heard the ship's figurehead, Festus, the bronze dragon, creaking in alarm and shooting fire. Dimly, Hazel wondered if they'd hit an iceberg. But in the Adriatic? In the middle of summer? The ship rocked to port with a massive commotion, like telephone poles snapping in half. Gah! Leo yelled somewhere behind her. It's eating the oars! What is? Hazel wondered. She tried to stand, but something large and heavy was pinning her legs. She realized it was Frank, grumbling as he tried to extract himself from a pile of loose rope. Everyone else was scrambling. Jason jumped over them, his sword drawn, and raced toward the stern. Piper was already on the quarterdeck, shooting food from her cornucopia and yelling, Hey! Hey! Eat this, you stupid turtle! Turtle? Frank helped Hazel to her feet. You okay? Yeah, Hazel lied, clutching her stomach. Go! Frank sprinted up the steps, slinging off his backpack, which instantly transformed into a bow and quiver. By the time he reached the helm, he had already fired one arrow and was knocking the second. Leo frantically worked the ship's controls. Oars won't retract! Get it away! Get it away! Up in the rigging, Nico's face was slack with shock. Sticks! It's huge! He yelled. Port! Go port! Coach Hedge was the last one on deck. He compensated for that with enthusiasm. He bounded up the steps, waving his baseball bat, and without hesitation, Goat galloped to the stern and leaped over the rail with a gleeful, Ha-ha! Hazel staggered toward the quarterdeck to join her friends. The boat shuddered. More oars snapped, and Leo yelled, No, no, no! Dang slimy shelled son of a mother! Hazel reached the stern and couldn't believe what she saw. When she heard the word turtle, she thought of a cute little thing the size of a jewelry box, sitting on a rock in the middle of a fish pond. When she heard huge turtle, her mind tried to adjust. Okay, perhaps it was like the Galapagos tortoise she'd seen in the zoo once, with a shell big enough to ride on. She did not envision a creature the size of an island. 
When she saw the massive dome of craggy black and brown squares, the word turtle simply did not compute. Its shell was more like a landmass. Hills of bone, shiny pearl valleys, kelp and moss forests, rivers of seawater trickling down the grooves of its carapace. On the ship's starboard side, another part of the monster rose from the water like a submarine. Larry's of Rome? Was that its head? Its gold eyes were the size of wading pools, with dark sideways slits for pupils. Its skin glistened like wet army camouflage, brown flecked with green and yellow. Its red, toothless mouth could have swallowed the Athena Parthenos in one bite. Hazel watched as it snapped off half a dozen oars. Stop that! Leo wailed. Coach Hedge clambered around the turtle's shell, whacking it uselessly with his baseball bat and yelling, Take that! And that! Jason flew from the stern and landed on the creature's head. He stabbed his golden sword straight between its eyes, but the blade slipped sideways, as if the turtle's skin were greased steel. Frank shot arrows at the monster's eyes with no success. The turtle's filmy inner eyelids blinked with uncanny precision, deflecting each shot. Piper shot cantaloupes into the water, yelling, Fetch, you stupid turtle! But the turtle seemed fixated on eating the Argo, too. How did it get so close? Hazel demanded. Leo threw his hands up in exasperation. Must be that shell. Guess it's invisible to sonar. It's a freaking stealth turtle. Can the ship fly? Piper asked. With half our oars broken off? Leo punched some buttons and spun his Archimedes sphere. I'll have to try something else. There, Nico yelled from above. Can you get us to those straits? Hazel looked where he was pointing. About half a mile to the east, a long strip of land ran parallel to the coastal cliffs. It was hard to be sure from a distance, but the stretch of water between them looked to be only twenty or thirty yards across, possibly wide enough for the Argo II to slip through, but definitely not wide enough for the giant turtle's shell. Yeah, yeah. Leo apparently understood. He turned the Archimedes sphere. Jason, get away from that thing's head. I have an idea. Jason was still hacking away at the turtle's face, but when he heard Leo say, I have an idea, he made the only smart choice. He flew away as fast as possible. Coach, come on, Jason said. No, I got this, Hedge said. But Jason grabbed him around the waist and took off. Unfortunately, the coach struggled so much that Jason's sword fell out of his hand and splashed into the sea. Coach! Jason complained. What? Hedge said. I was softening him up! The turtle head-butted the hole, almost tossing the whole crew off the port side. Hazel heard a cracking sound like the keel had splintered. 
Just another minute, Leo said, his hands flying over the console. We might not be here in another minute, Frank fired his last arrow. Piper yelled at the turtle, Go away! For a moment, it actually worked. The turtle turned from the ship and dipped its head underwater. But then it came right back and rammed them even harder. Jason and Coach Hedge landed on the deck. You all right? Piper asked. Fine, Jason muttered. Without a weapon, but fine. Fire in the shell, Leo cried, spinning his Wii controller. Hazel thought the stern had exploded. Jets of fire blasted out behind them, washing over the turtle's head. The ship shot forward and threw Hazel to the deck again. She hauled herself up and saw that the ship was bouncing over the waves at incredible speed, trailing fire like a rocket. The turtle was already a hundred yards behind them, its head charred and smoking. The monster bellowed in frustration and started after them, its paddle feet scooping through the water with such power that it actually started to gain on them. The entrance to the straits was still a quarter mile ahead. A distraction, Leo muttered. We'll never make it unless we get a distraction. A distraction, Hazel repeated. She concentrated and thought, Orion. She had no idea whether it would work, but instantly, Hazel spotted something on the horizon, a flash of light and steam. It streaked across the surface of the Adriatic. In a heartbeat, Orion stood on the quarterdeck. Gods of Olympus, Hazel thought. I love this horse. Orion snorted as if to say, Of course you do. You're not stupid. Hazel climbed on his back. Piper, I could use that charm speak of yours. Once upon a time, I liked turtles. Piper muttered, accepting a hand up. Not anymore. Hazel spurred Orion. He leaped over the side of the boat, hitting the water at a full gallop. The turtle was a fast swimmer, but it couldn't match Orion's speed. Hazel and Piper zipped around the monster's head, Hazel slicing with her sword, Piper shouting random commands like, Dive! Turn left! Look behind you! The sword did no damage. Each command only worked for a moment, but they were making the turtle very annoyed. Orion whinnied derisively as the turtle snapped at him, only to get a mouthful of horse vapor. Soon, the monster had completely forgotten the Argo, too. Hazel kept stabbing at its head. Piper kept yelling commands and using her cornucopia to bounce coconuts and roasted chickens off the turtle's eyeballs. As soon as the Argo, too, had passed into the straits, Orion broke off his harassment. They sped after the ship and a moment later were back on deck. The rocket fire had extinguished, though smoking bronze exhaust vents still jutted from the stern. The Argo too limped forward under sail power, but their plan had paid off. They were safely harbored in the narrow waters, with a long, rocky island to starboard, 
and the sheer white cliffs of the mainland to port. The turtle stopped at the entrance to the strait and glared at them balefully, but it made no attempt to follow. Its shell was obviously much too wide. Hazel dismounted and got a big hug from Frank. Nice work out there, he said. Her face flushed. Thanks. Piper slid down next to her. Leo, since when do we have jet propulsion? Ah, uh, you know. Leo tried to look modest and failed. Just a little something I whipped up in my spare time. Wish I could give you more than a few seconds of burn, but at least it got us out of there. And roasted the turtle's head, Jason said appreciatively. So what now? Kill it, Coach said. Even have to ask? We got enough distance. We got ballisti. Lock and load, demigods. Jason frowned. Coach, first of all, you made me lose my sword. Hey, I didn't ask for an evac. Second, I don't think the ballisti will do any good. That shell is like Nemean lion skin. Its head isn't any softer. So we chuck one right down its throat, Coach said. Like you guys did with that shrimp monster thing in the Atlantic. Light it up from the inside. Frank scratched his head. Might work. But then you've got a five million kilo turtle carcass blocking the entrance to the strait. If we can't fly with the oars broken, how do we get the ship out? You wait and fix the oars, Coach said. Or just sail the other direction, you big galoot. Frank looked confused. What's a galoot? Guys, Nico called down from the mast. About sailing the other direction? I don't think that's going to work. He pointed past the prow. A quarter mile ahead of them, the long, rocky strip of land curved in and met the cliffs. The channel ended in a narrow V. We're not in a strait, Jason said. We're in a dead end. Hazel got a cold feeling in her fingers and toes. On the port rail, Gail the weasel sat up on her haunches, staring at Hazel expectantly. This is a trap. Hazel said. The others looked at her. Nah, it's fine, Leo said. Worse that happens, we make repairs. Might take overnight, but I can get the ship flying again. At the mouth of the inlet, the turtle roared. It didn't appear interested in leaving. Well, Piper shrugged. At least the turtle can't get us. We're safe here. That was something no demigod should ever say. The words had barely left Piper's mouth when an arrow sank into the mainmast, six inches from her face. The crew scattered for cover, except for Piper, who stood frozen in place, gaping at the arrow that had almost pierced her nose the hard way. Piper, duck! Jason hissed, but no other missiles rained down. Frank studied the angle of the bolt in the mast and pointed toward the top of the cliffs.
Up there, he said. Single shooter. See him? The sun was in her eyes, but Hazel spotted a tiny figure standing at the top of the ledge. His bronze armor glinted. Who the heck is he? Leo demanded. Why is he firing at us? Guys? Piper's voice was thin and watery. There's a note. Hazel hadn't seen it before, but a parchment scroll was tied to the arrow shaft. She wasn't sure why, but that made her angry. She stormed over and untied it. Uh, Hazel? Leo said. You sure that's safe? She read the note out loud. First line. Stand and deliver. What does that mean? Coach Hedge complained. We are standing. Well, crouching anyway. And if that guy is expecting a pizza delivery, forget it. There's more, Hazel said. This is a robbery. Send two of your party to the top of the cliff with all your valuables. No more than two. Leave the magic horse. No flying, no tricks, just climb. Climb what? Piper asked. Nico pointed. There. A narrow set of stairs was carved into the cliff, leading to the top. The turtle, the dead-end channel, the cliff. Hazel got the feeling this was not the first time the letter writer had ambushed a ship here. She cleared her throat and kept reading aloud. I do mean all your valuables. Otherwise, my turtle and I will destroy you. You have five minutes. Use the catapults, cried the coach. P.S., Hazel read. Don't even think about using your catapults. Curse it, said the coach. The sky is good. Is the note signed? Nico asked. Hazel shook her head. She'd heard a story back at Camp Jupiter, something about a robber who worked with a giant turtle. But as usual, as soon as she needed the information, it sat annoyingly in the back of her memory, just out of reach. The weasel Gale watched her, waiting to see what she would do. The test hasn't happened yet, Hazel thought. Distracting the turtle hadn't been enough. Hazel hadn't proven anything about how she could manipulate the mist, mostly because she couldn't manipulate the mist. Leo studied the clifftop and muttered under his breath. That's not a good trajectory. Even if I could arm the catapult before that guy pincushioned us with arrows, I don't think I could make the shot. That's hundreds of feet almost straight up. Yeah, Frank grumbled. My bow is useless too. He's got a huge advantage being above us like that. I couldn't reach him. And, um... Piper nudged the arrow that was stuck in the mast. I have a feeling he's a good shot. I don't think he meant to hit me, but if he did... She didn't need to elaborate. Whoever that robber was, 
he could hit a target from hundreds of feet away. He could shoot them all before they could react. I'll go, Hazel said. She hated the idea, but she was sure Hecate had set this up as some sort of twisted challenge. This was Hazel's test. Her turn to save the ship. As if she needed confirmation, Gale scampered along the railing and jumped on her shoulder, ready to hitch a ride. The others stared at her. Frank gripped his bow. Hazel. No, listen, she said. This robber wants valuables. I can go up there, summon gold, jewels, whatever he wants. Leo raised an eyebrow. If we pay him off, you think he'll actually let us go? We don't have much choice, Nico said. Between that guy and the turtle... Jason raised his hand. The others fell silent. I'll go too, he said. The letter says two people. I'll take Hazel up there and watch her back. Besides, I don't like the look of those stairs. If Hazel falls, well, I can use the winds to keep us both from coming down the hard way. Orion whinnied in protest, as if to say, You're going without me? You're kidding, right? I have to, Orion, Hazel said. Jason, yes, I think you're right. It's the best plan. Only wish I had my sword, Jason glared at the coach. It's back there at the bottom of the sea, and we don't have Percy to retrieve it. The name Percy passed over them like a cloud. The mood on deck got even darker. Hazel stretched out her arm. She didn't think about it. She just concentrated on the water and called for imperial gold. A stupid idea. The sword was much too far away, probably hundreds of feet underwater. But she felt a quick tug in her fingers, like a bite on a fishing line, and Jason's blade flew out of the water and into her hand. Here, she said, handing it over. Jason's eyes widened. How? That was like half a mile. I've been practicing, she said, though it wasn't true. She hoped she hadn't accidentally cursed Jason's sword by summoning it, the way she cursed jewels and precious metals. Somehow, though, she thought weapons were different. After all, she'd raised a bunch of Imperial Gold equipment from Glacier Bay and distributed it to the fifth cohort. That had worked out okay. She decided not to worry about it. She felt so angry at Hecate, and so tired of being manipulated by the gods, that she wasn't going to let any trifling problems stand in her way. Now, if there are no other objections, we have a robber to meet. Chapter 27 Hazel Hazel liked the great outdoors, but climbing a 200-foot cliff on a stairway without rails, with a bad-tempered weasel on her shoulder? Not so much. Especially when she could have ridden Orion to the top in a matter of seconds. Jason walked behind her so he could catch her if she fell. 
Hazel appreciated that, but it didn't make the sheer drop any less scary. She glanced to her right, which was a mistake. Her foot almost slipped, sending a spray of gravel over the edge. Gale squeaked in alarm. You all right? Jason asked. Yes. Hazel's heart jackhammered at her ribs. Fine. She had no room to turn and look at him. She just had to trust he wouldn't let her plummet to her death. Since he could fly, he was the only logical backup. Still, she wished it was Frank at her back, or Nico, or Piper, or Leo, or even, well, okay, maybe not Coach Hedge. But still, Hazel couldn't get a read on Jason Grace. Ever since she'd arrived at Camp Jupiter, she'd heard stories about him. The campers spoke with reverence about the son of Jupiter, who'd risen from the lowly ranks of the fifth cohort to become Praetor, led them to victory in the Battle of Mount Tam, then disappeared. Even now, after all the events of the past couple of weeks, Jason seemed more like a legend than a person. She had a hard time warming up to him, with those icy blue eyes and that careful reserve like he was calculating every word before he said it. Also, she couldn't forget how he had been ready to write off her brother, Nico, when they'd learned he was a captive in Rome. Jason had thought Nico was bait for a trap. He had been right. And maybe, now that Nico was safe, Hazel could see why Jason's caution was a good idea. Still, she didn't quite know what to think of the guy. What if they got themselves in trouble at the top of this cliff, and Jason decided that saving Hazel wasn't in the best interest of the quest? She glanced up. She couldn't see the thief from here, but she sensed he was waiting. Hazel was confident she could produce enough gems and gold to impress even the greediest robber. She wondered if the treasures she summoned would still bring bad luck. She'd never been sure whether that curse had been broken when she had died the first time. This seemed like a good opportunity to find out. Anybody who robbed innocent demigods with a giant turtle deserved a few nasty curses. Gail the weasel jumped off her shoulder and scampered ahead. She glanced back and barked eagerly. Going as fast as I can... Hazel muttered. She couldn't shake the feeling that the weasel was anxious to watch her fail. This, uh, controlling the mist, Jason said. Have you had any luck? No, Hazel admitted. She didn't like to think about her failures. The seagull she couldn't turn into a dragon... Coach Hedge's baseball bat stubbornly refusing to turn into a hot dog. She just couldn't make herself believe any of it was possible. You'll get it, Jason said. His tone surprised her. It wasn't a throwaway comment just to be nice. He sounded truly convinced. She kept climbing, but she imagined him watching her with those piercing blue eyes his jaw set with confidence. 
How can you be sure? She asked. Just am. I've got a good instinct for what people can do. Demigods, anyway. Hecate wouldn't have picked you if she didn't believe you had power. Maybe that should have made Hazel feel better. It didn't. She had a good instinct for people, too. She understood what motivated most of her friends, even her brother, Nico, who wasn't easy to read. But Jason? She didn't have a clue. Everybody said he was a natural leader. She believed it. Here he was, making her feel like a valued member of the team, telling her she was capable of anything. But what was Jason capable of? She couldn't talk to anyone about her doubts. Frank was in awe of the guy. Piper, of course, was head over heels. Leo was his best friend. Even Nico seemed to follow his lead without question. But Hazel couldn't forget that Jason had been Hera's first move in the war against the Giants. The Queen of Olympus had dropped Jason into Camp Half-Blood, which had started this entire chain of events to stop Gia. Why Jason first? Something told Hazel he was the linchpin. Jason would be the final play, too. To storm or fire, the world must fall. That's what the prophecy said. As much as Hazel feared fire, she feared storms more. Jason Grace could cause some pretty huge storms. She glanced up and saw the rim of the cliff only a few yards above her. She reached the top, breathless and sweaty. A long, sloping valley marched inland, dotted with scraggly olive trees and limestone boulders. There were no signs of civilization. Hazel's legs trembled from the climb. Gale seemed anxious to explore. The weasel barked and farted and scampered into the nearest bushes. Far below, the Argo, too, looked like a toy boat in the channel. Hazel didn't understand how anyone could shoot an arrow accurately from this high up, accounting for the wind and the glare of the sun off the water. At the mouth of the inlet, the massive shape of the turtle's shell glinted like a burnished coin. Jason joined her at the top, looking no worse for the climb. He started to say, Where? Here, said a voice. Hazel flinched. Only ten feet away, a man had appeared, a bow and quiver over his shoulder, and two old-fashioned flintlock dueling pistols in his hands. He wore high leather boots, leather breeches, and a pirate-style shirt. His curly black hair looked like a little kid's do, and his sparkly green eyes were friendly enough, but a red bandana covered the lower half of his face. Welcome, the bandit cried, pointing his guns at them. Your money or your life? Hazel was certain that he hadn't been there a second ago. He'd simply materialized, as if he'd stepped out from behind an invisible curtain. Who are you? Hazel asked. The bandit laughed. Skyron, of course. Chiron? Jason asked.
Like the centaur? The bandit rolled his eyes. Skyron, my friend, son of Poseidon, thief extraordinaire, all around awesome guy. But that's not important. I'm not seeing any valuables, he cried, as if this were excellent news. I guess that means you want to die? Wait, Hazel said. We've got valuables, but if we give them up, how can we be sure you'll let us go? Oh, they always ask that, Skyron said. I promise you on the River Styx that as soon as you surrender what I want, I will not shoot you. I will send you right back down that cliff. Hazel gave Jason a wary look. River Styx or no, the way Skyron phrased his promise didn't reassure her. What if we fought you? Jason asked. You can't attack us and hold our ship hostage at the same... Bang! Bang! It happened so fast, Hazel's brain needed a moment to catch up. Smoke curled from the side of Jason's head. Just above his left ear, a groove cut through his hair like a racing stripe. One of Skyron's flintlocks was still pointed at his face. The other flintlock was pointed down, over the side of the cliff as if Skyron's second shot had been fired at the Argo too. Hazel choked from delayed shock. What did you do? Oh, don't worry, Skyron laughed. If you could see that far, which you can't, you'd see a hole in the deck between the shoes of the big young man, the one with the bow. Frank! Skyron shrugged. If you say so. That was just a demonstration. I'm afraid it could have been much more serious. He spun his flintlocks. The hammers reset, and Hazel had a feeling the guns had just magically reloaded. Skyron waggled his eyebrows at Jason. So, to answer your question, yes, I can attack you and hold your ship hostage at the same time. Celestial bronze ammunition, quite deadly to demigods. You two would die first. Bang, bang. Then I could take my time picking off your friends on that ship. Target practice is so much more fun with live targets running around screaming. Jason touched the new furrow that the bullet had plowed through his hair. For once, he didn't look very confident. Hazel's ankles wobbled. Frank was the best shot she knew with the bow, but this bandit Skyron was inhumanly good. You're a son of Poseidon? She managed. I would have thought Apollo the way you shoot. The smile lines deepened around his eyes. Why, thank you. It's just from practice, though. The giant turtle, that's due to my parentage. You can't go around taming giant turtles without being a son of Poseidon. I could overwhelm your ship with a tidal wave, of course, but it's terribly difficult work. Not nearly as fun as ambushing and shooting people. Hazel tried to collect her thoughts, stall for time, but it was difficult while staring down the smoking barrels of those flintlocks. Uh, what's the bandana for? 
So no one recognizes me, Skyron said. But you introduced yourself, Jason said. You're Skyron. The bandit's eyes widened. How did you... Oh, yes. I suppose I did. He lowered one flintlock and scratched the side of his head with the other. Terribly sloppy of me. Sorry. I'm afraid I'm a little rusty. Back from the dead and all that. Let me try again. He leveled his pistols. Stand and deliver. I am an anonymous bandit, and you do not need to know my name. An anonymous bandit. Something clicked in Hazel's memory. Theseus, he killed you once. Skyron's shoulders slumped. Now, why did you have to mention him? We were getting along so well. Jason frowned. Hazel, you know this guy's story? She nodded, though the details were murky. Theseus met him on the road to Athens. Skyron would kill his victims by... Um... Something about the turtle. Hazel couldn't remember. Theseus was such a cheater, Skyron complained. I don't want to talk about him. I'm back from the dead now. Gia promised me I could stay on the coastline and rob all the demigods I wanted. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, where were we? You were about to let us go, Hazel ventured. Hmm... Skyron said. No, I'm pretty sure that wasn't it. Ah, right. Money or your life. Where are your valuables? No valuables? Then I'll have to... Wait, Hazel said. I have our valuables. At least I can get them. Skyron pointed a flintlock at Jason's head. Well then, my dear, hop to it or my next shot will cut off more than your friend's hair. Hazel hardly needed to concentrate. She was so anxious the ground rumbled beneath her and immediately yielded a bumper crop, precious metals popping to the surface as though the dirt was anxious to expel them. She found herself surrounded by a knee-high mound of treasure, Roman denarii, Silver drachma, ancient gold jewelry, glittering diamonds and topaz and rubies. Enough to fill several lawn bags. Skyron laughed with delight. How in the world did you do that? Hazel didn't answer. She thought about all the coins that had appeared at the crossroads with Hecate. Here were even more. Centuries' worth of hidden wealth from every empire that had ever claimed this land. Greek, Roman, Byzantine, and so many others. Those empires were gone, leaving only a barren coastline for Skyron the Bandit. That thought made her feel small and powerless. Just take the treasure, she said. Let us go. Skyron chuckled. Oh, but I did say... All your valuables. I understand you're holding something very special on that ship. A certain ivory and gold statue about, say, forty feet tall? 
the sweat started to dry on Hazel's neck, sending a shiver down her back. Jason stepped forward. Despite the gun pointed at his face, his eyes were as hard as sapphires. The statue isn't negotiable. You're right, it's not, Skyron agreed. I must have it. Gia told you about it, Hazel guessed. She ordered you to take it. Skyron shrugged. Maybe, but she told me I could keep it for myself. Hard to pass up that offer. I don't intend to die again, my friends. I intend to live a long life as a very wealthy man. The statue won't do you any good, Hazel said. Not if Gia destroys the world. The muzzles of Skyron's pistols wavered. Pardon? Gia is using you, Hazel said. If you take that statue, we won't be able to defeat her. She's planning on wiping all mortals and demigods off the face of the earth, letting her giants and monsters take over. So where will you spend your gold, Skyron? Assuming Gia even lets you live. Hazel let that sink in. She figured Skyron would have no trouble believing in double crosses, being abandoned and all. He was silent for a count of ten. Finally, his smile lines returned. All right, he said. I'm not unreasonable. Keep the statue. Jason blinked. We can go? Just one more thing, Skyron said. I always demand a show of respect. Before I let my victims leave, I insist that they wash my feet. Hazel wasn't sure she'd heard him right. Then Skyron kicked off his leather boots, one after the other. His bare feet were the most disgusting things Hazel had ever seen. And she had seen some very disgusting things. They were puffy, wrinkled, and white as dough, as if they'd been soaking in formaldehyde for a few centuries. Tufts of brown hair sprouted from each misshapen toe. His jagged toenails were green and yellow, like a tortoise's shell. Then the smell hit her. Hazel didn't know if her father's underworld palace had a cafeteria for zombies, but if it did, that cafeteria would smell like Skyron's feet. So, Skyron wriggled his disgusting toes. Who wants the left, and who wants the right? Jason's face turned almost as white as those feet. You've got to be kidding. Not at all, Skyron said. Wash my feet, and we're done. I'll send you back down the cliff. I promise on the river sticks. He made that promise so easily, alarm bells rang in Hazel's mind. Feet. Send you back down the cliff. Tortoise shell. The story came back to her, all the missing pieces fitting into place. She remembered how Skyron killed his victims. Could we have a moment? Hazel asked the bandit. Skyron's eyes narrowed. What for? Well, it's a big decision, she said. Left foot, right foot. We need to discuss. 
she could tell he was smiling under the mask. Of course, he said. I'm so generous, you can have two minutes. Hazel climbed out of her pile of treasure. She led Jason as far away as she dared, about fifty feet down the cliff, which she hoped was out of earshot. Skyron kicks his victims off the cliff, she whispered. Jason scowled. What? When you kneel down to wash his feet, Hazel said, that's how he kills you. When you're off balance, woozy from the smell of his feet, he'll kick you over the edge. You'll fall right into the mouth of his giant turtle. Jason took a moment to digest that, so to speak. He glanced over the cliff, where the turtle's massive shell glinted just under the water. So we have to fight, Jason said. Skyron's too fast, Hazel said. He'll kill us both. Then I'll be ready to fly. When he kicks me over, I'll float halfway down the cliff. Then, when he kicks you, I'll catch you. Hazel shook her head. If he kicks you hard and fast enough, you'll be too dazed to fly. And even if you can, Skyron's got the eyes of a marksman. He'll watch you fall. If you hover, he'll just shoot you out of the air. Then... Jason clenched his sword hilt. I hope you have another idea. A few feet away, Gale the weasel appeared from the bushes. She gnashed her teeth and peered at Hazel, as if to say, Well, do you? Hazel calmed her nerves, trying to avoid pulling more gold from the ground. She remembered the dream she'd had of her father Pluto's voice. The dead see what they believe they will see. So do the living. That is the secret. She understood what she had to do. She hated the idea worse than she hated that farting weasel, worse than she hated Skyron's feet. Unfortunately, yes, Hazel said. We have to let Skyron win. What? Jason demanded. Hazel told him the plan. Chapter 28 Hazel Finally! Skyron cried. That was much longer than two minutes. Sorry, Jason said. It was a big decision. Which foot? Hazel tried to clear her mind and imagine the scene through Skyron's eyes what he desired, what he expected. That was the key to using the mist. She couldn't force someone to see the world her way. She couldn't make Skyron's reality appear less believable. But if she showed him what he wanted to see, well, she was a child of Pluto. She'd spent decades with the dead, listening to them yearn for past lives that were only half-remembered, distorted by nostalgia. The dead saw what they believed they would see. So did the living. Pluto was the god of the underworld, the god of wealth. Maybe those two spheres of influence were more connected than Hazel had realized. 
There wasn't much difference between longing and greed. If she could summon gold and diamonds, why not summon another kind of treasure? A vision of the world people wanted to see. Of course, she could be wrong, in which case she and Jason were about to be turtle food. She rested her hand on her jacket pocket, where Frank's magical firewood seemed heavier than usual. She wasn't just carrying his lifeline now. She was carrying the lives of the entire crew. Jason stepped forward, his hands open in surrender. I'll go first, Skyron. I'll wash your left foot. Excellent choice. Skyron wriggled his hairy, corpse-like toes. I may have stepped on something with that foot. It felt a little squishy inside my boot, but I'm sure you'll clean it properly. Jason's ears reddened. From the tension in his neck, Hazel could tell that he was tempted to drop the charade and attack. One quick slash with his imperial gold blade. But Hazel knew if he tried, he would fail. Skyron, she broke in. Do you have water? Soap? How are we supposed to wash? Like this. Skyron spun his left flintlock. Suddenly, it became a squirt bottle with a rag. He tossed it to Jason. Jason squinted at the label. You want me to wash your feet with glass cleaner? Of course not. Skyron knit his eyebrows. It says multi-surface cleanser. My feet definitely qualify as multi-surface. Besides, it's antibacterial. I need that. Believe me, water won't do the trick on these babies. Skyron wiggled his toes, and more zombie cafe odor wafted across the cliffs. Jason gagged. Oh, gods, no. Skyron shrugged. You can always choose what's in my other hand. He hefted his right flintlock. He'll do it, Hazel said. Jason glared at her, but Hazel won the staring contest. Fine, he muttered. Excellent. Now. Skyron hopped to the nearest chunk of limestone that was the right size for a footstool. He faced the water and planted his foot, so he looked like some explorer who'd just claimed a new country. I'll watch the horizon while you scrub my bunions. It'll be much more enjoyable. Yeah, Jason said. I bet. Jason knelt in front of the bandit, at the edge of the cliff, where he was an easy target. One kick, and he'd topple over. Hazel concentrated. She imagined she was Skyron, the Lord of Bandits. She was looking down at a pathetic blonde-haired kid who was no threat at all. Just another defeated demigod, about to become his victim. In her mind, she saw what would happen. She summoned the mist, calling it from the depths of the earth, the way she did with gold or silver or rubies. Jason squirted the cleaning fluid. His eyes watered. 
He wiped Skyron's big toe with his rag and turned aside to gag. Hazel could barely watch. When the kick happened, she almost missed it. Skyron slammed his foot into Jason's chest. Jason tumbled backward over the edge, his arms flailing, screaming as he fell. When he was about to hit the water, the turtle rose up and swallowed him in one bite, then sank below the surface. Alarm bells sounded on the Argo, too. Hazel's friends scrambled on deck, manning the catapults. Hazel heard Piper wailing all the way from the ship. It was so disturbing, Hazel almost lost her focus. She forced her mind to split into two parts. One intensely focused on her task. One playing the role Skyron needed to see. She screamed in outrage. What did you do? Oh, dear. Skyron sounded sad, but Hazel got the impression he was hiding a grin under his bandana. That was an accident, I assure you. My friends will kill you now. They can try, Skyron said. But in the meantime, I think you have time to wash my other foot. Believe me, my dear, my turtle is full now. He doesn't want you to. You'll be quite safe, unless you refuse. He leveled the flintlock pistol at her head. She hesitated, letting him see her anguish. She couldn't agree too easily, or he wouldn't think she was beaten. Don't kick me she said, half-sobbing. His eyes twinkled. This was exactly what he expected. She was broken and helpless. Skyron, the son of Poseidon, had won again. Hazel could hardly believe this guy had the same father as Percy Jackson. Then she remembered that Poseidon had a changeable personality, like the sea. Maybe his children reflected that. Percy was a child of Poseidon's better nature. Powerful, but gentle and helpful. The kind of sea that sped ships safely to distant lands. Skyron was a child of Poseidon's other side. The kind of sea that battered relentlessly at the coastline until it crumbled away, or carried the innocents from shore and let them drown or smashed ships, and killed entire crews without mercy. She snatched up the spray bottle Jason had dropped. Skyron, she growled. Your feet are the least disgusting thing about you. His green eyes hardened. Just clean. She knelt, trying to ignore the smell. She shuffled to one side, forcing Skyron to adjust his stance, but she imagined that the sea was still at her back. She held that vision in her mind as she shuffled sideways again. Just get on with it, Skyron said. Hazel suppressed a smile. She'd managed to turn Skyron 180 degrees, but he still saw the water in front of him the rolling countryside at his back. She started to clean. Hazel had done plenty of ugly work before, 
She'd cleaned the unicorn stables at Camp Jupiter. She'd filled and dug latrines for the Legion. This is nothing, she told herself. But it was hard not to retch when she looked at Skyron's toes. When the kick came, she flew backward. But she didn't go far. She landed on her butt in the grass a few yards away. Skyron stared at her. But... Suddenly, the world shifted. The illusion melted, leaving Skyron totally confused. The sea was at his back. He'd only succeeded in kicking Hazel away from the ledge. He lowered his flintlock. How... Stand and deliver, Hazel told him. Jason swooped out of the sky, right over her head, and body-slammed the bandit over the cliff. Skyron screamed as he fell, firing his flintlock wildly, but for once hitting nothing. Hazel got to her feet. She reached the cliff's edge in time to see the turtle lunge and snap Skyron out of the air. Jason grinned. Hazel, that was amazing. Seriously. Hazel? Hey, Hazel. Hazel collapsed to her knees, suddenly dizzy. Distantly, she could hear her friends cheering from the ship below. Jason stood over her, but he was moving in slow motion, his outline blurry, his voice nothing but static. Frost crept across the rocks and grass around her. The mound of riches she'd summoned sank back into the earth. The mist swirled. What have I done? She thought in a panic. Something went wrong. No, Hazel, said a deep voice behind her. You have done well. She hardly dared to breathe. She'd only heard that voice once before, but she had replayed it in her mind thousands of times. She turned and found herself looking up at her father. He was dressed in Roman style, his dark hair close-cropped, his pale, angular face clean-shaven. His tunic and toga were of black wool, embroidered with threads of gold. The faces of tormented souls shifted in the fabric. The edge of his toga was lined with the crimson of a senator or a praetor, but the stripe rippled like a river of blood. On Pluto's ring finger was a massive opal, like a chunk of polished frozen mist. His wedding ring, Hazel thought, but Pluto had never married Hazel's mother. Gods did not marry mortals. That ring would signify his marriage to Persephone. The thought made Hazel so angry, she shook off her dizziness and stood. What do you want? she demanded. She hoped her tone would hurt him, jab him for all the pain he'd caused her. But a faint smile played across his mouth. My daughter, he said. I am impressed. You have grown strong. No thanks to you, she wanted to say. She didn't want to take any pleasure in his compliment, 
but her eyes still prickled. I thought you major gods were incapacitated, she managed. Your Greek and Roman personalities fighting against one another. We are, Pluto agreed. But you invoked me so strongly that you allowed me to appear, if only for a moment. I didn't invoke you. But even as she said it, she knew it wasn't true. For the first time, willingly, she'd embraced her lineage as a child of Pluto. She'd tried to understand her father's powers and use them to the fullest. When you come to my house in Epirus, Pluto said, you must be prepared. The dead will not welcome you. And the sorceress Pacify... Pacify? Hazel asked. Then she realized that must be the woman's name. She will not be fooled as easily as Skyron. Pluto's eyes glittered like volcanic stone. You succeeded in your first test, but Pacify intends to rebuild her domain, which will endanger all demigods, unless you stop her at the house of Hades. His form flickered. For a moment he was bearded, in Greek robes with a golden laurel wreath in his hair. Around his feet, Skeletal hands broke through the earth. The god gritted his teeth and scowled. His Roman form stabilized. The skeletal hands dissolved back into the earth. We do not have much time. He looked like a man who'd just been violently ill. Know that the doors of death are at the lowest level of the Necromantion. You must make Pacify see what she wants to see. You are right. That is the secret to all magic. But it will not be easy when you are in her maze. What do you mean? What maze? You will understand, he promised. And Hazel Levesque, you will not believe me. But I am proud of your strength. Sometimes... Sometimes the only way I can care for my children is to keep my distance. Hazel bit back an insult. Pluto was just another deadbeat godly dad, making weak excuses. But her heart pounded as she replayed his words, I am proud of your strength. Go to your friends, Pluto said. They will be worried. The journey to Epirus still holds many perils. Wait, Hazel said. Pluto raised an eyebrow. When I met Thanatos, she said, you know, death. He told me I wasn't on your list of rogue spirits to capture. He said maybe that's why you were keeping your distance. If you acknowledged me... You'd have to take me back to the underworld. Pluto waited. What is your question? You're here. Why don't you take me to the underworld? Return me to the dead. Pluto's form started to fade. He smiled, but 
Hazel couldn't tell if he was sad or pleased. Perhaps that is not what I want to see, Hazel. Perhaps I was never here. Chapter 29 Percy Percy was relieved when the demon grandmothers closed in for the kill. Sure, he was terrified. He didn't like the odds of three against several dozen. But at least he understood fighting. Wandering through the darkness, waiting to be attacked, that had been driving him crazy. Besides, he and Annabeth had fought together many times, and now they had a titan on their side. Back off! Percy jabbed Riptide at the nearest shriveled hag, but she only sneered. We are the Arai, said that weird voiceover, like the entire forest was speaking. You cannot destroy us. Annabeth pressed against his shoulder. Don't touch them, she warned. They're the spirits of curses. Bob doesn't like curses, Bob decided. The skeleton kitten, small Bob, disappeared inside his coveralls. Smart cat. The titan swept his broom in a wide arc, forcing the spirits back. But they came in again like the tide. We serve the bitter and the defeated, said the Arai. We serve the slain who prayed for vengeance with their final breath. We have many curses to share with you. The firewater in Percy's stomach started crawling up his throat. He wished Tartarus had better beverage options, or maybe a tree that dispensed antacid fruit. I appreciate the offer, he said, but my mom told me not to accept curses from strangers. The nearest demon lunged. Her claws extended like bony switchblades. Percy cut her in two, but as soon as she vaporized, the sides of his chest flared with pain. He stumbled back, clamping his hand to his ribcage. His fingers came away, wet and red. Percy, you're bleeding, Annabeth cried, which was kind of obvious to him at that point. Oh, gods, on both sides. It was true. The left and right hems of his tattered shirt were sticky with blood, as if a javelin had run him through. Or an arrow. Queasiness almost knocked him over. Vengeance, a curse from the slain. He flashed back to an encounter in Texas two years ago, a fight with a monstrous rancher who could only be killed if each of his three bodies was cut through simultaneously. Jerrion, Percy said. This is how I killed him. The spirits bared their fangs. More awry leaped from the black trees, flapping their leathery wings. Yes, they agreed. Feel the pain you inflicted upon Jerrion. So many curses have been leveled at you, Percy Jackson. 
Which will you die from? Choose, or we will rip you apart. Somehow, he stayed on his feet. The blood stopped spreading, but he still felt like he had a hot metal curtain rod sticking through his ribs. His sword arm was heavy and weak. I don't understand, he muttered. Bob's voice seemed to echo from the end of a long tunnel. If you kill one, it gives you a curse. But if we don't kill them, Annabeth said, they'll kill us anyway, Percy guessed. Choose, the Arai cried. Will you be crushed like Campay? Or disintegrated like the young Telkines you slaughtered under Mount St. Helens? You have spread so much death and suffering, Percy Jackson. Let us repay you. The winged hags pressed in, their breath sour, their eyes burning with hatred. They looked like furies, but Percy decided these things were even worse. At least the three furies were under the control of Hades. These things were wild, and they just kept multiplying. If they really embodied the dying curses of every enemy Percy had ever destroyed, then Percy was in serious trouble. He'd faced a lot of enemies. One of the demons lunged at Annabeth. Instinctively, she dodged. She brought her rock down on the old lady's head and broke her into dust. It wasn't like Annabeth had a choice. Percy would have done the same thing. But instantly, Annabeth dropped her rock and cried in alarm. I can't see! She touched her face, looking around wildly. Her eyes were pure white. Percy ran to her side as the awry cackled. Polyphemus cursed you when you tricked him with your invisibility in the sea of monsters. You called yourself nobody. He could not see you. Now you will not see your attackers. I've got you, Percy promised. He put his arm around Annabeth, but as the Arai advanced, he didn't know how he could protect either of them. A dozen demons leaped from every direction, but Bob yelled, Sweep! His broom whooshed over Percy's head. The entire awry offensive line toppled backward like bowling pins. More surged forward. Bob whacked one over the head and speared another, blasting them to dust. The others backed away. Percy held his breath waiting for their titan friend to be laid low with some terrible curse. But Bob seemed fine. A massive silvery bodyguard, keeping death at bay with the world's most terrifying cleaning implement. Bob, you okay? Percy asked. No curses? No curses for Bob, Bob agreed. The awry snarled and circled, eyeing the broom. The titan is already cursed. Why should we torture him further? You, Percy Jackson, have already destroyed his memory. 
Bob's spearhead dipped. Bob, don't listen to them, Annabeth said. They're evil. Time slowed. Percy wondered if the spirit of Kronos was somewhere nearby, swirling in the darkness, enjoying this moment so much that he wanted it to last forever. Percy felt exactly like he had at twelve years old, battling Ares on that beach in Los Angeles, when the shadow of the Titan Lord had first passed over him. Bob turned. His wild, white hair looked like an exploded halo. My memory! It was you? Curse him, Titan! The Arai urged, their red eyes gleaming. Add to our numbers! Percy's heart pressed against his spine. Bob, it's a long story. I didn't want you to be my enemy. I tried to make you a friend. By stealing your life, the Arai said, leaving you in the palace of Hades to scrub floors. Annabeth gripped Percy's hand. Which way? she whispered. If we have to run. He understood. If Bob wouldn't protect them, their only chance was to run. But that wasn't any chance at all. Bob, listen. He tried again. The Arai want you to get angry. They spawn from bitter thoughts. Don't give them what they want. We are your friends. Even as he said it, Percy felt like a liar. He'd left Bob in the underworld and hadn't given him a thought since. What made them friends? The fact that Percy needed him now? Percy always hated it when the gods used him for their errands. Now, Percy was treating Bob the same way. You see his face? The Arai growled. The boy cannot even convince himself. Did he visit you after he stole your memory? No, Bob murmured. His lower lip quivered. The other one did. Percy's thoughts moved sluggishly. The other one? Nico! Bob scowled at him, his eyes full of hurt. Nico visited, told me about Percy, said Percy was good, said he was a friend. That is why Bob helped. But... Percy's voice disintegrated like someone had hit it with a celestial bronze blade. He never felt so low and dishonorable, so unworthy of having a friend. The Arai attacked, and this time, Bob did not stop them. Chapter 30 Percy Left! Percy dragged Annabeth, slicing through the Arai to clear a path. He probably brought down a dozen curses on himself, but he didn't feel them right away, so he kept running. The pain in his chest flared with every step. He wove between the trees, leading Annabeth at a full sprint despite her blindness. Percy realized how much she trusted him to get her out of this. He couldn't let her down. Yet, how could he save her? 
And if she was permanently blind? No. He suppressed a surge of panic. He would figure out how to cure her later. First, they had to escape. Leathery wings beat the air above them. Angry hissing and the scuttling of clawed feet told him the demons were at their backs. As they ran past one of the black trees, he slashed his sword across the trunk. He heard it topple, followed by the satisfying crunch of several dozen awry as they were smashed flat. If a tree falls in the forest and crushes a demon, does the tree get cursed? Percy slashed down another trunk, then another. It bought them a few seconds, but not enough. Suddenly, the darkness in front of them became thicker. Percy realized what it meant just in time. He grabbed Annabeth right before they both would have charged off the side of the cliff. What? she cried. What is it? Cliff, he gasped. Big cliff. Which way, then? Percy couldn't see how far the cliff dropped. It could be ten feet or a thousand. There was no telling what was at the bottom. They could jump and hope for the best, but he doubted the best ever happened in Tartarus. So, two options, right or left, following the edge. He was about to choose randomly when a winged demon descended in front of him, hovering over the void on her bat wings, just out of sword reach. Did you have a nice walk? Asked the collective voice, echoing all around them. Percy turned. The awry poured out of the woods, making a crescent around them. One grabbed Annabeth's arm. Annabeth wailed in rage, judo-flipping the monster and dropping on its neck, putting her whole body weight into an elbow strike that would have made any pro wrestler proud. The demon dissolved. But when Annabeth got to her feet, she looked stunned and afraid, as well as blind. Percy? She called, panic creeping into her voice. I'm right here. He tried to put his hand on her shoulder, but she wasn't standing where he thought. He tried again, only to find she was several feet farther away. It was like trying to grab something in a tank of water with the light shifting the image away. Percy! Annabeth's voice cracked. Why did you leave me? I didn't. He turned on the awry, his arms shaking with anger. What did you do to her? We did nothing, the demons said. Your beloved has unleashed a special curse, a bitter thought from someone you abandoned. You punished an innocent soul by leaving her in her solitude. Now, her most hateful wish has come to pass. Annabeth feels her despair. She, too, will perish alone and abandoned. Percy? Annabeth spread her arms, trying to find him. The awry backed up, letting her stumble blindly through their ranks. Who did I abandon? Percy demanded. I never... Suddenly, his stomach felt like it had dropped off the cliff. 
the words rang in his head, an innocent soul, alone and abandoned. He remembered an island, a cave lit with soft glowing crystals, a dinner table on the beach, tended by invisible air spirits. She wouldn't, he mumbled. She'd never curse me. The eyes of the demons blurred together like their voices. Percy's sides throbbed. The pain in his chest was worse, as if someone were slowly twisting a dagger. Annabeth wandered among the demons, desperately calling his name. Percy longed to run to her, but he knew the awry wouldn't allow it. The only reason they hadn't killed her yet was that they were enjoying her misery. Percy clenched his jaw. He didn't care how many curses he suffered. He had to keep these leathery old hags focused on him and protect Annabeth as long as he could. He yelled in fury and attacked them all. Chapter 31 Percy For one exciting minute, Percy felt like he was winning. Riptide cut through the awry as though they were made of powdered sugar. One panicked and ran face-first into a tree. Another screeched and tried to fly away, but Percy sliced off her wings and sent her spiraling into the chasm. Each time a demon disintegrated, Percy felt a heavier sense of dread as another curse settled on him. Some were harsh and painful, a stabbing in the gut, a burning sensation like he was being hosed down with a blowtorch. Some were subtle, a chill in the blood, an uncontrollable tick in his right eye. Seriously, who curses you with their dying breath and says, I hope your eye twitches? Percy knew that he'd killed a lot of monsters, but he'd never really thought about it from the monster's point of view. Now, all their pain and anger and bitterness poured over him, sapping his strength. The awry just kept coming. For every one he cut down, six more seemed to appear. His sword arm grew tired, his body ached, and his vision blurred. He tried to make his way toward Annabeth, but she was just out of reach, calling his name as she wandered among the demons. As Percy blundered toward her, a demon pounced and sank its teeth into his thigh. Percy roared. He sliced the demon to dust, but immediately fell to his knees. His mouth burned worse than when he had swallowed the firewater of the phlegathon. He doubled over, shuddering and retching, as a dozen fiery snakes seemed to work their way down his esophagus. You have chosen, said the voice of the Arai, the curse of Phineas, an excellent, painful death. Percy tried to speak. His tongue felt like it was being microwaved. He remembered the old blind king who had chased harpies through Portland with a weed whacker. Percy had challenged him to a contest, and the loser had drunk a deadly vial of Gorgon's blood. Percy didn't remember the old blind man muttering a final curse, but as Phineas dissolved and returned to the underworld, he probably hadn't wished Percy a long and happy life. After Percy's victory then, Gia had warned him. 
Do not press your luck. When your death comes, I promise it will be much more painful than Gorgon's blood. Now he was in Tartarus, dying from Gorgon's blood plus a dozen other agonizing curses while he watched his girlfriend stumble around, helpless and blind, and believing he'd abandoned her. He clutched his sword. His knuckles started to steam. White smoke curled off his forearms. I won't die like this, he thought. Not only because it was painful and insultingly lame, but because Annabeth needed him. Once he was dead, the demons would turn their attention to her. He couldn't leave her alone. The Arai clustered around him, snickering and hissing. His head will erupt first, the voice speculated. No, the voice answered itself from another direction. He will combust all at once. They were placing bets on how he would die, what sort of scorch mark he would leave on the ground. Bob, he croaked. I need you. A hopeless plea. He could barely hear himself. Why should Bob answer his call twice? The Titan knew the truth now. Percy was no friend. He raised his eyes one last time. His surroundings seemed to flicker. The sky boiled and the ground blistered. Percy realized that what he saw of Tartarus was only a watered-down version of its true horror, only what his demigod brain could handle. The worst of it was veiled the same way the mist veiled monsters from mortal sight. Now, as Percy died, he began to see the truth. The air was the breath of Tartarus. All these monsters were just blood cells circulating through his body. Everything Percy saw was a dream in the mind of the dark god of the pit. This must have been the way Nico had seen Tartarus and it had almost destroyed his sanity. Nico, one of the many people Percy hadn't treated well enough. He and Annabeth had only made it this far through Tartarus because Nico D'Angelo had behaved like Bob's true friend. You see the horror of the pit? The Arai said soothingly. Give up, Percy Jackson. Isn't death better than enduring this place? I'm sorry, Percy murmured. He apologizes, the Arai shrieked with delight. He regrets his failed life, his crimes against the children of Tartarus. No, Percy said. I'm sorry, Bob. I should have been honest with you. Please... Forgive me. Protect Annabeth. He didn't expect Bob to hear him or care, but it felt right to clear his conscience. He couldn't blame anyone else for his troubles. Not the gods, not Bob. He couldn't even blame Calypso, the girl he'd left alone on that island. Maybe she'd turned bitter and cursed Percy's girlfriend out of despair. Still, Percy should have followed up with Calypso, made sure the gods sprang her from her exile on Ogigia like they'd promised. 
He hadn't treated her any better than he'd treated Bob. He hadn't even thought much about her, though her moonlace plant still bloomed in his mom's window box. It took all his remaining effort, but he got to his feet. Steam rose from his whole body. His legs shook. His insides churned like a volcano. At least Percy could go out fighting. He raised Riptide, but before he could strike, all the awry in front of him exploded into dust. Chapter 32 Percy Bob seriously knew how to use a broom. He slashed back and forth, destroying the demons one after the other while small Bob the kitten sat on his shoulder, arching its back and hissing. In a matter of seconds, the awry were gone. Most had been vaporized. The smart ones had flown off into the darkness, shrieking in terror. Percy wanted to thank the Titan, but his voice wouldn't work. His legs buckled. His ears rang. Through a red glow of pain, he saw Annabeth a few yards away, wandering blindly toward the edge of the cliff. Ugh, Percy grunted. Bob followed his gaze. He bounded toward Annabeth and scooped her up. She yelled and kicked, pumbling Bob's gut, but Bob didn't seem to care. He carried her over to Percy and put her down gently. The titan touched her forehead. Owie. Annabeth stopped fighting. Her eyes cleared. Where? What? She saw Percy, and a series of expressions flashed across her face. Relief, joy, shock, horror. What's wrong with him? She cried. What happened? She cradled his shoulders and wept into his scalp. Percy wanted to tell her it was okay, but of course it wasn't. He couldn't even feel his body anymore. His consciousness was like a small helium balloon, loosely tied to the top of his head. It had no weight, no strength. It just kept expanding, getting lighter and lighter. He knew that soon it would either burst or the string would break and his life would float away. Annabeth took his face in her hands. She kissed him and tried to wipe the dust and sweat from his eyes. Bob loomed over them, his broom planted like a flag. His face was unreadable, luminously white in the dark. Lots of curses, Bob said. Percy has done bad things to monsters. Can you fix him? Annabeth pleaded. Like you did with my blindness. Fix Percy. Bob frowned. He picked at the name tag on his uniform like it was a scab. Annabeth tried again. Bob. Iapetus, Bob said, his voice a low rumble. Before Bob, it was Iapetus. The air was absolutely still. Percy felt helpless, barely connected to the world. I like Bob better. Annabeth's voice was surprisingly calm. 
Which do you like? The Titan regarded her with his pure silver eyes. I do not know any more. He crouched next to her and studied Percy. Bob's face looked haggard and careworn, as if he suddenly felt the weight of all his centuries. I promised, he murmured. Nico asked me to help. I do not think Iapetus or Bob likes breaking promises. He touched Percy's forehead. Owie, the Titan murmured. Very big owie. Percy sank back into his body. The ringing in his ears faded. His vision cleared. He still felt like he had swallowed a deep fryer. His insides bubbled. He could sense that the poison had only been slowed, not removed. But he was alive. He tried to meet Bob's eyes to express his gratitude. His head lolled against his chest. Bob cannot cure this, Bob said. Too much poison. Too many curses piled up. Annabeth hugged Percy's shoulders. He wanted to say, I can feel that now. Ow, too tight. What can we do, Bob? Annabeth asked. Is there water anywhere? Water might heal him. No water, Bob said. Tartarus is bad. I noticed, Percy wanted to yell. At least the Titan called himself Bob. Even if he blamed Percy for taking his memory, maybe he would help Annabeth if Percy didn't make it. No, Annabeth insisted. No, there has to be a way, something to heal him. Bob placed his hand on Percy's chest. A cold tingle like eucalyptus oil spread across his sternum, but as soon as Bob lifted his hand, the relief stopped. Percy's lungs felt as hot as lava again. Tartarus kills demigods, Bob said. It heals monsters, but you do not belong. Tartarus will not heal Percy. The pit hates your kind. I don't care, Annabeth said. Even here, there has to be some place he can rest, some kind of cure he can take. Maybe back at the altar of Hermes, or... In the distance, a deep voice bellowed, a voice that Percy recognized, unfortunately. I smell him, roared the giant. Beware, son of Poseidon, I come for you. Polybates, Bob said. He hates Poseidon and his children. He is very close now. Annabeth struggled to get Percy to his feet. He hated making her work so hard, but he felt like a sack of billiard balls. Even with Annabeth supporting almost all his weight, he could barely stand. Bob, I'm going on, with or without you, she said. Will you help? The kitten, small Bob, mewed and began to purr, rubbing against Bob's chin. Bob looked at Percy, and Percy wished he could read the Titan's expression. Was he angry or just thoughtful? Was he planning revenge, or was he just feeling hurt because Percy had lied about being his friend? 
There is one place, Bob said at last. There is a giant who might know what to do. Annabeth almost dropped Percy. A giant? Uh, Bob, giants are bad. One is good, Bob insisted. Trust me, and I will take you, unless Polybates and the others catch us first. Chapter 33 Jason Jason fell asleep on the job, which was bad since he was a thousand feet in the air. He should have known better. It was the morning after their encounter with Skyron the bandit, and Jason was on duty, fighting some wild venti who were threatening the ship. When he slashed through the last one, he forgot to hold his breath. A stupid mistake. When a wind spirit disintegrates, it creates a vacuum. Unless you're holding your breath, the air gets sucked right out of your lungs. The pressure in your inner ear drops so fast, you black out. That's what happened to Jason. Even worse, he instantly plunged into a dream. In the back of his subconscious, he thought, Really? Now? He needed to wake up, or he would die but he wasn't able to hold on to that thought. In the dream, he found himself on the roof of a tall building, the nighttime skyline of Manhattan spread around him. A cold wind whipped through his clothes. A few blocks away, clouds gathered above the Empire State Building, the entrance to Mount Olympus itself. Lightning flashed. The air was metallic with the smell of oncoming rain. The top of the skyscraper was lit up as usual, but the lights seemed to be malfunctioning. They flickered from purple to orange, as if the colors were fighting for dominance. On the roof of Jason's building stood his old comrades from Camp Jupiter, an array of demigods in combat armor, their imperial gold weapons and shields glinting in the dark. He saw Dakota and Nathan, Layla and Marcus. Octavian stood to one side, thin and pale, his eyes red-rimmed from sleeplessness or anger, a string of sacrificial stuffed animals around his waist. His auger's white robe was draped over a purple t-shirt and cargo pants. In the center of the line stood Reina, her metal dogs, Aurum and Argentum, at her side. Upon seeing her, Jason felt an incredible pang of guilt. He'd let her believe they had a future together. He had never been in love with her, and he hadn't let her on, exactly. But he also hadn't shut her down. He disappeared, leaving her to run the camp on her own. Okay, that hadn't exactly been Jason's idea, but still. Then he had returned to Camp Jupiter with his new girlfriend, Piper, and a whole bunch of Greek friends in a warship. They'd fired on the forum and run away, leaving Reyna with a war on her hands. In his dream, she looked tired. Others might not notice, but he'd worked with her long enough to recognize the weariness in her eyes, the tightness in her shoulders, under the straps of her armor. Her dark hair was wet, like she'd taken a hasty shower. 
The Romans stared at the roof access door as if they were waiting for someone. When the door opened, two people emerged. One was a fawn. No, Jason thought. A satyr. He'd learned the difference at Camp Half-Blood, and Coach Hedge was always correcting him if he made that mistake. Roman fawns tended to hang around and beg and eat. Satyrs were more helpful, more engaged with demigod affairs. Jason didn't think he'd seen this particular satyr before, but he was sure the guy was from the Greek side. No fawn would look so purposeful walking up to an armed group of Romans in the middle of the night. He wore a green Nature Conservancy t-shirt with pictures of endangered whales and tigers and stuff. Nothing covered his shaggy legs and hooves. He had a bushy goatee, curly brown hair tucked into a Rasta-style cap, and a set of reed pipes around his neck. His hands fidgeted with the hem of his shirt, but considering the way he studied the Romans, noting their positions and their weapons, Jason figured this satyr had been in combat before. At his side was a red-headed girl Jason recognized from Camp Half-Blood, their oracle, Rachel Elizabeth Dare. She had long, frizzy hair, a plain white blouse, and jeans covered with hand-drawn ink designs. She held a blue plastic hairbrush that she tapped nervously against her thigh, like a good-luck talisman. Jason remembered her at the campfire, reciting lines of prophecy that sent Jason, Piper, and Leo on their first quest together. She was a regular mortal teenager, not a demigod. But for reasons Jason never understood, the spirit of Delphi had chosen her as its host. The real question, what was she doing with the Romans? She stepped forward, her eyes fixed on Reyna. You got my message. Octavian snorted. That's the only reason you made it this far alive, Grecus. I hope you've come to discuss surrender terms. Octavian? Reyna warned. At least search them, Octavian protested. No need, Reyna said, studying Rachel Dare. Do you bring weapons? Rachel shrugged. I hit Kronos in the eye with his hairbrush once. Otherwise, no. The Romans didn't seem to know what to make of that. The mortal didn't sound like she was kidding. And your friend? Reyna nodded to the satyr. I thought you were coming alone. This is Grover Underwood, Rachel said. He's a leader of the council. What council? Octavian demanded. Cloven elders, man. Grover's voice was high and reedy, as if he were terrified, but Jason suspected the satyr had more steel than he let on. Seriously, don't you Romans have nature and trees and stuff? I've got some news you need to hear. Plus, I'm a card-carrying protector. I'm here to, you know, protect Rachel. Reyna looked like she was trying not to smile. But no weapons? Just the pipes. Grover's expression became wistful. 
Percy always said my cover of Born to be Wild should count as a dangerous weapon, but I don't think it's that bad. Octavian sneered. Another friend of Percy Jackson. That's all I need to hear. Raina held up her hand for silence. Her gold and silver dogs sniffed the air, but they remained calm and attentive at her side. So far, our guests speak the truth, Raina said. Be warned, Rachel and Grover. If you start to lie, this conversation will not go well for you. Say what you came to say. From her jeans pocket, Rachel dug out a piece of paper like a napkin. A message from Annabeth. Jason wasn't sure he'd heard her right. Annabeth was in Tartarus. She couldn't send anyone a note on a napkin. Maybe I've hit the water and died, his subconscious said. This isn't a real vision. It's some sort of after-death hallucination. But the dream seemed very real. He could feel the wind sweeping across the roof. He could smell the storm. Lightning flickered over the Empire State Building, making the Romans' armor flash. Reyna took the note. As she read it, her eyebrows crept higher. Her mouth parted in shock. Finally, she looked up at Rachel. Is this a joke? I wish, Rachel said. They're really in Tartarus. But how? I don't know, Rachel said. The note appeared in the sacrificial fire at our dining pavilion. That's Annabeth's handwriting. She asks for you by name. Octavian stirred. Tartarus? What do you mean? Reyna handed him the letter. Octavian muttered as he read. Rome, Arachne, Athena, Athena Parthenos? He looked around in outrage, as if waiting for someone to contradict what he was reading. A Greek trick! Greeks are infamous for their tricks! Reyna took back the note. Why ask this of me? Rachel smiled. Because Annabeth is wise. She believes you can do this, Reyna Avila Ramirez Arellano. Jason felt like he'd been slapped. Nobody ever used Reyna's full name. She hated telling anyone what it was. The only time Jason had ever said it aloud, just trying to pronounce it correctly, she'd given him a murderous look. That was the name of a little girl in San Juan, she told him. I left it behind when I left Puerto Rico. Reyna scowled. How did you... Uh, Grover Underwood interrupted. You mean your initials are rah-rah? Raina's hand drifted toward her dagger. But that's not important, the satyr said quickly. Look, we wouldn't have risked coming here if we didn't trust Annabeth's instincts. A Roman leader returning the most important Greek statue to Camp Half-Blood? She knows that could prevent a war. This isn't a trick. Rachel added. We're not lying. Ask your dogs. The metallic greyhounds didn't react. Reyna stroked Aram's head thoughtfully. The Athena Parthenos. So the legend is true. 
Reyna, Octavian cried. You can't seriously be considering this. Even if the statue still exists, you see what they're doing. We're on the verge of attacking them, destroying the stupid Greeks once and for all. And they concoct this stupid errand to divert your attention. They want to send you to your death. The other Romans muttered, glaring at their visitors. Jason remembered how persuasive Octavian could be, and he was winning the officers to his side. Rachel Dare faced the augur. Octavian, son of Apollo, you should take this more seriously. Even Romans respected your father's oracle of Delphi. Ha! Octavian said. You're the oracle of Delphi? Right. And I'm the Emperor Nero. At least Nero could play music, Grover muttered. Octavian balled his fists. Suddenly, the wind shifted. It swirled around the Romans with a hissing sound, like a nest of snakes. Rachel Dare glowed in a green aura, as if hit by a soft emerald spotlight. Then the wind faded, and the aura was gone. The sneer melted from Octavian's face. The Romans rustled uneasily. It's your decision, Rachel said, as if nothing had happened. I have no specific prophecy to offer you, but I can see glimpses of the future. I see the Athena Parthenos on Half-Blood Hill. I see her bringing it. She pointed at Reyna. Also, Ella has been murmuring lines from your Sibylline books. What? Reyna interrupted. The Sibylline books were destroyed centuries ago. I knew it! Octavian pounded his fist into his palm. That harpy they brought back from the quest? Ella? I knew she was spouting prophecies. Now I understand. She... she somehow memorized a copy of the Sibylline books. Reyna shook her head in disbelief. How is that possible? We don't know, Rachel admitted. But yes, that seems to be the case. Ella has a perfect memory. She loves books. Somewhere, somehow, she read your Roman book of prophecies. Now she's the only source for them. Your friends lied, Octavian said. They told us the harpy was just muttering gibberish. They stole her. Grover huffed indignantly. Ella isn't your property. She's a free creature. Besides, she wants to be a camp half-blood. She's dating one of my friends, Tyson. The Cyclops, Reyna remembered. A harpy dating a Cyclops. That's not relevant, Octavian said. The harpy has valuable Roman prophecies. If the Greeks won't return her, we should take their oracle hostage. Guards? Two centurions advanced, their pilla leveled. Grover brought his pipes to his lips, played a quick jig, and their spears turned into Christmas trees. The guards dropped them in surprise. Enough! Reyna shouted. She didn't often raise her voice. When she did, everyone listened. We've strayed from the point, she said. Rachel Dare, you're telling me Annabeth is in Tartarus, 
yet she's found a way to send this message. She wants me to bring this statue from the ancient lands to your camp. Rachel nodded. Only a Roman can return it and restore peace. And why would the Romans want peace, Reyna asked, after your ship attacked our city? You know why, Rachel said. To avoid this war, to reconcile the gods' Greek and Roman sides. We have to work together to defeat Gia. Octavian stepped forward to speak, but Reyna shot him a withering look. According to Percy Jackson, Reyna said, the battle with Gia will be fought in the ancient lands, in Greece. That's where the giants are, Rachel agreed. Whatever magic, whatever ritual the giants are planning to wake the Earth Mother, I sense it will happen in Greece. But, well, our problems aren't limited to the ancient lands. That's why I brought Grover to talk to you. The satyr tugged his goatee. Yeah, see, over the last few months, I've been talking to satyrs and nature spirits across the continent. They're all saying the same thing. Gia is stirring. I mean, she's right on the edge of consciousness. She's whispering in the minds of naiads, trying to turn them. She's causing earthquakes, uprooting the dryads' trees. Last week alone, she appeared in human form in a dozen different places, scaring the horns off some of my friends. In Colorado, a giant stone fist rose out of a mountain and swatted some party ponies like flies. Raina frowned. Party ponies? Long story, Rachel said. The point is, Gia will rise everywhere. She's already stirring. No place will be safe from the battle. And we know that her first targets are going to be the demigod camps. She wants us destroyed. Speculation, Octavian said. A distraction. The Greeks fear our attack. They're trying to confuse us. It's the Trojan horse all over again. Reyna twisted the silver ring she always wore with the sword and torch symbols of her mother, Bologna. Marcus, she said, bring Scipio from the stables. Reyna, no, Octavian protested. She faced the Greeks. I will do this for Annabeth, for the hope of peace between our camps. But do not think I have forgotten the insults to Camp Jupiter. Your ship fired on our city. You declared war. Not us. Now leave. Grover stamped his hoof. Percy would never... Grover, Rachel said. We should go. Her tone said, before it's too late. After they had retreated back down the stairs, Octavian wheeled on Reyna. Are you mad? I am Praetor of the Legion, Reyna said. I judge this to be in the best interest of Rome. To get yourself killed? To break our oldest laws and travel to the ancient lands? How will you even find their ship, assuming you survive the journey? I will find them, Reyna said. 
If they are sailing for Greece, I know a place Jason will stop. To face the ghosts in the house of Hades, he will need an army. There is only one place where he can find that sort of help. In Jason's dream, the building seemed to tilt under his feet. He remembered a conversation he'd had with Reyna years ago, a promise they had made to each other. He knew what she was talking about. This is insanity, Octavian muttered. We're already under attack. We must take the offensive. Those hairy dwarfs have been stealing our supplies, sabotaging our scouting parties. You know the Greeks sent them. Perhaps, Reyna said, but you will not launch an attack without my orders. Continue scouting the enemy camp. Secure your positions. Gather all the allies you can. And if you catch those dwarfs, you have my blessing to send them back to Tartarus. But do not attack Camp Half-Blood until I return. Octavian narrowed his eyes. While you're gone, the augur is the senior officer. I will be in charge. I know. Reyna didn't sound happy about it. But you have my orders. You all heard them. She scanned the faces of the centurions, daring them to question her. She stormed off, her purple cloak billowing and her dogs at her heels. Once she was gone, Octavian turned to the centurions. Gather all the senior officers. I want a meeting as soon as Reyna has left on her fool's quest. There will be a few changes in the Legion's plans. One of the centurions opened his mouth to respond, but for some reason he spoke in Piper's voice. Wake up! Jason's eyes snapped open, and he saw the ocean's surface hurtling toward him. Chapter 34 Jason Jason survived. Barely. Later, his friends explained that they hadn't seen him falling from the sky until the last second. There was no time for Frank to turn into an eagle and catch him. No time to formulate a rescue plan. Only Piper's quick thinking and charm speak had saved his life. She'd yelled, wake up, with so much force that Jason felt like he'd been hit with defibrillator paddles. With a millisecond to spare, he'd summoned the winds and avoided becoming a floating patch of demigod grease on the surface of the Adriatic. Back on board, he had pulled Leo aside and suggested a course correction. Fortunately, Leo trusted him enough not to ask why. Weird vacation spot, Leo grinned. But hey, you're the boss. Now, sitting with his friends in the mess hall, Jason felt so awake, he doubted he would sleep for a week. His hands were jittery. He couldn't stop tapping his feet. He guessed that this was how Leo felt all the time, except that Leo had a sense of humor. After what Jason had seen in his dream, he didn't feel much like joking. While they ate lunch, Jason reported on his mid-air vision. 
His friends were quiet long enough for Coach Hedge to finish a peanut butter and banana sandwich, along with a ceramic plate. The ship creaked as it sailed through the Adriatic, its remaining oars still out of alignment from the giant turtle attack. Every once in a while, Festus, the figurehead, creaked and squeaked through the speakers, reporting the autopilot status in that weird machine language that only Leo could understand. A note from Annabeth. Piper shook her head in amazement. I don't see how that's possible. But if it is, she's alive, Leo said. Thank the gods and pass the hot sauce. Frank frowned. What does that mean? Leo wiped the chip crumbs off his face. It means pass the hot sauce, Jong. I'm still hungry. Frank slid over a jar of salsa. I can't believe Reyna would try to find us. It's taboo, coming to the ancient lands. She'll be stripped of her praetorship. If she lives, Hazel said. It was hard enough for us to make it this far with seven demigods and a warship. And me, Coach Hedge belched. Don't forget, Cupcake, you got the satyr advantage. Jason had to smile. Coach Hedge could be pretty ridiculous, but Jason was glad he'd come along. He thought about the satyr he'd seen in his dream, Grover Underwood. He couldn't imagine a satyr more different from Coach Hedge, but they both seemed brave in their own way. It made Jason wonder about the fawns back at Camp Jupiter, whether they could be like that if the Roman demigods expected more from them. Another thing to add to his list. His list. He hadn't realized that he had one until that moment, but ever since leaving Camp Half-Blood, he'd been thinking of ways to make Camp Jupiter more... Greek. He had grown up at Camp Jupiter. He'd done well there, but he had always been a little unconventional. He chafed under the rules. He joined the fifth cohort because everyone told him not to. They warned him it was the worst unit, so he'd thought, fine, I'll make it the best. Once he became Praetor, he'd campaign to rename the Legion the First Legion rather than the Twelfth Legion, to symbolize a new start for Rome. The idea had almost caused a mutiny. New Rome was all about tradition and legacies, the rules didn't change easily. Jason had learned to live with that and even rose to the top. But now that he had seen both camps, he couldn't shake the feeling that Camp Half-Blood might have taught him more about himself. If he survived this war with Gia and returned to Camp Jupiter as a praetor, could he change things for the better? That was his duty. So why did the idea fill him with dread? He felt guilty about leaving Reyna to rule without him, but still, part of him wanted to go back to Camp Half-Blood with Piper and Leo. He guessed that that made him a pretty terrible leader. Jason? Leo asked. Argo 2 to Jason, come in. He realized his friends were looking at him expectantly. They needed reassurance. Whether or not he made it back to New Rome after the war, 
Jason had to step up now and act like a preter. Yeah, sorry. He touched the groove that Skyron the bandit had cut in his hair. Crossing the Atlantic is a hard journey, no doubt, but I'd never bet against Reyna. If anyone can make it, she will. Piper circled her spoon through her soup. Jason was still a little nervous about her getting jealous of Reyna, but when she looked up, she gave him a dry smile that seemed more teasing than insecure. Well, I'd love to see Reyna again, she said, but how is she supposed to find us? Frank raised his hand. Can't you just send her an iris message? They're not working very well, Coach Hedge put in. Horrible reception. Every night, I swear, I could kick that rainbow goddess. He faltered. His face turned bright red. Coach? Leo grinned. Who have you been calling every night, you old goat? No one. Hedge snapped. Nothing. I just meant... He means we've already tried, Hazel intervened, and the coach gave her a grateful look. Some magic is interfering. Maybe Gia. Contacting the Romans is even harder. I think they're shielding themselves. Jason looked from Hazel to the coach, wondering what was going on with the satyr and how Hazel knew about it. Now that Jason thought about it, the coach hadn't mentioned his cloud-nymph girlfriend Melly in a long time. Frank drummed his fingers on the table. I don't suppose Reyna has a cell phone? Nah, never mind. She'd probably have bad reception on a Pegasus flying over the Atlantic. Jason thought about the Argo II's journey across the ocean, the dozens of encounters that had nearly killed them. Thinking about Reyna making that journey alone, he couldn't decide whether it was terrifying or awe-inspiring. She'll find us, he said. She mentioned something in the dream. She's expecting me to go to a certain place on our way to the House of Hades. I... I'd forgotten about it, actually, but she's right. It's a place I need to visit. Piper leaned toward him, her caramel braid falling over her shoulder. Her multicolored eyes made it hard for him to think straight. And where is this place? she asked. A, uh, a town called Split. Split? She smelled really good like blooming honeysuckle. Um, yeah. Jason wondered if Piper was working some sort of Aphrodite magic on him, like maybe every time he mentioned Reyna's name, she would befuddle him so much he couldn't think about anything but Piper. He supposed it wasn't the worst sort of revenge. In fact, we should be getting close. Leo? Leo punched the intercom button. How's it going up there, buddy? Festus, the figurehead, creaked and steamed. He says maybe ten minutes to the harbor, Leo reported. Though I still don't get why you want to go to Croatia, especially a town called Split. I mean, you name your city Split? You gotta figure it's a warning to, you know, Split. Kind of like naming your city Get Out. 
Wait, Hazel said. Why are we going to Croatia? Jason noticed that the others were reluctant to meet her eyes. Since her trick with the mist against Skyron the bandit, even Jason felt a little nervous around her. He knew that wasn't fair to Hazel. It was hard enough being a child of Pluto, but she'd pulled off some serious magic on that cliff. And afterward, according to Hazel, Pluto himself had appeared to her. That was something Romans typically called a bad omen. Leo pushed his chips and hot sauce aside. Well, technically, we've been in Croatian territory for the past day or so. All that coastline we've been sailing past is it. But I guess back in the Roman times, it was called... What'd you say, Jason? Bodacious? Dalmatia, Nico said, making Jason jump. Holy Romulus. Jason wished he could put a bell around Nico D'Angelo's neck to remind him the guy was there. Nico had this disturbing habit of standing silently in the corner, blending into the shadows. He stepped forward, his dark eyes fixed on Jason. Since they'd rescued him from the bronze jar in Rome, Nico had slept very little and eaten even less as if he were still subsisting on those emergency pomegranate seeds from the underworld. He reminded Jason a little too much of a flesh-eating ghoul he'd once fought in San Bernardino. Croatia used to be Dalmatia, Nico said, a major Roman province. You want to visit Diocletian's palace, don't you? Coach Hedged managed another heroic belch. Whose palace? And is Dalmatia where those Dalmatian dogs come from? That 101 Dalmatians movie. I still have nightmares. Frank scratched his head. Why would you have nightmares about that? Coach Hedge looked like he was about to launch into a major speech about the evils of cartoon Dalmatians. But Jason decided he didn't want to know. Nico is right, he said. I need to go to Diocletian's palace. It's where Reyna will go first, because she knows I would go there. Piper raised an eyebrow. And why would Reyna think that? Because you've always had a mad fascination with Croatian culture? Jason stared at his uneaten sandwich. It was hard to talk about his life before Juno wiped his memory. His years at Camp Jupiter seemed made up, like a movie he'd acted in decades before. Reyna and I used to talk about Diocletian, he said. We both kind of idolized the guy as a leader. We talked about how we'd like to visit Diocletian's palace. Of course, we knew that was impossible. No one could travel to the ancient lands. But still, we made this pact that if we ever did, that's where we'd go. Diocletian, Leo considered the name, then shook his head. I got nothing. Why was he so important? Frank looked offended. He was the last great pagan emperor. Leo rolled his eyes. Why am I not surprised you know that, Zhang? Why wouldn't I? 
He was the last one who worshipped the Olympian gods before Constantine came along and adopted Christianity. Hazel nodded. I remember something about that. The nuns at St. Agnes taught us that Diocletian was a huge villain, right along with Nero and Caligula. She looked askance at Jason. Why would you idolize him? He wasn't a total villain, Jason said. Yeah, he persecuted Christians, but otherwise he was a good ruler. He worked his way up from nothing by joining the Legion. His parents were former slaves, or at least his mom was. Demigods know he was a son of Jupiter, the last demigod to rule Rome. He was also the first emperor ever to retire, like, peacefully, and give up his power. He was from Dalmatia, so he moved back there and built a retirement palace. The town of Split grew up around... He faltered when he looked at Leo, who was mimicking taking notes with an air pencil. Go on, Professor Grace, he said, wide-eyed. I want to get an A on the test. Shut up, Leo. Piper sipped another spoonful of soup. So why is Diocletian's palace so special? Nico leaned over and plucked a grape. Probably that was the guy's entire diet for the day. It's said to be haunted by the ghost of Diocletian, who was a son of Jupiter, like me, Jason said. His tomb was destroyed centuries ago, but Reyna and I used to wonder if we could find Diocletian's ghost and ask where he was buried. Well, according to the legends, his scepter was buried with him. Nico gave him a thin, creepy smile. Ah, that legend. What legend? Hazel asked. Nico turned to his sister. Supposedly, Diocletian's scepter could summon the ghosts of the Roman legions, any of them who worshipped the old gods. Leo whistled. Okay, now I'm interested. Be nice to have a booty-kicking army of pagan zombies on our side when we enter the house of Hades. Not sure I would have put it that way, Jason muttered, but yeah. We don't have much time, Frank warned. It's already July 9th. We have to get to Epirus, close the doors of death, which are guarded, Hazel murmured, by a smoky giant and a sorceress who wants... She hesitated. Well, I'm not sure, but according to Pluto, she plans to rebuild her domain, whatever that means. It's bad enough that my dad felt like warning me personally. Frank grunted. And if we survive all that, we still have to find out where the giants are waking Gia and get there before the 1st of August. Besides, the longer Percy and Annabeth are in Tartarus, I know, Jason said. We won't take long in Split, but looking for the scepter is worth a try. While we're at the palace, I can leave a message for Reyna, letting her know the route we're taking for Epirus. Nico nodded. The scepter of Diocletian could make a huge difference. You'll need my help. Jason tried not to show his discomfort, but his skin prickled at the thought of going anywhere with Nico D'Angelo. Percy had shared some disturbing stories about Nico. His loyalties weren't always clear, 
He spent more time with the dead than the living. Once, he'd lured Percy into a trap in the palace of Hades. Maybe Nico had made up for that by helping the Greeks against the Titans, but still. Piper squeezed his hand. Hey, sounds fun. I'll go too. Jason wanted to yell, Thank the gods! But Nico shook his head. You can't, Piper. It should only be Jason and me. Diocletian's ghost might appear for a son of Jupiter, but any other demigods would most likely, uh, spook him. And I'm the only one who can talk to his spirit. Even Hazel won't be able to do that. Nico's eyes held a gleam of challenge. He seemed curious as to whether or not Jason would protest. The ship's bell sounded. Festus creaked and whirred over the loudspeaker. We've arrived, Leo announced. Time to split. Frank groaned. Can we leave Valdez in Croatia? Jason stood. Frank, you're in charge of defending the ship. Leo, you've got repairs to do. The rest of you, help out wherever you can. Nico and I... He faced the son of Hades. We have a ghost to find. Chapter 35 Jason Jason first saw the angel at the ice cream cart. The Argo, too, had anchored in the bay along with six or seven cruise ships. As usual, the mortals didn't pay the trireme any attention. But just to be safe, Jason and Nico hopped a skiff from one of the tourist boats so they would look like part of the crowd when they came ashore. At first glance, Split seemed like a cool place. Curving around the harbor was a long esplanade lined with palm trees. At the sidewalk cafes, European teenagers were hanging out, speaking a dozen different languages and enjoying the sunny afternoon. The air smelled of grilled meat and fresh-cut flowers. Beyond the main boulevard, the city was a hodgepodge of medieval castle towers, Roman walls, limestone townhouses with red-tiled roofs, and modern office buildings, all crammed together. In the distance, gray-green hills marched toward a mountain ridge, which made Jason a little nervous. He kept glancing at that rocky escarpment, expecting the face of Gia to appear in its shadows. Nico and he were wandering along the esplanade when Jason spotted the guy with wings buying an ice cream bar from a street cart. The vendor lady looked bored as she counted the guy's change. Tourists navigated around the angel's huge wings without a second glance. Jason nudged Nico. Are you seeing this? Yeah, Nico agreed. Maybe we should buy some ice cream. As they made their way toward the street cart, Jason worried that this winged dude might be a son of Boreas, the North Wind. At his side, the angel carried the same kind of jagged bronze sword the Boreads had, and Jason's last encounter with them hadn't gone so well. But this guy seemed more chill than chilly. He wore a red tank top, Bermuda shorts, and Huarachi sandals. His wings were a combination of russet colors, like a bantam rooster or a lazy sunset. 
He had a deep tan and black hair almost as curly as Leo's. He's not a returned spirit, Nico murmured. Or a creature of the underworld. No, Jason agreed. I doubt they would eat chocolate-covered ice cream bars. So what is he? Nico wondered. They got within thirty feet and the wing dude looked directly at them. He smiled, gestured over his shoulder with his ice cream bar, and dissolved into the air. Jason couldn't exactly see him, but he'd had enough experience controlling the wind that he could track the angel's path. A warm wisp of red and gold zipping across the street, spiraling down the sidewalk, and blowing postcards from the carousels in front of the tourist shops. The wind headed toward the end of the promenade, where a big fortress-like structure loomed. I'm betting that's the palace, Jason said. Come on. Even after two millennia, Diocletian's palace was still impressive. The outer wall was only a pink granite shell, with crumbling columns and arched windows open to the sky, but it was mostly intact. A quarter mile long and seventy or eighty feet tall, dwarfing the modern shops and houses that huddled beneath it. Jason imagined what the palace must have looked like when it was newly built, with imperial guards walking the ramparts and the golden eagles of Rome glinting on the parapets. The wind angel, or whatever he was, whisked in and out of the pink granite windows, then disappeared on the other side. Jason scanned the palace's facade for an entrance. The only one he saw was several blocks away, with tourists lined up to buy tickets. No time for that. We've got to catch him, Jason said. Hold on. But... Jason grabbed Nico and lifted them both into the air. Nico made a muffled sound of protest as they soared over the walls and into a courtyard where more tourists were milling around, taking pictures. A little kid did a double take when they landed. Then his eyes glazed over and he shook his head, like he was dismissing a juice box-induced hallucination. No one else paid them any attention. On the left side of the courtyard stood a line of columns holding up weathered gray arches. On the right side was a white marble building with rows of tall windows. The peristyle, Nico said. This was the entrance to Diocletian's private residence. He scowled at Jason. And please, I don't like being touched. Don't ever grab me again. Jason's shoulder blades tensed. He thought he heard the undertone of a threat, like, unless you want to get a Stygian sword up your nose. Uh, okay. Sorry. How do you know what this place is called? Nico scanned the atrium. He focused on some steps in the far corner leading down. I've been here before. His eyes were as dark as his blade. With my mother and Bianca. A weekend trip from Venice. I was maybe six? That was when? The 1930s? 38 or so, Nico said absently. Why do you care? Do you see that winged guy anywhere? No. 
Jason was still trying to wrap his mind around Nico's past. Jason always tried to build a good relationship with the people on his team. He'd learned the hard way that if somebody was going to have your back in a fight, it was better if you found some common ground and trusted each other. But Nico wasn't easy to figure out. I just... I can't imagine how weird that must be, coming from another time. No, you can't. Nico stared at the stone floor. He took a deep breath. Look, I don't like talking about it. Honestly, I think Hazel has it worse. She remembers more about when she was young. She had to come back from the dead and adjust to the modern world. Me, me and Bianca, we were stuck at the Lotus Hotel. Time passed so quickly. In a weird way, that made the transition easier. Percy told me about that place, Jason said. Seventy years, but it only felt like a month? Nico clenched his fist until his fingers turned white. Yeah, I'm sure Percy told you all about me. His voice was heavy with bitterness, more than Jason could understand. He knew that Nico had blamed Percy for getting his sister Bianca killed, but they'd supposedly gotten past that, at least according to Percy. Piper had also mentioned a rumor that Nico had a crush on Annabeth. Maybe that was part of it. Still, Jason didn't get why Nico pushed people away, why he never spent much time at either camp, why he preferred the dead to the living. He really didn't get why Nico had promised to lead the Argo II to Epirus if he hated Percy Jackson so much. Nico's eyes swept the windows above them. Roman dead are everywhere here. Larry's, Lemris, they're watching. They're angry. At us? Jason's hand went to his sword. At everything. Nico pointed to a small stone building on the west end of the courtyard. That used to be a temple to Jupiter. The Christians changed it to a baptistry. The Roman ghosts don't like that. Jason stared at the dark doorway. He'd never met Jupiter, but he thought of his father as a living person, the guy who'd fallen in love with his mom. Of course, he knew his dad was immortal, but somehow the full meaning of that had never really sunk in until now, as he stared at a doorway Romans had walked through thousands of years ago to worship his dad. The idea gave Jason a splitting headache. And over there? Nico pointed east to a hexagonal building ringed with freestanding columns. That was the mausoleum of the emperor. But his tomb isn't there anymore, Jason guessed. Not for centuries, Nico said. When the empire collapsed, the building was turned into a Christian cathedral. Jason swallowed. So if Diocletian's ghost is still around here, he's probably not happy. The wind rustled, pushing leaves and food wrappers across the peristyle. In the corner of his eye, Jason caught a glimpse of movement, a blur of red and gold. When he turned, 
a single rust-colored feather was settling on the steps that led down. That way, Jason pointed. The winged guy. Where do you think those stairs lead? Nico drew his sword. His smile was even more unsettling than his scowl. Underground, he said. My favorite place. Underground was not Jason's favorite place. Ever since his trip beneath Rome with Piper and Percy fighting those twin giants in the Hypogeum under the Colosseum, most of his nightmares were about basements, trap doors, and large hamster wheels. Having Nico along was not reassuring. His Stygian iron blade seemed to make the shadows even gloomier, as if the infernal metal was soaking the light and heat out of the air. They crept through a vast cellar with thick support columns holding up a vaulted ceiling. The limestone blocks were so old they had fused together from centuries of moisture, making the place look almost like a naturally formed cave. None of the tourists had ventured down here. Obviously, they were smarter than demigods. Jason drew his gladius. They made their way under the low archways, their steps echoing on the stone floor. Barred windows lined the top of one wall, facing the street level, but that just made the cellar feel more claustrophobic. The shafts of sunlight looked like slanted prison bars, swirling with ancient dust. Jason passed a support beam, looked to his left, and almost had a heart attack. Staring right at him was a marble bust of Diocletian, his limestone face glowering with disapproval. Jason steadied his breathing. This seemed like a good place to leave the note he'd written for Reyna, telling her of their route to Epirus. It was away from the crowds, but he trusted Reyna would find it. She had the instincts of a hunter. He slipped the note between the bust and its pedestal and stepped back. Diocletian's marble eyes made him jumpy. Jason couldn't help thinking of Terminus, the talking statue god back at New Rome. He hoped Diocletian didn't bark at him or suddenly burst into song. Hello? Before Jason could register that the voice had come from somewhere else, he sliced off the emperor's head. The bust toppled and shattered against the floor. That wasn't very nice, said the voice behind them. Jason turned. The winged man from the ice cream stand was leaning against the nearby column, casually tossing a small bronze hoop in the air. At his feet sat a wicker picnic basket full of fruit. I mean, the man said, what did Diocletian ever do to you? The air swirled around Jason's feet. The shards of marble gathered into a miniature tornado, spiraled back to the pedestal, and reassembled into a complete bust, the note still tucked underneath. Uh, Jason lowered his sword. It was an accident. You startled me. The winged dude chuckled. Jason Grace, the West Wind has been called many things, Warm, gentle, life-giving, and devilishly handsome. But I have never been called startling.
I leave that crass behavior to my gusty brethren in the north. Nico inched backward. The west wind? You mean you're... Pavonius, Jason realized. God of the west wind. Pavonius smiled and bowed, obviously pleased to be recognized. You can call me by my Roman name, certainly. Or Zephyrus, if you're Greek. I'm not hung up about it. Nico looked pretty hung up about it. Why aren't your Greek and Roman sides in conflict, like the other gods? Oh, I have the occasional headache, Pavonius shrugged. Some mornings I'll wake up in a Greek chiton when I'm sure I went to sleep in my SPQR pajamas, but mostly the war doesn't bother me. I'm a minor god, you know? Never really been much in the limelight. The to and fro battles among you demigods don't affect me as greatly. So, Jason wasn't quite sure whether to sheathe his sword. What are you doing here? Several things, Pavonius said. Hanging out with my basket of fruit? I always carry a basket of fruit. Would you like a pear? I'm good, thanks. Let's see, earlier I was eating ice cream. Right now I'm tossing this coit ring. Pavonius spun the bronze hoop on his index finger. Jason had no idea what a coit was, but he tried to stay focused. I mean, why did you appear to us? Why did you lead us to this cellar? Oh, Pavonius nodded. The sarcophagus of Diocletian. Yes, this was its final resting place. The Christians moved it out of the mausoleum. Then some barbarians destroyed the coffin. I just wanted to show you. He spread his hands sadly. That what you're looking for isn't here. My master has taken it. Your master? Jason had a flashback to a floating palace above Pike's Peak in Colorado, where he'd visited, and barely survived, the studio of a crazy weatherman who claimed he was the god of all the winds. Please tell me your master isn't Aeolus. That airhead? Pavonius snorted. No, of course not. He means Eros. Nico's voice turned edgy. Cupid in Latin. Pavonius smiled. Very good, Nico D'Angelo. I'm glad to see you again, by the way. It's been a long time. Nico knit his eyebrows. I've never met you. You've never seen me, the god corrected. But I've been watching you. When you came here as a small boy, and several times since. I knew eventually you would return to look upon my master's face. Nico turned even paler than usual. His eyes darted around the cavernous room, as if he was starting to feel trapped. Nico? Jason said. What's he talking about? I don't know. Nothing. Nothing? Pavonius cried. The one you care for most plunged into Tartarus, and still you will not allow the truth? 
Suddenly, Jason felt like he was eavesdropping. The one you care for most. He remembered what Piper had told him about Nico's crush on Annabeth. Apparently, Nico's feelings went way deeper than a simple crush. We've only come for Diocletian's scepter, Nico said, clearly anxious to change the subject. Where is it? Ah, Pavonius nodded sadly. You thought it would be as easy as facing Diocletian's ghost? I'm afraid not, Nico. Your trials will be much more difficult. You know, long before this was Diocletian's palace, it was the gateway to my master's court. I've dwelt here for eons, bringing those who sought love into the presence of Cupid. Jason didn't like the mention of difficult trials. He didn't trust this weird god with the hoop and the wings and the basket of fruit. But an old story surfaced in his mind, something he'd heard at Camp Jupiter. Like Psyche, Cupid's wife, you carried her to his palace. Pavonius's eyes twinkled. Very good, Jason Grace. From this exact spot, I carried Psyche on the winds and brought her to the chambers of my master. In fact, that is why Diocletian built his palace here. This place has always been graced by the gentle west wind. He spread his arms. It is a spot of tranquility and love in a turbulent world. When Diocletian's palace was ransacked... You took the scepter, Jason guessed. For safekeeping, Pavonius agreed. It is one of Cupid's many treasures, a reminder of better times. If you want it... Pavonius turned to Nico. You must face the god of love. Nico stared at the sunlight coming through the windows, as if wishing he could escape through those narrow openings. Jason wasn't sure what Favonius wanted, but if facing the god of love meant forcing Nico into some sort of confession about which girl he liked, that didn't seem so bad. Nico, you can do this. Jason said. It might be embarrassing, but it's for the scepter. Nico didn't look convinced. In fact, he looked like he was going to be sick. But he squared his shoulders and nodded. You're right. I... I'm not afraid of a love god. Favonius beamed. Excellent. Would you like a snack before you go? He plucked a green apple from his basket and frowned at it. Oh, bluster. I keep forgetting my symbol is a basket of unripe fruit. Why doesn't the spring wind get more credit? Summer has all the fun. That's okay, Nico said quickly. Just take us to Cupid. Favonius spun the hoop on his finger, and Jason's body dissolved into air. Chapter 36 Jason Jason had ridden the wind many times. Being the wind was not the same. He felt out of control, his thoughts scattered, no boundaries between his body and the rest of the world. He wondered if this was how monsters felt when they were defeated, bursting into dust, helpless and formless. 
Jason could sense Nico's presence nearby. The west wind carried them into the sky above Split. Together, they raced over the hills, past Roman aqueducts, highways, and vineyards. As they approached the mountains, Jason saw the ruins of a Roman town spread out in a valley below. Crumbling walls, square foundations, and cracked roads, all overgrown with grass, so it looked like a giant, mossy game board. Favonia set them down in the middle of the ruins, next to a broken column the size of a redwood. Jason's body reformed. For a moment, it felt even worse than being the wind, like he'd suddenly been wrapped in a lead overcoat. Yes, mortal bodies are terribly bulky, Favonius said, as if reading his thoughts. The wind god settled on a nearby wall with his basket of fruit and spread his russet wings in the sun. Honestly, I don't know how you stand it, day in and day out. Jason scanned their surroundings. The town must have been huge once. He could make out the shells of temples and bathhouses, a half-buried amphitheater, and empty pedestals that must have once held statues. Rows of columns marched off to nowhere. The old city walls wove in and out of the hillside like stone thread through a green cloth. Some areas looked like they'd been excavated, but most of the city just seemed abandoned, as if it had been left to the elements for the last 2,000 years. Welcome to Salona, Favonius said, capital of Dalmatia, birthplace of Diocletian. But before that, long before that, it was the home of Cupid. The name echoed, as if voices were whispering it through the ruins. Something about this place seemed even creepier than the palace basement in Split. Jason had never thought much about Cupid. He'd certainly never thought of Cupid as scary. Even for Roman demigods, the name conjured up an image of a silly winged baby with a toy bow and arrow flying around in his diapers on Valentine's Day. Oh, he's not like that, said Favonius. Jason flinched. You can read my mind? I don't need to. Favonius tossed his bronze hoop in the air. Everyone has the wrong impression of Cupid, until they meet him. Nico braced himself against a column, his legs trembling visibly. Hey, man. Jason stepped toward him, but Nico waved him off. At Nico's feet, the grass turned brown and wilted. The dead patch spread outward, as if poison was seeping from the soles of his shoes. Ah, Favonius nodded sympathetically. I don't blame you for being nervous, Nico D'Angelo. Do you know how I ended up serving Cupid? I don't serve anyone, Nico muttered, especially not Cupid. Favonius continued as if he hadn't heard. I fell in love with a mortal named Hyacinthus. He was quite extraordinary. He? Jason's brain was still fuzzy from his wind trip, so it took him a second to process that. Oh. 
Yes, Jason Grace. Favonius arched an eyebrow. I fell in love with the dude. Does that shock you? Honestly, Jason wasn't sure. He tried not to think about the details of godly love lives, no matter who they fell in love with. After all, his dad, Jupiter, wasn't exactly a model of good behavior. Compared to some of the Olympian love scandals he'd heard about, the West Wind falling in love with the mortal guy didn't seem very shocking. I guess not. So, Cupid struck you with his arrow, and you fell in love? Pavonius snorted. You make it sound so simple. Alas, love is never simple. You see, the god Apollo also liked Hyacinthus. He claimed they were just friends. I don't know. But one day I came across them together, playing a game of quoits. There was that weird word again. Quoits? A game with those hoops, Nico explained, though his voice was brittle. Like horseshoes. Sort of, Favonius said. At any rate, I was jealous. Instead of confronting them and finding out the truth, I shifted the wind and sent a heavy metal ring right at Hyacinthus's head, and, well, the wind god sighed. As Hyacinthus died, Apollo turned him into a flower, the Hyacinth. I'm sure Apollo would have taken horrible vengeance on me, but Cupid offered me his protection. I'd done a terrible thing, but I'd been driven mad by love. So he spared me, on the condition that I work for him forever. Cupid. The name echoed through the ruins again. That would be my cue. Favonius stood. Think long and hard about how you proceed, Dico D'Angelo. You cannot lie to Cupid. If you let your anger rule you, well, your fate will be even sadder than mine. Jason felt like his brain was turning back into wind. He didn't understand what Favonius was talking about or why Nico seemed so shaken, but he had no time to think about it. The wind god disappeared in a swirl of red and gold. The summer air suddenly felt oppressive. The ground shook, and Jason and Nico drew their swords. So... The voice rushed past Jason's ear like a bullet. When he turned, no one was there. You come to claim the scepter. Nico stood at his back, and for once, Jason was glad to have the guy's company. Cupid, Jason called. Where are you? The voice laughed. It definitely didn't sound like a cute baby angel's. It sounded deep and rich, but also threatening, like a tremor before a major earthquake. Where you least expect me, Cupid answered, as love always is. Something slammed into Jason and hurled him across the street. He toppled down a set of steps and sprawled on the floor of an excavated Roman basement. I would think you'd know better, Jason Grace. Cupid's voice whirled around him. 
You found true love after all. Or do you still doubt yourself? Nico scrambled down the steps. You okay? Jason accepted his hand and got to his feet. Yeah, just sucker punched. Oh, did you expect me to play fair? Cupid laughed. I am the god of love. I am never fair. This time, Jason's senses were on high alert. He felt the air ripple just as an arrow materialized, racing toward Nico's chest. Jason intercepted it with his sword and deflected it sideways. The arrow exploded against the nearest wall, peppering them with limestone shrapnel. They ran up the steps. Jason pulled Nico to one side as another gust of wind toppled a column that would have crushed him flat. Is this guy love or death? Jason growled. Ask your friends, Cupid said. Frank, Hazel, and Percy met my counterpart, Thanatos. We are not so different, except death is sometimes kinder. We just want the scepter, Nico shouted. We're trying to stop Gia. Are you on the god side or not? A second arrow hit the ground between Nico's feet and glowed white hot. Nico stumbled back as the arrow burst into a geyser of flame. Love is on every side, Cupid said. And no one's side. Don't ask what love can do for you. Great, Jason said. Now he's spouting greeting card messages. Movement behind him, Jason spun, slicing his sword through the air. His blade bit into something solid. He heard a grunt and he swung again, but the invisible god was gone. On the paving stones, a trail of golden ichor shimmered, the blood of the gods. Very good, Jason, Cupid said. At least you can sense my presence. Even a glancing hit at true love is more than most heroes manage. So now I get the scepter? Jason asked. Cupid laughed. Unfortunately, you could not wield it. Only a child of the underworld can summon the dead legions, and only an officer of Rome can lead them. But... Jason wavered. He was an officer. He was Praetor. Then he remembered all his second thoughts about where he belonged. In New Rome, he'd offered to give up his position to Percy Jackson. Did that make him unworthy to lead a legion of Roman ghosts? He decided to face that problem when the time came. Just leave that to us, he said. Nico can summon... The third arrow zipped by Jason's shoulder. He couldn't stop it in time. Nico gasped as it sunk into his sword arm. Nico! The son of Hades stumbled. The arrow dissolved, leaving no blood and no visible wound. But Nico's face was tight with rage and pain. Enough games! Nico shouted. Show yourself! 
It is a costly thing, Cupid said, looking on the true face of love. Another column toppled. Jason scrambled out of its way. My wife, Psyche, learned that lesson, Cupid said. She was brought here eons ago, when this was the site of my palace. We met only in the dark. She was warned never to look upon me, and yet she could not stand the mystery. She feared I was a monster. One night, she lit a candle and beheld my face as I slept. Were you that ugly? Jason thought he had zeroed in on Cupid's voice, at the edge of the amphitheater about twenty yards away, but he wanted to make sure. The god laughed. I was too handsome, I'm afraid. A mortal cannot gaze upon the true appearance of a god without suffering consequences. My mother, Aphrodite, cursed Psyche for her distrust. My poor lover was tormented, forced into exile, given horrible tasks to prove her worth. She was even sent to the underworld on a quest to show her dedication. She earned her way back to my side, but she suffered greatly. Now I've got you, Jason thought. He thrust his sword in the sky, and thunder shook the valley. Lightning blasted a crater where the voice had been speaking. Silence. Jason was just thinking, dang, it actually worked, when an invisible force knocked him to the ground. His sword skittered across the road. A good try, Cupid said, his voice already distant but love cannot be pinned down so easily. Next to him, a wall collapsed. Jason barely managed to roll aside. Stop it! Nico yelled. It's me you want! Leave him alone! Jason's ears rang. He was dizzy from getting smacked around. His mouth tasted like limestone dust. He didn't understand why Nico would think of himself as the main target, but Cupid seemed to agree. Poor Nico D'Angelo. The god's voice was tinged with disappointment. Do you know what you want? Much less what I want. My beloved Psyche risked everything in the name of love. It was the only way to atone for her lack of faith. And you, what have you risked in my name? I've been to Tartarus and back, Nico snarled. You don't scare me. I scare you very, very much. Face me. Be honest. Jason pulled himself up. All around Nico, the ground shifted. The grass withered and the stones cracked as if something was moving in the earth beneath, trying to push its way through. Give us Diocletian's scepter, Nico said. We don't have time for games. Games? Cupid struck, slapping Nico sideways into a granite pedestal. Love is no game. It is no flowery softness. 
It is hard work, a quest that never ends. It demands everything from you, especially the truth. Only then does it yield rewards. Jason retrieved his sword. If this invisible guy was love, Jason was beginning to think love was overrated. He liked Piper's version better. Considerate, kind, and beautiful. Aphrodite he could understand. Cupid seemed more like a thug, an enforcer. Nico, he called. What does this guy want from you? Tell him, Nico D'Angelo, Cupid said. Tell him you are a coward, afraid of yourself and your feelings. Tell him the real reason you ran from Camp Half-Blood and why you are always alone. Nico let loose a guttural scream. The ground at his feet split open and skeletons crawled forth. Dead Romans with missing hands and caved-in skulls, cracked ribs and jaws unhinged. Some were dressed in the remnants of togas. Others had glinting pieces of armor hanging off their chests. Will you hide among the dead as you always do? Cupid taunted. Waves of darkness rolled off the son of Hades. When they hit Jason, he almost lost consciousness overwhelmed by hatred and fear and shame. Images flashed through his mind. He saw Nico and his sister on a snowy cliff in Maine, Percy Jackson protecting them from a manticore. Percy's sword gleamed in the dark. He'd been the first demigod Nico had ever seen in action. Later, at Camp Half-Blood, Percy took Nico by the arm, promising to keep his sister Bianca safe. Nico believed him. Nico looked into his sea-green eyes and thought, How can he possibly fail? This is a real hero. He was Nico's favorite game. Mytho-magic, brought to life. Jason saw the moment when Percy returned and told Nico that Bianca was dead. Nico had screamed and called him a liar. He'd felt betrayed, but still. When the skeleton warriors attacked, he couldn't let them harm Percy. Nico had called on the earth to swallow them up, and then he'd run away, terrified of his own powers and his own emotions. Jason saw a dozen more scenes like this from Nico's point of view, and they left him stunned, unable to move or speak. Meanwhile, Nico's Roman skeletons surged forward and grappled with something invisible. The gods struggled, flinging the dead aside, breaking off ribs and skulls, but the skeletons kept coming, pinning the gods' arms. Interesting, Cupid said. Do you have the strength after all? I left Camp Half-Blood because of love, Nico said. Annabeth! She... Still hiding, Cupid said, smashing another skeleton to pieces. You do not have the strength. Nico, Jason managed to say. It's okay. I get it. Nico glanced over. 
pain and misery washing across his face. No, you don't, he said. There's no way you can understand. And so you run away again, Cupid chided. From your friends, from yourself. I don't have friends, Nico yelled. I left Camp Half-Blood because I don't belong. I'll never belong. The skeletons had Cupid pinned now, but the invisible god laughed so cruelly that Jason wanted to summon another bolt of lightning. Unfortunately, he doubted he had the strength. Leave him alone, Cupid, Jason croaked. This isn't... His voice failed. He wanted to say it wasn't Cupid's business, but he realized this was exactly Cupid's business. Something Flavonius said kept buzzing in his ears. Are you shocked? The story of Psyche finally made sense to him. Why a mortal girl would be so afraid. Why she would risk breaking the rules to look the god of love in the face. Because she feared he might be a monster. Psyche had been right. Cupid was a monster. Love was the most savage monster of all. Nico's voice was like broken glass. I... I wasn't in love with Annabeth. You were jealous of her, Jason said. That's why you didn't want to be around her. Especially why you didn't want to be around... him. It makes total sense. All the fight and denial seemed to go out of Nico at once. The darkness subsided. The Roman dead collapsed into bones and crumbled to dust. I hated myself, Nico said. I hated Percy Jackson. Cupid became visible. A lean, muscular young man with snowy white wings, straight black hair, a simple white frock and jeans. The bow and quiver slung over his shoulder were no toys. They were weapons of war. His eyes were as red as blood, as if every valentine in the world had been squeezed dry, distilled into one poisonous mixture. His face was handsome, but also harsh, as difficult to look at as a spotlight. He watched Nico with satisfaction, as if he'd identified the exact spot for his next arrow to make a clean kill. I had a crush on Percy, Nico spat. That's the truth. That's the big secret. He glared at Cupid. Happy now? For the first time, Cupid's gaze seemed sympathetic. Oh, I wouldn't say love always makes you happy. His voice sounded smaller, much more human. Sometimes it makes you incredibly sad, but at least you've faced it now. That's the only way to conquer me. Cupid dissolved into the wind. On the ground where he'd stood lay an ivory staff three feet long, topped with a dark globe of polished marble about the size of a baseball, nestled on the backs of three gold Roman eagles the scepter of Diocletian. 
Nico knelt and picked it up. He regarded Jason as if waiting for an attack. If the others found out... If the others found out, Jason said, you'd have that many more people to back you up and to unleash the fury of the gods on anybody who gives you trouble. Nico scowled. Jason still felt the resentment and anger rippling off him. But it's your call, Jason added. Your decision to share or not. I can only tell you... I don't feel that way anymore, Nico muttered. I mean, I gave up on Percy. I was young and impressionable, and I... I don't... His voice cracked, and Jason could tell the guy was about to get teary-eyed. Whether Nico had really given up on Percy or not, Jason couldn't imagine what it had been like for Nico all those years, keeping a secret that would have been unthinkable to share in the 1940s, denying who he was, feeling completely alone, even more isolated than other demigods. Nico he said gently. I've seen a lot of brave things, but what you just did? That was maybe the bravest. Nico looked up uncertainly. We should get back to the ship. Yeah, I can fly us. No, Nico announced. This time we're shadow traveling. I've had enough of the winds for a while.